Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. My name's Rob, and I'm an alcoholic. And by the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, excellent sponsorship, Lots and lots of service work, but mostly because of the program of recovery that I found in this book. I've not found it necessary to take a drink or anything that affects me from the neck up since the 7th of July, 1988. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. And as I shared last night, you know, that may not impress you, but I can assure you that it impresses my family, my friends, and the California Highway Patrol. I can assure you of that. And... uh Thank you to Randy and to the group for inviting me back out here. Uh, it's been a couple years since I've been to Winter Garden. And uh, it's always an honor and a privilege for me to do anything with this life-saving, life-giving, life-changing program. And it's, uh, it doesn't matter to me whether it's a large group or a small group. Anywhere that there are alcoholics that want to hear the message of recovery, you know, I'm willing to go and I'm willing to talk about my experience. And what I'm really going to try to do today is share my experience and the struggles that I made in the early 80s to get sober over and over and over in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a result of that, I almost died a couple of times. And I was finally introduced to the program of recovery that's in this this stupid book that I never read. And somehow, by a, a series of you know coincidences that happened in my life, I was able to get a sponsor. I was able to work the 12 steps under his guidance. And the compulsion to drink was removed. And, and as you'll hear in my, my talks today, you know, in my case, it's never returned. You know, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, as I said. And uh, would you all join me in a, uh, a moment of silence in a, a prayer that I use that I learned from one of my mentors, a guy from Las Vegas that some of you may have heard. Uh, Bob uh, helped me a lot. He helped me a lot with uh, understanding this program. And uh, I've used a prayer that he taught me. So would you join me in a moment of silence, please? Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you. Everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about my fellows. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. All for a new experience in you, Lord. A new experience in myself a new experience in my fellows, and a much-needed new experience in my own recovery. Amen. And you know, I like that prayer, and the reason that I use that prayer is it's oftentimes the things that worked for me five years ago that aren't working for me or serving me today that will keep me from having a new experience in recovery. I'm here to tell you, I've known multiple people with double-digit sobriety that have gotten drunk. And if you ask them this question, they will always give you the same answer. A week before you picked up the first drink, would you have thought there was any way that you would have drank? They'll always tell you no, because that is the insidious nature of alcoholism. Because that's what happens to a guy like me if I stop taking the action. I will invariably find my way back to the next drink, although I will think that I'm right all the way through. Right? It's funny. I try to speak to two people from the podium of AA. I try to speak to people in their first 90 days. Do we have anybody here in their first 90 days of sobriety? I know we got one right back there, right? Is that somebody over here? Welcome to the new people. Let's have a round for the new people. 
I also try to speak to people in their last 90 days, right? Anybody here in their last 90 days? And we all laugh about that, right? We all laugh about that, right? And as screwed up, I remember when I first came in, they said, oh, man, the newcomers are screwed up. And I was screwed up when I got here, right? But I think it's interesting that the new people know exactly who they are, don't they, right? They know that they're in their first 90 days. But I think it's safe to say in any large group of alcoholics, there are probably people in their last 90 days. But they have no idea who they are, aren't they, right? As a matter of fact, I think it's safe to say in any large group of alcoholics, as Clancy, my grand sponsor, says, that there are some people in this very room today that may die of alcoholism. Maybe you, maybe me, right? But what we're here to talk about today is that I don't have to die of alcoholism, and I want to make it really clear why I'm here. First of all, three reasons I'm here today. Number one, I'm here because my God, the God of Alcoholics Anonymous, is a loving, powerful, and forgiving, omnipotent God who can take something so broken and so flawed and so imperfect and make something useful even out of that. What a great God, huh? The second reason I'm here is I'm here because I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to make it really clear to all of you today. Those of you, some of you heard me and some of you have not, okay? But I'm what's known as a card-carrying, flag-waving, banner-bearing, Kool-Aid-drinking member of Alcoholics Anonymous, okay? And if you don't like that, then I suggest you leave right now because I'm here till 6 o'clock tonight, right? You see, I am passionate and enthusiastic about AA. As a matter of fact, if you read in Bill's story on page six, uh, page 15... Bill makes a stunning editorial comment about what he did once he'd had the spiritual awakening as the result of these steps in Towns Hospital in December of 1934. He said, my wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to helping other alcoholics to a solution to their problem. And that's how I worked the program of AA, and that's how I carried the message. I carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous with enthusiasm. I am enthusiastic about service in AA. I'm enthusiastic about the 12 steps of AA. I'm enthusiastic about sponsorship. Hell, I'm even enthusiastic about the word enthusiasm, if you want to know the truth. Because the word enthusiasm comes from Latin. The word theos, meaning God. And the prefix en, meaning from within. The God within. And I believe that when I am enthusiastic about Alcoholics Anonymous, I get to express the God within. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we speak the language of the heart. And when the God within me touches the God within you, or the God within you that touches the God within me, then I get to be useful. And I get to have a purpose. I was talking before the meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous, as we're going to see today as we get into the steps, is really not about acquiring all this great stuff. I can't promise you today, for those of you who are new, that you're going to get sober and you're going to have a great wife or husband and a great job and a boat and a car and a great house. I can't promise you any of that. But my sponsor was wise enough to tell me that that's not what Alcoholics Anonymous is about because that's not a treatment for alcoholism. He said Alcoholics Anonymous is about loving God and serving Him and my fellows. And as a result of doing those things, I get to be useful and purposeful and I get to be reasonably happy in this world and infinitely happy in the next. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. You know, I spent six years coming in and out of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got what's called fellowships. Maybe some of you have been fellowshipped. And that's where I went to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I did what I heard in the meetings, right? And they said all sorts of wonderful stuff that didn't really make a lot of sense to me, right? 
Because what they were saying in the meetings was different from what was in this book. They said things to me like, do the right thing. Do the next right thing. How many people have heard, do the next right thing? Do the next right thing, right? Well, my book says I have the inability to tell the truth from the false. Just saying. Just saying, right? They said, don't make any major changes in your first year. How many people have heard that? Don't make any major changes in your first year. Have you looked at that third step prayer, by the way? Have you, has anybody looked at that third step prayer? Right? They said things like, God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. How many people have heard that? Right? God doesn't give us any more than we can handle. Really? Well, if God doesn't ever give me any more than I can handle, then I don't need God, do I? Right? I can do it all on my own. But you see, God frequently gives me more than I can handle, so I have to depend and rely upon Him. They said, don't get any relationships in your first year, or you'll get drunk. I, I don't know how we ever proved that, because nobody's ever done it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I really don't know how we do that, you know? I didn't. Do, I told the guys that I sponsor, if you want to see all your character defects, get in a relationship. You'll see it. We'll talk about that when we get into now about sex. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I tried for six years to get sober in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't successful. And finally, in 1988, I was fortunate to get a sponsor who introduced me to this book, and he asked me to do some things that, that I hadn't been asked before. He explained to me that I was an alcoholic of the type that they described in this book, and that if that was true, if I'm an alcoholic of their type, that meetings of the fellowship were insufficient for me, that I needed to find something else. And so I worked the steps under his direction, and it changed my life. It not only changed my life, it changed my perception of the program of AA and what I'd been hearing for five years. And so I just want to say from the beginning that you're free to agree or disagree with anything you hear me say today. But please, please don't leave here assuming I'm wrong. Okay? Please come up and ask me at one of the breaks. We will have some breaks intermittently because John's got to change the CDs. Uh, we'll have about five minutes in between sessions. So I ask that you go smoke and come back quick. Uh, but, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that what we do, we're doing here today is a life-saving thing, right? And I'm here to not, uh, I'm not here to save myself, although this helps me. I'm here to change somebody's life who's new or who's maybe, you know, sitting around AA like I did year after year after year, right? And I, they'd say to me, Rob, how, how are you doing? You know, and I'd say, I'm doing fine, right? I'm doing fine, right? And I'd go to your stupid meetings and I'd go home and I had a 45 pistol, right? And I'd put it in my mouth because I was so tired of the way I was living and I couldn't imagine going on, right? And if you're sitting here today and you feel like that, right? And you think you sit in the meetings and you go home and you think, man, what's it all worth, right? You know, well, there's good news. We have a program of recovery for you. I'm here to tell you something. I'm not here to stay sober till my next birthday, which is in July, my next AA birthday. I'm not here to stay sober till Christmas or the 4th of July. I'm here for permanent sobriety, right? And there's good news. Everybody in this room can have permanent sobriety. And if you're new and nobody's told you, you never have to drink again. I was talking to Jimmy about that on the way over here. You never have to drink here again. And they told me that when I got here the last time, and I, and I didn't believe it, right? But I'm here to tell you I believe it today. And as long as I do certain simple things that we're going to talk about all day today, right, I know I never have to pick up another drink. And I can have a way of life that is infinitely better than the life that I lived before, right? We're going to start in the doctor's opinion on page XV, in the third edition, and I know some of you have been to the Big Book Workshop XV, uh, excuse me, XXV in the uh, fourth edition. I know some of you have been to the Big Book Workshop that I do, and this is a little bit different than than that 
uh, workshop, only because we have a limited amount of time to get through a lot of material. So we're going to spend this morning really talking and focused on, on step one. That's really going to be our focus this morning. And the doctor's opinion is where we begin to talk about step one. Now, there's a couple of interesting things that I always point out about the doctor's opinion. Number one, you'll notice that it's called the doctor's opinion. Everybody see that at the top of the page there? In 1939, when the book was written, this was not known as medical fact, right? Dr. Silkworth, who wrote the doctor's opinion, was the physician-in-chief at Towns Hospital in New York. He treated Bill Wilson as well as many of our early members, and he had developed a theory on alcoholism based on his extensive experience in working with people like us. Right? He worked with over 50,000 alcoholics in his career. That's a lot, right? And if you work with 50,000 of anything, you're going to develop some theories about the thing that you're working with. And so he shared his theory with Bill Wilson in the course of Bill's third treatment in Towns Hospital in December of 1934. And as a result of that, Bill, essentially what he gave Bill is what we now have as the first step, which I'll get into in a minute. But Silkworth did not know this as medical fact. However, in 1956, the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association confirmed what Dr. Silkworth put in the doctor's opinion in 1939. And everything that we've learned to date is in agreement with what Silkworth put in the doctor's opinion. Now, there are some people that will tell you that the doctor's opinion is not part of the text of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Because there are some people that will tell you that the only thing that is the text is from what's on page 1 to page 164, right? Some of you may have heard that, right? And in the first edition, if you open the first edition, you'll see that the doctor's opinion actually appears on page 1, right? But when they printed the second edition, somebody got the idea that since it wasn't written by an alcoholic, we're going to put it in the Roman numeral section of the book, right? And I don't know why they did that, okay, because the Roman numeral section of the book, nobody ever reads those Roman numeral sections, do they, right? Okay. And it changed the use of the doctor's opinion in the fellowship. But here's why it's important. Think about it. There's a reason that they put the doctor's opinion first, isn't there, right? They didn't just put it in here wherever they felt like putting it. There's a reason they put it first thing. Why? Because the rest of the book is all about overcoming the illness that he describes in the doctor's opinion, right? How many people here are planners? Anybody here like to plan? I like to plan. As a matter of fact, every time I, I know you like to plan, Lisa, every time I went to detox, right, I said the same thing. I said, I got a plan this time, right? Not like that last plan I had. That was a faulty plan, right? But this time I got a good plan, right? And I left detox, I said, I'm going to be the kind of son I should be. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to pay off the IRS. I'm going to go to see my probation officer on a weekly basis like I'm supposed to. I'm going to do all those things. And I never did them, right? And I found out why. Top of the page. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described where? In this book, right? Everybody underline that. So where does the plan of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous belong? Where is it? It's in this book. You know what that tells me? That tells me if I want to hear the plan of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not going to hear it at a meeting. The only place I'm going to hear it is in this book. If you don't believe me, keep your finger right there and turn to the forward to, or excuse me, the preface of the book for a second. Preface of the book. Roman numeral XI. It 
Second full paragraph says, because this book has become the basic text of our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing, here it comes, the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third, and fourth edition. Okay? The first portion, it's important to understand that there are sections of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. The first portion is what's called the recovery portion or the text portion. That's the doctor's opinion in page 1 to 164. That's known as the text, right? The second portion of the book is what's known as the story section, right? And every time they've reprinted the book, they've taken some stories out and they put some new stories in, right? Some of us call that the entertainment section, okay? And then the third portion of the book is way at the back of the book. It's called the appendices, right? And the appendices were addendums to the book. They were things that were added after the book was originally published. And if you go to the back of the book, you'll see the Lasker Award, the traditions in the long form, how to contact AA, a medical view on AA, a religious view on AA, the spiritual experience appendix, which we're going to talk about today. Okay, All of those things were added after the book was written. And what it says here in the preface is the first portion of this book or the text portion of this book contains nothing more and nothing less than the AA recovery program, right? Underline that and highlight it. Very important. So if I want to know the AA recovery program, where am I going to find it? I'm going to find it in one place and one place only. I'm going to find it in this book, right? The last time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and this leads into what we're going to be talking about in the doctor's opinion, I had been coming around AA for six years. And I got a wise sponsor, and he said, Rod, how long have you been going to AA? I said, six years. He said, have you ever worked the 12 steps? I said, no, I have not. He said, have you ever had a sponsor? I said, no, I have not. He said, so Rob, you realize that the 12 steps are the program of recovery, right? He said, that's what we do here to stay sober. Otherwise, we just have group therapy. So you're sitting around AA, right? And you realize you're not doing the AA program, right? And I hadn't realized that, right? He drew the distinction for me that we're going to talk about on page 17 between the fellowship of AA and the program of AA, right? And he said to me, Rob, if you're sitting around meetings with the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're not doing the AA program, what are you doing? Right? What are you doing? And it hit me. And I realized I've been sitting around in the lobby of Alcoholics Anonymous for six years, but I hadn't been doing anything. I've been wasting time, right? I've been killing time, and it almost killed me, right? And I was able to drag myself back to Alcoholics Anonymous one more time. And I began to learn the nature of my illness in the doctor's opinion. Doctor's opinion... Page XXVI in the fourth edition begins to talk about the nature of the illness that I have. And let's remember that when we talk about alcoholism, we're talking about the type that the doctor describes here in the doctor's opinion. We're talking about the effect that he's going to talk about on the chronic alcoholic, right? It says in the first full paragraph under where it says, William B. Silkworth, the physician who at our request gave us this letter was kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirmed what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic, everybody circle that, 
is quite as abnormal as his mind. Everybody underline that. This is the first place that I found in written history, and I've read a lot of books on alcoholism, that alcoholism is diagnosed as a twofold illness, a disease of the mind and the body, right? You have to understand that up until this point in the 1930s, there were two schools of thought. There were the internal medicine people who believed that alcoholism was a physiological illness similar to diabetes, and that if we could just figure out the right injection or the right pill to give people, that they could properly metabolize alcohol, and as a result of that, drink normally. Right? And there's still some people that believe that today. We see it on the TV all the time, don't we? Right? Oh, we know these crazy 12-step programs think that abstinence is the only answer. Right? But if you come to our program, it's not necessarily the case. Right? Man, I, and sometimes I watch those commercials and I think, man, if I'd only waited another 25 years, I could have gone to their program. Right? And then there was the mental health people, the psychiatrists and the psychologists. And they believed if you could just get these alcoholics to understand that they can't drink normally, if you could just explain to them and get them to understand that they can't do it, that they'd be okay. And if you think about it logically, that makes sense. I mean, I remember back in the 80s, I'm old enough to remember back in the 80s, right, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, right? And I remember lots of people in the 80s said to me, Rob, just say no, right? And I'd say no, 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 yes, you know, because that's the type of alcoholic that I am. Right? And we'll talk about that when we get to page 20 and 21. Right? But there's different types of drinkers. And we don't talk about that in Alcoholics Anonymous very much. But here, Dr. Silkworth says that we have a twofold illness. The way he described our illness in other places is he had a, a theory that he developed in the 30s watching people like us. Interestingly enough, Silkworth didn't develop his theory on alcoholism under a microscope in a petri dish. He developed it by observing people like us. Right. And he shared with Bill this idea that he had. He said, Bill, I've been watching you. And he said, I, I think that people like you have some sort of abnormal reaction to alcohol that I call the phenomenon of craving. Right. That once you ingest any alcohol whatsoever, you kick off this physical allergy, this abnormal reaction. And you can't stop no matter how hard you try. And Bill said, that makes sense to me. Right. He said, but here's the interesting thing, Bill. He says, coupled with that. You have something that I call the obsession of the mind. He said and an obsession is a thought or an idea that is so powerful that it will actually override all contrary thoughts or ideas. Right. So you'll be sober and you'll think you're doing fine. But every once in a while, for reasons I don't understand, Bill, your mind's going to get a great idea. Right. And despite countless vain attempts to prove you can drink like other people, despite countless suffering. And the loss of your family and your job and your money, your mind will convince you that it's okay to drink because of this obsession. And all of that stuff to the contrary is going to be blotted out. And you pick up a drink believing you can do so. And once you do, this physical allergy then kicks in. And then you're not drinking because you want to, Bill. You're drinking because you have to. And let me tell you, I didn't understand my alcoholism for a long time. I can only tell you two things about my drinking, really. Right? Number one, I can tell you that I have never had a social drink. Right. I have never had the experience of having one or two drinks. Right. Just to be sociable. Has anybody here ever drank like that? I didn't think so. OK. You see, I don't drink to be sociable. I always drink for effect. Right. As a matter of fact, on page 21 of our book, it's going to say it's going to describe me perfectly. It says he is always more or less insanely drunk. That was a perfect description of how I drank. Right. Perfect description. Right? 
But the other thing I can tell you about my alcoholism is I've never had enough to drink, right? I've never had the experience that a lot of people have where they go to the bar, they have two or three drinks, and the bartender says, would you like another drink? And they go, nope, this is just right. I've never been there, right? I have never been to just right in my life, right? I always felt like I was going to be just right on the next drink, and the next drink, and the next drink, right? And then I'd black out, and I didn't get there, right? And I'd come out of a blackout, and I didn't get there, and then I'd have to start over again on the next drink, and the next drink. And when you can never get enough to drink, right, you always go too far, don't you? Because right? I could never get enough. So I always went too far. And that's what Silkworth describes here goes on to say, did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking because we are maladjusted to life, that we are in full flight from reality or outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete, this physical allergy. Turn over to page... X-X-V-I-I-I. Perfect for an alcoholic. I-I-I. Right? It's what I hear from the guys I sponsor every day. I-I-I. Right? One of the things that I share in the big book workshop that I do is that really the first 60 pages are designed to convince us of two things and two things only, which is what we're going to spend this morning talking about. Really, they're designed, if you read the book carefully and you study it, to convince me of two things. Step one, what is my problem? And step two, what is my solution? Right? Step one is a statement of the problem. I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. Right? That's the problem. Anybody disagree with that? Right? And just like step one is the statement of my problem, step two is a statement of my solution. If I need, if I'm powerless, then what do I need? I need power. Right? If my life is unmanageable, I need management. Right? And that's what the second step's all about. I'm going to find a power greater than myself, which is going to restore me to sanity and start to manage my life and direct my life, right? That's what it's about, right? And so all through the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion, he gives us what I call the one-two punch, right? He's going to give us an example of the problem, powerlessness, right? And then he's going to follow that with an example of the solution, power, right? And all through the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion, He's going to give us powerlessness, power, right? Step one, step two, unmanageability, management. And then hopefully by the time we reach page 60, we're going to be able to say yes to three proposals, right? And then we're going to be able to decide for ourselves based on their experience and our own personal experience that we're an alcoholic of their type, right? He starts right here at the top of page XXVIII by giving us the one-two punch. Thanks for listening. He says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, everybody underline that, is the manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Step one, section A, I am powerless over alcohol. Why? because I have an allergy to alcohol that the book says never occurs in the average temperate drinkers. On the next page, he's going to say drinks that I see other people taking with impunity, which means without punishment, right? And I drank with people like that. I drank with people, right, that could drink, and seemingly they didn't have the same reaction that I had. 
because they didn't act the way I did, right? And I used to think that non-alcoholics, you know, you watch non-alcoholics, right? And you watch them drink and you watch how they drink, right? And it doesn't make sense to a guy like me, right? I don't understand the non-alcoholic, right? And I used to think that non-alcoholics must have great willpower. And you know what the book tells me? The book tells me that the non-alcoholic doesn't need great willpower, right? Because this physical allergy that I have to alcohol never occurs in the average temperate drinker. They get all they want every time they drink, right? As a matter of fact, I've often used the example that I got from my friends Joe and Charlie, you know, that if you take a non-alcoholic and you say, as a matter of fact, you should do this. I've, I've done the experiment. Ask them. I have a woman at work named Michelle, right? And we talk in the midst of going about our work, right? She's a non-alcoholic, right? And I remember one day we were talking and she said, she said, yeah, I feel kind of bad today. I said, I said, why do you feel bad today? She said, well, last night I went out with my husband and I had three drinks, right? And I said, I said, you did? She said, she said, yeah. I said, well, tell me what happened, right? She said, well, I drank the first one, right? And it was okay. And I started to get this little tipsy sort of feeling, right? And then I had the second one and I started to feel out of control, right? And someone handed me the third one and I really didn't want it, right? But I held it in my hand for like an hour. And then I set it down because the ice was melting, right? Now, I can tell you this for sure, that I have never had the ice in a drink melt in my life. You know what I'm saying? Never in my life, right? You see, she gets a reaction from alcohol that she described in our conversation. She said she gets a tipsy feeling and she starts to feel out of control, right? But interestingly enough, when I drink two or three drinks, I start to feel like I'm getting control, right? You see, for her, alcohol is a depressant, right? For me, alcohol is a stimulant. So she wanted to go home and go to bed. You give me three drinks, I want to go to South Beach. You know what I'm saying? That's just how I am, right? You see, we are wired completely differently, right? But the big book tells me why right here. Is it says that she doesn't get the same reaction from alcohol that I get. This physical allergy that I get never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Keep your finger right there and turn to page 20 of the text. Middle of the page. It says, how many times people have said to us, and when you, you could circle the word people, that's non-alcoholic people, right? They're always the ones telling us about our drinking, right? I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't he? God, my father used to say that to me all the time, right? Just say no. Why don't you drink... Uh, uh, like a gentleman or quit. That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all lit up again. Now listen to this. Now these are commonplace observances on drinkers which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. It says we see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. Everybody underline that, right? Again, my friend Michelle has a completely different reaction to alcohol than I got. It was pointed out to me by my wise sponsor that if she got the same reaction that I got, she'd drink the way I do, 
right? But you see, she doesn't get the sense of ease and comfort that I get from taking a few drinks. She gets a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling, and she feels like she's losing control, so she wants to stop. When I start getting that feeling of control, I want to have more, right? And I can't ever get enough, so I always go too far. As a matter of fact, if you want to know what non-alcoholics think about us, turn to page 137 really quick. 137. Oh, excuse me, 139, sorry. Last full paragraph, about eight lines down. Drinking occasionally, understanding your own reaction, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things so far as the alcoholic is concerned, which are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take it or leave it alone whenever you want to. You can control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head and go to business. To you, alcohol, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else save the spineless and stupid. Right? Everybody underline that. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that this man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Back on page 20. That's what non-alcoholics think of us. Right? And I had many people tell me, Rob, what is wrong with you? Right? Why can't you see that drinking is a problem? Why don't you leave it alone? And time after time, I went to places like detoxes and rehab centers. How many people here have been to detox or rehab? Detox or rehab? Most alcoholics find their way to detox or rehabs. And you know what I love? I love emergency rooms, right? I must, because that's where I always end up when I start drinking, right? And time after time, doctors and psychiatrists and treatment professionals would tell me, Rob, you can't drink. And I would stop drinking, believing that my problem was between here and here. But what we're going to find out in chapter 3 is that really my problem isn't between here and here. My problem is that in conjunction with this physical allergy, I have what they're going to call a spiritual malady. Right? You see, when I'm forced into a state of absence, I can stay sober for a while, but eventually I become so malcontent in sobriety that I stay sober as long as I can until I can't take it anymore. And then I drink. And I would drink and drink and drink till I couldn't take that anymore. And I'm the kind of guy that I don't like to just drink, right? I like to drink 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. How many people like that, are like that, right? That's how I like to drink, right? I like to be high all the time. Not part of the time, right? But the problem is the body can't take it, right? Eventually you have to get sober, don't you, right? Your body just shuts down. My body shut down like 3 or 4 times. And they'd take me to the emergency room, or they'd take me to a detox, and they'd laboriously detox me, right? And then I would stay sober. But what the book's going to tell me is that when I'm forced into a state of abstinence, I'm not like the hard drinker. I don't become happy, joyous, and free when I'm forced into abstinence. I become restless, irritable, and discontented. That is my nature when I'm, I'm abstinent, right? Bottom of page 20. This is something we don't talk about a lot in AA. Is that there are types of drinkers, right? There are types of drinkers. I didn't know this for a long time. You know, we talk about alcoholics, right? But I think it's safe to say, for example, if you went to the cancer ward, for example, right? There would be people in the cancer ward that would be in the early stages of cancer, right? Who are getting treatment. And then there would be people probably in the moderate and intermediate stages of cancer getting treatment. And then you'd have people in the advanced stages of cancer, Right? 
And then unfortunately, there would probably be some people there that are in the terminal stage of cancer, right? Well, I think that the same thing is true of alcoholics. I think that when you go to AA, it's safe to say that you have people that have different types of alcoholism, right? We don't talk about that a lot. My sponsor, fortunately, talked to me a lot about that. And so I make mention of it in these workshops. Because sometimes what I hear in meetings, what I hear people describe when they talk about their drinking, doesn't describe my alcoholism, right? Matter of fact, our book says over and over and over again that if you're an alcoholic of our type, right? The only way I find out if I'm an alcoholic of their type is by reading their description of the alcoholic on page 21. Let's see what it says at the bottom of page 20. It says moderate drinkers have little trouble giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Now, I don't know anybody like that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. As a matter of fact, people like this don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They don't. Why? Because they don't need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. right? It says then we have a certain type of hard drinker. Everybody underline that. This is what Dr. Silkworth just described in the doctor's opinion. Okay. It says it never occurs in the average temperate drinker, this physical craving for alcohol. This is a hard drinker. And my dad was an alcoholic of this type, right? He was a hard drinker. My dad had a DUI in 1973, right? He drank a lot, right? He's what a lot of people would have called an alcoholic, right? But listen to what it says about him. It says, he may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally, right? So he may be physically addicted to alcohol, right? It says it may cause him to die a few years before his time, but if he has a sufficiently strong reason such as ill health, falling in love, or the change of environment or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Although he may find it difficult and troublesome, he may even need medical attention. Everybody underline that. He may even need medical attention. You know what that means? He may need to go to a 30-day treatment center. Right? But the book says that if he has a sufficiently strong reason, such as ill health, falling in love, or the change of environment, right? Consider this. Is coming to AA a change of environment? Yeah, it is, right? You change your environment. You change your friends. You change your habits. And it says that he may be able to stop or moderate, but he may even find it difficult and troublesome. He may even need to go to 30-day treatment. It was pointed out to me by my wise sponsor that there's a difference between alcohol addiction and alcoholism, right? That just because you have an alcohol addiction doesn't mean that you have alcoholism, right? And you know how you treat an alcohol addiction? You go to 30-day treatment, you're detoxed from alcohol, right? And you know what? You walk out the doors, they give you your chip and your book, they say, congratulations, you're now a graduate of the program. We suggest you go to AA. And they don't go to AA. And you know what? They're fine. They don't need no steps, no sponsor, no, no AA program. They don't need nothing. And they're okay. And there's tons of people, because they're described in the book, just like that. Right? As a matter of fact, keep your finger right there and turn to page 109 and 110 in the big book. Page 109, Bill goes into a description a little bit more in-depth about different types of drinkers, the four types of drinkers which some of you may be familiar with. He gives a little bit more 
in-depth description of what the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, and the real alcoholic looks like. He talks about the differentiation between the four cases, right? And it says at the very bottom of 108, number one, your husband may be only a heavy drinker. His drinking may become constant, or he may be heavy only on certain occasions. He may be periodic. Perhaps he spends too much money for liquor. It may be slowing him up mentally and physically, but he does not see it. Sometimes he may be a source of embarrassment to you and his friends. He is positive he can handle his liquor, that it doesn't know harm, that drinking is necessary in business. And listen to what it says. It says he would probably be insulted if he would, were called an alcoholic. Now everybody underline this next line. The world is full of people like him. Back on page 21. And my wife's sponsor said to me, Rob, not only is the world full of people like him, but so is AA. AA is full of people that are hard drinkers. And so what do they do? They come to our fellowship, right? And they think they're an alcoholic, right? And so you know what they do? They hang around and they stay. They camp out. They pitch a tent, right? And they sit in our meetings and they say things like, well, just don't drink and come to meetings. You know why? Because that works for them, right? And the reason that I share this story is because people told me that for my first six years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it just about killed me. Because I tried to do what they said to do. They said, just go to meetings and don't drink no matter what, even if your ass falls off. And if it does, pick it up and bring it to a meeting. And I did that time after time after time. And I would stay sober for three or four days or maybe a week. And then I would get this great idea when I'd get home at night. And my mind would say, this time it's going to be different, Rob. Last time, it was those guys you were hanging out with. They're a bad influence on you, right? Or last time, you know what it was? It was that vodka that did it to you, right? Maybe if you drank beer and wine, you'd be okay, right? Or, you know what, maybe you could go on the marijuana maintenance program. Maybe that would be okay, you know? I tried that for like three years. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I am from California, right? You know, I, I, and that didn't work for me, right? I went to psychiatrists and psychologists. They, get, they put me on medication. That worked for a while. And I like pills, you know? I mean, I like pills, you know? Because they take the edge off. They allow things to be a little more bearable. But eventually, I always know that there's more relief out there. And eventually, I will always go for the thing that gives me more relief, right? You see, because I'm not a hard drinker. The hard drinker, and let me tell you something, these hard drinkers, the people like this, they are a vocal minority in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And you know what they say? Sometimes you'll hear them. They say things like, and you don't need to do all that fanatic crap Rob Mason talks about, right? Just go to meetings and don't drink. And you know why they say that? Because that works for them. But it kills people like me, right? You see, I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And the book's going to tell me that if I'm suffering from the illness of alcoholism, and if you're an alcoholic of my type, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer, right? And that's what I had to have. Now, I was brought a guy over here today. He's been in and out of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for 25 years. You think anybody's ever taken him through the 12 steps? No, right? And that's what we're here to do today. We're here to talk about what is the program of recovering Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Middle of page 21, what about the real alcoholic? And I would ask you, for those of you who are new, to find yourself in here. Find your own experience in this description and see if this describes you. There are 16 indicators of the real alcoholic here. 
It says, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor uh, consumption once he starts to drink. Everybody underline that. Perfect description of the alcoholic. It says, here's the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. Let's have a show of hands here. We'll do a little group participation here. If this relates to you, please raise your hand. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Anybody like that here? He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody like that here? You know, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, a lot of people have heard me share this before. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was an alcoholic. And I'm sure that much of that story was autobiographical, right? As he watched that change come over him, right? And he didn't understand it. So he put it in a fictitious book called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Interesting. It says, he is seldom mildly intoxicated. Oh man, that's me for sure. You know what I'm saying? It says, he is always more or less insanely drunk. Come on, show of hands. More or less insanely drunk. Yeah? He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. That's me, right? <clears throat> but let him drink for a day or so, and he becomes disgustingly and dangerously antisocial. Anybody like that? I mean, I remember at the beginning of my drinking, right? I drank because I wanted to be a part of, right? I wanted to be in the mix, right? But by the end of my drinking, right? We always talk about how glamorous drinking is, right? Oh, drinking's so glamorous, right? The end of my drinking, I was living in an apartment with this girl who had took me in because I had nowhere else to go. I had a blanket over the TV because I was convinced that the police were watching me through the TV set. And I would wait till after dark to walk a mile and a half to the liquor store because I was afraid to drive to the liquor store during the daytime. That's the kind of alcoholism I have, right? That sounds like social drinking, doesn't it? It says, he has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. Anybody here like that? Oh, I could share story after story. I remember in 1987, I'd been unemployed for over a year. I worked in the food and beverage field. And a guy who I had worked for before for five years, he took pity on me. And he said, look, I know you need a job. I know you're in a bad way. He said, so I'm going to put in a good word for you. I can get you a job. He said, so come down on this day. It was like a Monday morning, 9 o'clock, be here. He said, but you got to be sober, right? you got to be sober, right? And you know what? I had every intention. I will sit here and you can put me on a lie detector. And I had every intention of going to that interview sober, right? And the whole weekend went by and I was fine. And the day the interview came and I was so nervous and I was so uncomfortable, right? that I said, maybe I'll just have a couple of drinks just so I can relax and talk, right? Because this job's important. I need this job. I'm in debt. i got nowhere to go, right? And I started drinking, and something happened that I can't explain, right? I can't explain. Because I took a couple of drinks, and there was something within me that demanded attention, right? There was something within me that insisted that I continue to drink, right? And the more I drink, the more powerless I become. Right? And I showed up to the interview. And the guy took one look at me and he said, get out of here. You know? You're drunk. And he gave me that look that non-alcoholics give people like us. Right? Where they just don't understand. Why? 
Because when they want to just say no, they just say no. When they want to not drink, they just don't drink. And they don't understand people like us because they don't get the same reaction to alcohol that I get. It goes on to say, he is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything but liquor, but in that respect he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes and has a promising career ahead of him. He uses these gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself. Then he pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees. And that's a perfect description of my life, the last three years of my drinking before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I would build my life up, and then I would tear it to the ground. right? And then I would go to another city, and I'd build it up again, and then I'd tear it all to the ground. right? It says, he is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around, yet early the next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over the house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. Anybody here like that, by the way? I mean, I'll tell you the truth. Towards the end of my drinking, some of you have heard me say this before. I, I like having it better than I like drinking it. I swear to God, you know what I'm saying? I like just knowing I had it if I needed it. You know what I'm saying? Because by the end of my drinking, right, I wasn't getting that comfortable feeling anymore, right? I often talk about the comfortable zone, right? That when I was early in my drinking, I would try to find this comfortable zone. And I would wake up and I wouldn't be comfortable. So you know what I would do? I would do some alcohol substitutes that we don't talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous to get up into the comfortable zone, right? But you know what would happen to me? Is I'd pass through it into paranoia, you know? So I would use alcohol to come back down into the comfortable zone, right? But I would pass back through that into depression, right? And what began to happen over time through some hideous force is that comfortable zone started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. By the end of my drinking, the last two years of my drinking, the party was over, but I didn't know it. Because all I was doing was getting paranoid and depressed, right? And I was a suicidal, blackout, reclusive drinker. I was homicidal and suicidal. I, I couldn't interact with people. I'd become a loner. And everybody around me had cast me off because I was a hopeless alcoholic. There was nowhere left for me to turn. It goes on to say, as matters grow worse, listen to this, he begins to use a combination of a high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves before he can go to work. Everybody underline that. Are they talking about drugs there? Is that what they're talking about right there? Everybody keep your finger right there and turn to page 7 in Bill's story. We're actually going to start at the very bottom of page 6 where it says, there were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night where the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. Somehow I dragged my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. And this combination, underline that, soon landed me on the rocks. This is the co-founder of the program, right? And we know from Bill's story that Bill Wilson did not hit his bottom until he started mixing sedatives with alcohol. We know that in the description of the real alcoholic on page 22, that oftentimes the real alcoholic will use drugs in conjunction with alcohol, right? As a matter of fact, turn to page 142 real quick. Page 142. First full paragraph 
jump down about five lines. Explain alcoholism the illness. Say that you believe he is gravely ill person with this qualification, being perhaps fatally ill. Does he want to get well? You ask because so many alcoholics being warped and drugged, everybody underline that, do not want to stop, but does he? Back on page 22. If you don't believe me, read Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers on page 32. Okay? Because what Dr. Bob says in his own story is that he didn't want to take the morning drink that he craved. So he turned to what he called high doses of sedatives. And what we know from Dr. Bob's story is that Dr. Bob used sedatives every day for 20 years. So he wouldn't take the first drink in the morning, right? And Dr. Bob would later call that dual addiction, right? So I'm not an alcoholic and an addict or anything like that. You know what I am? I'm a garden variety, regular, old-fashioned alcoholic. And oftentimes the real alcoholic will use drugs in conjunction with alcohol to produce the desired effect. Because I'm the kind of guy that when you give me something that affects me from the neck up, I will always crave a drink of alcohol, right? I'll tell you, Christmas 1987, my family had pity on me because I was in detox for about the sixth time in six months. And they didn't want me to have to spend Christmas in detox. So they came and they picked me up. They took me to their house. And my family started to come, my cousins and aunts and uncles, and they gave me that look that people give people like us. Right? It was that look of, you disgusting pig. How could you do this to your family? You know, look at you, you're pathetic, right? And I got so uncomfortable that I excused myself and I went up to the bathroom and I locked the door and I rifled through the medicine cabinet until I found some Tylenol with codeine and I took a handful of them, right? And something happened within me that I couldn't ignore, right? And I blew out the front door on my way to the liquor store and I got as drunk as I could get and I passed out in some bushes and the police came and picked me up and I spent Christmas Day 1987 in jail. Right? Now, how does that happen to a hip-slicking cool guy like me? You know what I'm saying? You know why it happens? It happens because I'm the real alcoholic of the type that they describe in this book. Right? As my grand sponsor says, you know, that there are different types of people. And you know what? There's a type of person that gets in trouble. They drink a lot. They get in trouble. You know? And they may have some consequences. Maybe they get a DUI. Right? They come to AA. Right? And you know what they do? They say, I've made up my mind. I quit. And they never, ever drink again. Right? And there's lots of people like this, millions of people like that, right? And then there's another kind of guy, he's gone farther than the first guy, right? He's gotten in trouble, but, you know, maybe he's lost a job. Or maybe his family, his wife has left him, or his hu her husband has left her, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe their kids have moved out, you know? Maybe they're in trouble with the law, right? And so they go to, maybe they go to treatment, right? And they make up their mind, they say, that's it, I now see the problem. I understand it now. And I quit. And they never, ever drink again. Right? There's lots of people like that. The book calls them the hard drinker. Right? But then there's the kind of guy like me who's gone farther than the second guy. He has all the same consequences. He's had trouble with his jobs, trouble with his family, trouble with his friend. Right? He's lost job after job. He's in trouble with the law. He's been to treatment. He's been to detox. He's been to therapy. He's been to religion. And he, he understands himself. He's been to treatment. And he says, I've made up my mind. I now know what's wrong with me. And he quits, right? And I quit many times. But the difference is he always goes back to drinking, right? Always. And these are the kind of alcoholics that have baffled scientists and religious people and psychiatrists for a thousand years.
And these are the types of people for whom Alcoholics Anonymous was intended, right? The people who will always quit, but will always go back to drinking. Back in the doctor's opinion, a couple of thoughts before our first break. And we're going to go to Roman numeral XXVIII at the bottom of the page. And remember when they talk about the effect produced by alcohol, they're talking about the effect on the real alcoholic, right? And incidentally, Silkworth's going to tell me right here at the bottom of page XXVII what the nature of my problem is and what the nature of my solution is. Listen to what he says. He says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And remember that I get a different effect than the non-alcoholic, right? I get a completely different effect. It says the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, I admit it's killing me, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. Perfect description of alcoholism. There came a point in my drinking career the last two years that the party was over. The party was over. The problem was everyone else got the memo except me. You know what I'm saying? I was the last one to know that the party was over. And despite all of the things that had happened in my life, despite all of the suffering that I'd had, I still believed every time I drank that it was going to be different. I still believed that it was going to be, somehow I was going to find a way to enjoy and control my drinking. Right? It says, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Listen to this. It says, they are restless, irritable, and discontented, and you can add right in there, shame, fear, guilt, remorse, self-pity, anxiety, and resentment. Okay? Unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes when? At once from taking a few drinks. Right? And so forth tells me right here what my problem is. My whole life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. Before I even picked up my first drink. Right? When I was 13 years old, I had a drink of alcohol, right? And it changed my life because I got the sense of ease and comfort and peace and contentment and belonging. See, it seemed, always seemed to me like I was on the outside of life looking in, right? It always seemed to me that there was insurmountable barrier between me and other people that I could neither comprehend nor understand. It always seemed to me that there was all of you and then there was me, right? And I was on the outside. But I'll tell you, I had a few drinks of alcohol and all of a sudden I felt like I was on the inside for the first. As a matter of fact, I got every promise that we read in the meetings, right? I knew a new freedom and a new happiness, let me tell you, right? I didn't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it, right? Man, I comprehended the word serenity and I knew peace, right? I saw how my experience could benefit others, right? I'm like telling people about stuff, you know what I'm saying? I lost interest in selfish things and gained interest in my fellows. I'm like, I love you, man, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, God, I loved it, right? And you know the interesting thing? Is I remember as that feeling came over me, saying to myself these words, I never want to feel the way I felt five minutes ago ever again because I had found my medicine. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous as two halves, and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous made me one whole. I came to my first drink as two halves, and my first drink made me one whole for the first time in my life. And I loved it. Right? 
I love that feeling. But if you're an alcoholic of my description, as I said, you always go too far because the doctor's already told me that I have this physical allergy and this mental obsession. So my problem is I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And you know what my solution was? The sense of ease and comfort that I got from taking a few drinks. Drinks that I saw the other people who were drinking with me taking with impunity, which means without punishment, right? And they somehow had the ability to drink, and they seemed to drink like I did, but they would, at the end of the night, they'd put it down, they'd go home, they'd wake up the next day, and they'd go to their job or their wife, they'd take care of stuff, and I could never do that, right? Because although I looked like they looked, I didn't drink like they drank. It had a completely different effect on me. It goes on to say, after they have succumbed to the desire again, everybody underline that, and remember that a desire starts in the mind, all action is born in thought, as so many do, and then the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again, this is repeated over and over and over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, everybody underline that, we're coming back to it, there is very little hope of his recovery. And that's what happened to me over and over again. I would be detoxed and I would stay sober as long as I could until I couldn't take it anymore, right? Because you keep me sober for a little while and guess what? I don't become happy, joyous, and free. I become restless, irritable, and discontent. Why? Because I have alcoholism, right? As one of my mentors says, for a guy like me, really my alcoholism starts where the bottle ends, right? And if you're an alcoholic of my description, you see, my problem isn't drinking. My problem is not drinking, right? My problem is that when I'm forced into a state of abstinence, I will eventually become so restless, irritable, and discontent that I have to drink just to maintain my sanity, right? I remember I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and my first sponsor said to me, we're going to go to page 30 after I'm done telling the story and then we're going to take our break. He said, Rob, do you understand step one? I said, yeah, I understand step one. He said, really? He said, well, if you understand it so well, explain it to me, right? For those of you who are new, when your sponsor says, do you understand something, just say no. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a trick. It's a trick. And I said, well, step one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Therefore, our lives had become unmanageable. He said, wrong. That is not what step one says. He said, step one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Then there's a dash. He said, do you see that dash? And I had to admit I had not seen that dash. Right? <laughs> that our lives had become unmanageable. He said, do you know what that means, Rob? I said, no. He said, step one, section A says, I am powerless over alcohol because I suffer from the illness that Dr. Silkworth describes in the doctor's opinion. I have a physical allergy and I have a mental obsession. I have a mind that keeps me going back over and over again to the first drink and a body that ensures that I can't stop once I pick it up. He says, does that describe you? I said, yes. He said, but coupled with that, step one, section B says that my life as managed by me is unmanageable. That not only do I have trouble when I'm drinking in step one, section A, but I have trouble when I'm sober too, step one, section B. And you know what? For a long time I thought that step one, section B 
had everything to do with step one, section A. Let me explain. I thought for a long time that the reason that my life was unmanageable was because I was powerless over alcohol. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, that was true. But you know what? The fact that my life is still unmanageable by me today in step one, section B, has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I'm powerless over alcohol. You see, if you're an alcoholic of my description, what step 1B really describes is the spiritual malady that we're going to get into in the next hour. You see, I have trouble drinking, but I also have trouble being sober and contented and happy. My sponsor explained to me that if I could drink successfully, I'd be out drinking. And if I could stay sober successfully, I wouldn't be in AA. I'd be out living a powerful, manageable life. He said, Rob, the reason that you're here is because you can't handle your drinking, but you can't handle your sobriety either. And he said, we got a name for that. He said, you know what we call that? We call that alcoholism. Page 30, and then we're going to take our break. Page 30, incidentally, this whole chapter, just like the doctor's opinion, is really about the allergy of the body. Chapter 3 is really about the obsession of the mind. It's really the alcoholics in their own words describing what Silkworth has described in the doctor's opinion from their own experience. And we don't have time to go through all the stories in this chapter, but I will tell you that there's four stories in this chapter and they're all very instructive. The first one is the man of 30 who was doing a great deal of spree drinking, right? And his mind told him a lie. His mind told him that his long period of sobriety had qualified him to drink as other men. And he had been bone dry for how long now? Anybody know? 25 years. And I don't think it's by any accident that they put an example in our book of a guy who had been bone dry for 25 years. I've been sober 25 years. Right? And it can happen to me just like it could happen to that guy if I stop doing the things that keep me well, which we're going to talk about. As a matter of fact, some of you know my friend Johnny S. from Central Group, right? Johnny was 29 years sober, but Johnny faded away from Alcoholics Anonymous. Johnny stopped doing the things that kept him well, right? And Johnny ended up drunk, right? Some of you know my friend Kevin H., right? And Kevin was a great member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Kevin helped a lot of people down at the 33rd Street Jail. He did a lot of step work. He knew this book inside and out, right? But Kevin fell victim to the belief that nearly every alcoholic has, that he knew better than everybody else. And so you know what he did? He backed his way out of AA because he was better than everybody in AA. And he got drunk and he died, right? And that's what happens to people like me says at the top of page 30, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless... Everybody underline that. How many is that? That's a lot, isn't it? Countless? Vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will enjoy and control his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. Not was the great obsession. It is the great obsession. Right? And as I always say, if I could rename this chapter, I would rename it The Lie. And the reason I would rename it The Lie is that's really what this chapter is about. It's really about the lie that my mind tells me just before I pick up the first drink. Right? 
It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And here's where we'll end our first session with this next paragraph. You know, people always say, well, we know that step three starts on page 60, where it says this thought brings us to step three, but where are the first two steps, right? Well, here's step one right here in the middle of page 30 in the narrative. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion, everybody underline that, we're coming back to it, that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed. Right? And how do I smash that delusion? There's only one way a guy like me smashes the delusion that I can drink like other people. Through countless vain attempts to prove that I can drink like other people. Right? And let me tell you, I spent a long time trying to convince people around me that I could drink safely. I tried to convince my parents, girlfriends, my brothers, right? probation officer, the lawyer, right? By the end of my drinking, the only person I was trying to convince was myself. And I found countless ways to try to do it. I switched brands, I switched environments, I switched cities, but everywhere I went, there I was, right? And I remember that the, my last drunk, I fell out of a moving car in a blackout, right? And I had woken up that morning and I said, I'm not going to drink today, right? And I went to this little Fourth of July get-together, and the next thing I knew, I went to this little get-together, and the last thing I remember is I found a bottle of vodka, and I remember my hand grabbing it just like that, right? And the next thing I know, I come out of a blackout, and I'm in the hospital emergency room, and I'm strapped down again, right? And I have peed my pants, and I have thrown up all over myself again. And I had charcoal coming out of my nose and my mouth because I had alcohol poisoning again. And I realized that I had woken up this morning determined not to drink. And I remember these thought, this thought came to me. I said, my God, I'm an alcoholic. I'm the guy that they've been describing that I've been hearing about in these meetings. You know, our, we talk a lot in the fellowship about denial, right? I think it's interesting that the word denial does not appear in our book. Our book talks about something even more hideous right here on page 30. It talks about delusion. Right? And the best description of delusion that I ever heard is delusion is a state of mind where you want something to be a certain way so badly that you actually convince yourself it is that way, even when it's obvious that it's not. And that's a perfect description of the last two years of my drinking. Right? I still believed somehow it was going to be different. Right? But I had to concede to my innermost self. Incidentally, for the new people, I would point out that that's different than going to a meeting and saying, Hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. That's not the admission that they're talking about here. The book says that I have to concede, which means to reluctantly acknowledge that I'm an alcoholic. Do you fit the description that they talk about on page 21? Do you suffer from the illness that Dr. Silkworth describes in the doctor's opinion? Do you have that physical allergy that when you start drinking, you can't stop? And an obsession of the mind that tells you every time, this time that it's going to be different? Well, if so, welcome. We'll take a five-minute break. That would be great. I know the breaks are short, and I apologize for that in advance, but uh, 
We have an awful lot to cover. Some of you have been to my uh, big workshop that I do know that we usually do this over a weekend. And today we're doing it in one day. So a lot to cover in one day, right Karen? So we can't touch all the detail that we usually would touch, but you know what? We're going to do our best, right? And I think that the most important thing that we can come away from today with is where the program of recovery is, you know? That the program of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous is, is not in the fellowship, as important as the fellowship is, but that the real recovery program in Alcoholics Anonymous is in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And we're going to start on that note on page 17 of the book. where they begin to talk about the solution. And now that we've talked about the problem, and we've talked about the allergy and the obsession and the doctor's opinion, now that we've talked about that the first step in recovery is conceding to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic on page 30. And I had to make the admission, as it says in chapter 3, I had to make the admission that no matter what I did and how hard I tried, it was never, ever going to get any better for me. It was never going to get better. One of the great truths of Alcoholics Anonymous for a guy like me, if, if you are an alcoholic of my description, and I've seen it time and time again, is it will always get worse. It always gets worse. And I remember many times saying to myself, it can't get any worse. And then it would. You know, then it would. You know, I remember that uh, I do a meeting on Friday nights over in, in Orlando at the uh, the Gore Street Detox, you know. And uh, there's a young guy there last night, and I was kind of a young guy when I came to AA. You know, I like to think I'm still kind of a young guy, but, you know. But I was really a young guy. I was in my 20s when I came to AA, you know, the last time, and, you know. But I'd had enough. You know, and, I, and incidentally, I think it's great all the young people. I see some young people here today. I think it's great that we have all the young people in Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, for the young people, for the benefit of the young people, when I started trying to get sober in the early 80s, right, in California, right, I would go to these meetings, and there wasn't anybody within 25 years of my age at any of the meetings I was going to, right? I remember, I remember as a matter of fact, I remember I went to this one meeting, and there were these two old guys there, right? And, and I walked in the door and they said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I'm here for the A&A meeting. And they said, you're too young to be an alcoholic. And I went, you're right. And out I went. You know, I was like, <laughs> True story, honest to God, you know. And that kept me drunk year after year after year. Because I said to people, well, I went to AA. And they said I was too young to be an alcoholic. They confirmed what I already knew. But you see, what I learned about alcoholism since I came here is that alcoholism doesn't care about how young or old I am, whether I'm male or female, black or white, young or old. It only cares about what happens to me when I drink. And if I start to drink and I have the physical allergy and the mental obsession that they describe in the book, the book says that I'm probably an alcoholic of their type. And that happened for me over and over and over again. And I was at the detox last night and there was this young guy there and he was asking me all sorts of questions in the meeting, by the way, interrupting the meeting. But I took the time to answer him because he reminded me of myself, you know. 
And I remember these AA do-gooders coming to detox when I was there, you know what I'm saying? And they would carry the message, you know. They'd talk to me. And I, I remember one guy saying, you know, who are you kidding? You know, you haven't given it up, you know. You're going to drink again. You know? And he was right, you know. He was right because I hadn't given it up, right. I still had all the answers, right. I still knew best. Because what I learned from one of my mentors is the first thing I get back when I'm forced into abstinence is my judgment, right. Because I begin to think that I know best. And it's so funny that we'll come to Alcoholics Anonymous or we'll come to detox or we'll come to treatment or we'll come to our sponsor desperate and willing to do anything, right? But as Dr. Harry Tebow says in his article on the reemergence of the alcoholic ego, the first thing that begins to happen when we're forced into a state of abstinence is my ego will start to rebuild itself, right? So I'm 30 days sober and all of a sudden, I don't need to listen to you, right? And I start questioning how you're helping me, right? I see it from the guys I sponsor all the time. They ask me for my help. They're desperate, right? 30 days later, they're asking me why I'm asking them to do certain things, right? One of the lessons I had to learn is I needed to stop asking why, because why is a management question. And the third step says I am no longer in management, right? I had to become willing to do whatever it took. Page 17. You'll remember at the end of the doctor's opinion that we read, it said that unless this person can have an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery, right? And what we're going to talk about in this hour really is about what is my solution. Now that I understand I have an allergy and an obsession, now that we've talked a little bit about the, the spiritual malady, which we're going to talk about a little more this hour, now I have to start to say, well, what is my solution? And Silkworth touched on it. He said that unless this period person can have a psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. Silkworth calls it a psychic change. Bill Wilson's going to call it something different. He's going to call it a spiritual experience. Right? They mean exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, at the end of this chapter, Dr. Carl Jung calls it a vast displacement and rearrangement. Right? It means the same thing means a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism, right? Matter of fact, I was talking to a guy on the way over here and he said, well, he said the old cliche, one of the old cliches in AA. He said, well, the only thing I need to change is everything, right? And that sounds good, right? But how do you change everything, right? I didn't know how to change everything. My sponsor pointed out something that should have been obvious to me that wasn't. He said, Rob, when you work the steps, the steps will begin to work you. You don't need to worry about changing everything. All you need to worry about is following the directions. And when you follow the directions, if you do it honestly and thoroughly, you will change. Right? As a matter of fact, somewhere in our book, I believe it says, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Right? Interesting. Page 70 how many people here love, or excuse me, page 17, how many people here love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous? Love the Fellowship of Alcoholics I love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Man, I am a card-carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And as a matter of fact, I often say that I go to more meetings on accident than most people go to on purpose, right? Why? Because I sponsor a whole lot of people, right? And so I always meet them in a meeting, right? So we go to a meeting. Last night I was at a meeting. The night before that I was at a meeting. Today I'm at a meeting all day. Tonight I'll be at a meeting. You know what I'm saying? Because I enjoy going to meetings. 
So if you love the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, this is your page right here, okay? Because it begins by talking about the Fellowship of AA, right? So let's see what it says. It says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. All sections of this country as well as many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. And then he says something interesting. He says, we are people who normally would not mix. Everybody underline that, right? Very important, right? Now, there's lots of things that bring groups of people together, isn't there? Right? If you think about it, right? Sometimes maybe you work at the same place, right? That brings a group of people together, right? Or maybe you belong to the same religion. That brings groups of people together. Or maybe you have a similar interest, right? But what the book is saying is we don't have any of the normal things in common that bring most groups of people together. As a matter of fact, I think it is very safe to say that we're probably the most screwed up bunch in Winter Garden today. Okay? But it goes on to say that there exists among us a fellowship of friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. Everybody underline that. Right? And they're talking about the fellowship of AA. And I don't think anyone would argue that, would we? Right? There is something powerful about being around people who suffer from the same illness that we do, right? There is something powerful about being around people who have recovered from the same illness that I have, right? Who understand. I mean, all of my life, I don't know about you, but all of my life, since I was about that tall, people said the same thing to me. They said, Rob, we don't understand you, right? We do not understand. My friends said that. My family said that. The probation officer said that. The lawyer said that, right? The social worker said that. Nobody understood me, right? And then I came to AA the first time, and I'm telling them about this insane thinking that I have, right? And they said, Rob, we understand, right? And I went, oh, my God. For the first time in my life, I found people that understood me, right? And it was an indescribable feeling, right? There's something powerful about the fellowship of AA. And then he goes on to begin to describe our fellowship and he goes on to begin comparing our fellowship and what we share here today with a ship. Right? Let's see what he says. He says, We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after the rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from the steerage to the captain's table. Everybody underline that. right? And so Bill is comparing our fellowship to this great liner. And not only a great liner, a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, right? And it talks about the steerage and the captains. And for those of you who are not familiar with how a ship worked in the old days, back in the old days in the 30s when they wrote our book, if you needed to get somewhere, you didn't take a plane like we do today, right? You took a boat. And just like today, you can take a plane and you could travel in many different sets. You could travel in first class or coach or economy, you know. In those days, the same thing was true on a ship. And if you needed to get somewhere and you didn't have a lot of money, you know how you'd travel? You'd travel in the steerage section, right? And the steerage section of the boat was way down below the water line, right? And it was hot down there. It was smelly down there. Oftentimes there was rats down there, right? But if you needed to get somewhere and you didn't have any money, that's how you traveled, right? And you know what would happen as you would go up deck by deck by deck on a ship? You know what you'd get? You'd get a little bit better social class, a little bit better economic class, People who had a little bit better education, a little bit more money. Until you got to the top deck. 
And on the top deck of the ship, there was these beautiful staterooms with china and silver and crystal, right? And on that deck, there was a big dining room. And in the dining room, there was a table where the captain would go each night and have his dinner, right? And if you belonged to just the right social class and had just the right amount of money, right, you'd be invited to sit in your tuxedo at the captain's table and have dinner with the captain of the ship, right? Now, why am I telling you this story? Because it is a long way from the guy sitting in the steerage section of the boat having his peanut butter sandwich to the guy who's sitting having dinner at the captain's table, isn't it? Right? They, like us, are people who never should have met. Right? They normally would not mix. But something happens in the moment of disaster. And as I often say, I often think about the Titanic floating around in the North Atlantic one cold winter's night when it strikes an iceberg and starts to sink. And the guy who's in his blue jeans in the steerage section jumps off the side of the boat. And the guy in his tuxedo at the captain's table jumps off the side of the boat. And when they hit that cold water that night, guess what? They had a common problem, didn't they? Right? Now, I wasn't there that night. But I venture to say that while they were in that cold water that night, they didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about who had more money and who had a better education and who had a nicer car, and who lived in a better part of town. The only thing that they were interested in was saving themselves and saving each other. And that's exactly what our fellowship is like, isn't it? We don't care where you are from, what you've done, or where you've been. As the old saying in Alcoholics Anonymous goes, from Yale to jail and park place to park bench, Alcoholics Anonymous is for every single person. And there's no one too bad to be counted not among us, right? It goes on to say, though, that the feeling of having, unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. Everybody underline that. So remember that this whole paragraph is about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, Right? And at the top of the paragraph, they say that there's a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. And we all agree that that was true, right? But here at the bottom of the paragraph, they give us a warning, don't they? They say that that alone, the fellowship alone, the fact that we share in a common peril, that we have the same problem, that that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined, right? And this was the mistake that I made year after year after year. Because what I really believed for a long time, based on what I had heard, was that what we all did in Alcoholics Anonymous is we all got together like we did today, and we get a little social therapy in the fellowship, and that's what keeps us sober. And you know what? I was wrong about that. As a matter of fact, in the doctor's opinion, we didn't read it today, but if you look there, it says... If a doctor's honest with himself, he realizes that, you know what, he doesn't have a solution. That something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. When we get to page 24 of the text, it's going to tell us that if you're an alcoholic of my description, you've probably placed yourself beyond human aid. And that's why, and that's for an alcoholic of my description, right? Maybe that's not true for the hard drinker, but it's certainly true for this guy. And you know how I know that? I know that because I spent six years trying it. I spent six years trying to get sober on the fellowship, and I was unsuccessful at doing so. Right? 
So now that they've told us what the solution isn't, they're going to tell us what our real solution is. Let's see what it says here at the bottom of the page. It says the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. Everybody underline that. Interesting to point out that a common solution will produce a common effect. That means if we all apply the same solution, we're all going to get the same effect, the same result, the same outcome, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. It says we have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Not the news of the fellowship. They've already told us that that alone is insufficient. That that would never have held us together as we're now joined. The great news this book carries is the news of the common solution. Right? Now, you would think that they would tell us right here what that common solution is, wouldn't you? Right? But they don't. Right? Remember that this was the first book Bill Wilson ever wrote. He's not going to tell us for another seven pages what the solution is, right? But a good book will always explain itself. So what he does for the next seven pages is tell us things that will not work to keep us sober, right? Before he tells us what our real solution is on page 25, which we'll get to in a minute, right? Everybody turn to page 44. We're going to hit a couple things here on step two. We've been talking about alcoholism. We've been talking about the illness. Hopefully some of what I said in my story and some of what we talked about in the book helps you identify for yourself whether you're an alcoholic of our type. But if you're new here and you're not still sure, I'm going to make sure that we make the differentiation right now. Right? Because you know what I didn't know? I didn't know for a long time that there's actually a test to determine for yourself if you're one of us. And it's found right here in our book on page 44. Right? And if you're new and you're here and you're not really sure, am I an alcoholic of their type, this will help you decide for yourself whether you need to do the work or not. It says at the top of the page, in the preceding chapters you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic on page 20 and 21. And then it says, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. That's the first question right there. Question number one. If when I honestly want to, I find I cannot quit entirely, right? And I can tell you from my experience, that was always the case for me. I could not quit everything permanently. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I could go to the doctor and get on medication, and if I was properly medicated, I could stay sober for a while, right? Or if I went to treatment. And as I said, I, I, I and listen, don't get me wrong. I love treatment. You know what I'm saying? I think everybody should go to three or four treatment centers like I did. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, I, and the reason that I like treatment so much is because I can stay sober in treatment, right? I can stay sober in treatment, right? The problem is eventually I get out, right? And then my mind starts working on me, right? Because I know that there's relief out there, right? As a matter of fact, we go to the detox, and for those of you who've never been to the Gore Street Detox, right next to the Gore Street Detox, there's an ABC liquor store, right? And I always tell the guys in detox my truth. And the truth was that every time I left detox, I said the same thing. I said, I'm never coming back here again, right? 
And I meant it every single time, right? And then I would end up back in the detox. I would come out of a blackout, and I'd be strapped down in the detox again. And I would say to myself, how did I get here again, right? So I tell the guys in detox, you've got two choices when you leave here. It's either AA or ABC. You know what I'm saying? Those are your two choices, right? Because that was the choice that I made, right? I chose not to come to AA. So I always ended up picking up the next drink because I didn't do anything. So I couldn't quit everything entirely, right? And I tried time after time after time. I tried lots of things. As a matter of fact, I was a Catholic, right? I went to my parish priest, Father Bill, and he prayed with me. You know what I'm saying? And he counseled me, sprinkled me with holy water, right? That didn't help. All I wanted to know is where the communion wine was. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just the kind of guy I am, you know? I mean, I tried reading books. You know what I mean? I read lots of books on how to stay sober and how to change your life and finding your inner power and finding your inner child and all that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I would love to tell you that stuff worked for me, but it didn't. I went to psychiatrists and psychologists. I mean, as a matter of fact, I've probably been to more psychiatrists and psychologists than most people go to their whole life, you know? And you know why psychiatry and psychology didn't work for me? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. It didn't work for me because it gave me an hour to talk about my favorite subject. You know what I'm saying? And my book says that the nature of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, and now I'm going to spend an hour talking about me, and you have to listen because I'm paying you, right? And they say, obviously, you have anxiety and depression. And here's, a, and you know what we're going to do? You need some medication, right? And I'm saying to myself, here's someone who understands. You know what I'm saying? Because that would take the edge off. And I could stay sober, and I would stay sober for a while. But eventually, I would always go back to drinking, right? It goes on to say, or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, Right? And that was always the case for me. I could not predict from my first drink to my last drink what would happen once I started drinking, right? And there were times where I could drink and kind of maintain, you know what I mean? I would get drunk, but I, could, I would stay out of trouble, right? But by the end of my drinking, I'm here to tell you, I was a cop magnet. Let me tell you what, right? I just somehow had this knack for running into the police. I don't know how that happens to a guy like me, right? I had a habit of doing things like leaving my car and just abandoning it, right? I mean, I was the kind of guy that, you know, I would hit on your wife. I would, I would steal your stash and help you look for it. I, you know, I was just that guy. You know what I'm saying? I could not predict what would happen once I would start to drink. And I would find out later on what happened to me and I would be disgusted by the things that I had done. And I would be so ashamed and embarrassed, right? So it says, if when I honestly want to, I find I cannot quit entirely, that's question number one. Or, if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take, it says you are probably alcoholic. So if you're here today and you're not sure, ask yourself those two questions, right? If you can answer yes to A or yes to B, the book says you are probably alcoholic. And then he follows that with what I believe is one of the most overlooked and important concepts in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says... If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Everybody underline that. Which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Not meetings, not my sponsor, not my family, not my friends. That if I'm an alcoholic they, that they describe in this book, if you're an alcoholic of my type, I've got some good news and some bad news. You may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. 
Now, why is that bad news? Because the bad news is if you have not been trying to get a spiritual experience as the result of these steps and you've been killing time in the lobby of Alcoholics Anonymous, wasting time, then guess what? You're not going to get a spiritual experience. As a matter of fact, what does step 12 say? It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of going to a thousand meetings. Is that what it says? It's not what it says, is it? Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of helping others. Is that what it says? No, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, right? How do I get the spiritual awakening? Work these steps. How do I have the psychic change? I work these steps. How do I have the personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism? I work these steps. That's it. Nothing more than that and nothing less than that. So the bad news is, if you're not doing that, okay, then guess what? You are not getting the spiritual experience. But there's good news, too. You know what the good news is? The good news is, is that we have a program of recovery that's designed to do exactly that. Right? It's designed to bring about a spiritual experience. And I can speak to that. And you know why I can speak to that? Because I have had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Because I have done the work. Not only that, but I've taken over 300 men and women through these steps. And I've seen them have the spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. Right? And you know, it's one thing when you see it in yourself, but it's something complete. How many people here sponsor other people? Sponsor other people? A lot of people here. It's something completely different, isn't it, Pete and Lisa? When you see someone else have the same thing happen that happened to you. When you take them down the same path and you give them the same instructions, you see the light come on in their eyes and you see their life change. And all of a sudden they're 30 days sober and they're in a meeting and they're active and they're working the steps, and they're doing the work, and they're in service, and they're doing the things that we do here, and you see the light come on in their eyes for the first time in a long time. There's nothing better than that, right? And you see the spirit within them start to come awake. And that's what this is about. I'm suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And let me tell you something. My first sponsor, Carl H., shared that with me my first day sober when I came back to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988. July 7th. And I'd fallen out of a moving car on the 4th of July and they kept me in the hospital till the 6th. And they let me out. And I didn't have anywhere else to go. Because as those hospital doors opened, those sliding glass doors, I'll never forget it. The first thought that came to my mind was, who am I going to have to lie to, cheat, or steal from to get $3 to get a bottle of Gilby's gin? And then this thought came to me. I thought to myself, there's not one single person I can call. They were all gone. You know, I was the kind of drunk that when I would go to my parents' house, my dad would hide his wallet and my mother would put her purse in the closet because I'm a thief. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. Right? All my friends had abandoned me. They didn't want me around because I was trouble. Right? They didn't want the police knocking on their door. I didn't have anywhere to live. So you know what I said to myself? Through a lack of alternatives, I said, maybe I'll go back to Alcoholics Anonymous one more time. And I'll just give it a try. Because what do I have to lose, right? And my sponsor pulled me aside after the meeting because I had stitches down the side of my head from falling out of this moving car. I was bruised up. I was dirty and filthy. And he said, you know, Rob, he said, I've been watching you. As a matter of fact, you know, I had, I would go to meetings and I'd get three or four days and I'd pick up a white, that's what we do. We pick up a white chip, right? Pick up a white chip, right? I had a whole drawer full of white chips, you know what I'm saying? Matter of fact, I went to a meeting one time to pick up a white chip and this old timer said, you got all the white chips, bring them back. You know what I'm saying? We need them, you know? And I did. I had a whole stack of them, you know? So I brought them back. 
And my sponsor said, look, I've been watching you for months come in and out and in and out and in and out of here, right? He said, and I got some news to share with you, Slick. That was my name for the first six months, Slick, right? He said, meetings of the fellowship may be enough for some people, but they're not enough for you, right? Because you are an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And he said, and you're one of those guys that's going to have to have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, or you're not going to make it. And you're going to die of alcoholism. And you know what? Thank God that that guy saved my life by telling me that. Because I'd been around the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous for six years, and nobody had ever shared that information with me. Nobody had ever taken the time to tell me that if I be alcoholic of the type that's described in this book, I may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And if you're sitting here today and you be an alcoholic of the type that I've described this morning, you too may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And we have a program of recovery that's designed to give us exactly that. Let's turn to page 24, please. As I said in the introduction, Bill will begin to describe for us some of the things that will not work in keeping me sober, right? Let me ask a question, because we hear this in the film. How many people have heard that if you have the thought of a drink, think through the drink? How many people have heard that? Think through the drink, right? I've heard that, right? We say that in meetings all the time. As a matter of fact, we stay stuff in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I hear all the time, because I listen, and I compare it to what's in this book right here, right? I compare it to what's in this book, right? Because we know that this book is the program of recovery, right? How many people have heard that you know what, that willpower will keep you sober. I've heard, I've heard people say that, right? You gotta have, you gotta have will, the will to not drink, right? I've heard people say that, right? How many people think that as they sit here today, they can simply choose not, I heard people say that all the time. Today I choose not to drink. How many people heard somebody say that, right? I hear that stuff all the time, right? Well, let's see, because I'm an alcoholic of the type they describe what it says here on page 24 about that, okay? At the top of the page it says, at a certain point, in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into the state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Everybody underline that. The most pow- And I came here with a powerful desire to stop drinking. And I continued to drink. And you know why? Who can tell me the only requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous? The desire to stop drinking. And you know what I thought for a long time? I thought that the only requirement for membership was also the only requirement for sobriety. Right? That the only thing that I needed to stay sober was a desire to stop drinking. And you know what I found out? That I was completely wrong about that. That there were other action I was going to have to take if I wanted to stay sober. It says the tragic situation has arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. And here comes this funny italic writing. It says the fact is that alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Everybody underline that. So I cannot choose not to drink. And it always cracks me up when I hear somebody with long-term sobriety, which is usually about three years, who tells me that uh, today they choose not to drink, right? You know why that cracks me up? Because I'm a real alcoholic, right? And I'm here to tell you, if I stop doing the things that keep me well on a daily basis, eventually the choice to drink will happen, right? Because I would observe that nowhere after this where it says I've lost the power of choice in drink, Does it say, Rob, you've now reached a level of higher understanding. Today you can choose not to drink. I haven't found that page in our book. But you know what I can choose to do? 
I can choose to do this, right? I can choose to do this. And when I do this, God removes my problem, right? It says our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times, not all the time, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, we are without defense against the first drink, right? So will thinking through the drink keep me sober? I'm unable to bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. I can't remember back, all the way back to yesterday to keep me sober today. That's what this is saying. And that's happened for me over and over again, right? So how is the memory of the suffering of what happened to me 25 years ago going to keep me sober today? Right? You see, the memory of my last drink is insufficient to keep a guy like me permanently sober. You know why? Because human beings are blessed or cursed with a thing called dynamic memory. Dynamic memory is the, the mind's ability to diminish painful experiences and enhance pleasurable experiences. And that happened for me in real life, time after time, as I would be forced into abstinence. And as the days would go by, the suffering and humiliation of what happened to me last time would get smaller and smaller. And the memory of all the good things that happened to me when I drank would get bigger and bigger, right? Until the day would come where I wouldn't remember anything about what alcohol did to me. I would only remember what alcohol did for me, right? It says the almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. Why? Because if these thoughts occur, they are hazily supplanted or overridden by the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure, the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Everybody underline that. Anybody here ever put their hand on a hot stove? Anybody here ever do it twice? Didn't think so. Okay. I remember when I was about nine years old, my mother had one of those station wagons with the wood paneling on the sides. You know those, right? Back in the 80s, 70s, late 70s. And I remember she came home from, from a shopping trip one day and she had parked the car in the driveway, right? She was unloading the groceries and she left the motor running, right? And so I looked down, I'm about that tall, and I looked down and I see the tailpipe vibrating like that. And I said to myself, you know, I bet I could just reach right out there and grab that tailpipe and stop it from vibrating like that. So I reached my little hand out and I grabbed it just like that. And let me tell you something. From that day till this, I have never again had an obsession to grab a tailpipe. <laughs> Right? It burned me so bad my hand was fused like that for about a week, right? Because it fused my skin right in here, right? And I'll tell you, it hurt me so bad. But here's the interesting thing is alcohol burned me that bad and worse time after time after time after time, right? But I would always go back to it, right? I would always go back to it. It says. The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how. Another way of saying that is, this time it's going to be different. How often some of us have begun to drink in this nonchalant way, and after the third or fourth, pounded the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sakes, how do I ever get started again, only to have that thought supplanted with, well, I'll stop on the sixth drink, or what's the use anyhow? Here comes the important part. It says, when this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual Without, with alcoholic tendencies, he has probably placed himself beyond human aid. Everybody underline that. So let me ask you a question. If I'm an alcoholic that they describe in this book, I am beyond human aid. And if I am beyond human aid, let me ask you a question. Will my sponsor keep me sober? Nope. Will my friends keep me sober? Nope. 
Will my wife or husband keep me sober? Will meetings of the fellowship of AA alone keep me sober? No, they will not. Not if you're an alcoholic of my type. Now, they can help, right? My sponsor can help. My friends can help. Meetings can help. And if you're new, I suggest you go to a whole lot of meetings, right? But here's the thing. If you're an alcoholic of my type, right? I need the fellowship, which is one element of the cement. And I need the program, which is the real cement. And the whole idea in Alcoholics Anonymous is this. That those two things will overcome my individual problem and I will be able to recover from alcoholism. Does that make sense to everybody? But I have to have both. And I spent six years leaning on the fellowship and was unable to stay sober until I did the work. Right? Top of page 25. Now he's going to tell us what our real solution is. Incidentally, the rest of this chapter from page 25 to the end of the chapter is all about one thing and one thing only. It's all about spiritual experience. Now, I talk a lot about spiritual experiences. As a matter of fact, page 44 tells us I'm suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Not my friends, not my family, not my meetings, right? None of that stuff. As I said, it's all good, but none of them is sufficient for a guy like me to overcome alcoholism, right? And why do I talk so much about spiritual experience? Because it's a life-changing, life-altering, life-saving thing. And if you're an alcoholic of my type, it's my only way out, right? Now, if that's true, let me ask you something. Why don't we tell new people that, right? I mean, I go to lots of meetings, right? Lots and lots and lots of meetings. And we talk about all sorts of stuff, don't we? We talk about unity. We talk about the dance next Saturday night. We talk about the meetings. You know, we talk about all But we don't share with people the one thing they need to know if they be a real alcoholic. Hey, Slick, if you're an alcoholic of our type, I got some bad news for you. You're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And the reason that I talk about spiritual experience is it's covered again and again and again and again in our book. And as I said, the last half of this chapter is all about spiritual experience. I would observe that in this whole chapter entitled, There is a Solution, okay, meetings aren't mentioned once. Right? I've often observed that if meetings were my solution in Alcoholics Anonymous, we'd have a one-page book and it would say, Go to Meetings. Right, But we don't. As a matter of fact, nowhere in our literature does it say that meetings are my solution. Meetings can help. Meetings can support. But where the real work is done is inside. And it's done through the 12 steps. It says at the top of page 25, there is a solution. And now they're going to tell me what my solution is. Now pay close attention to the next line. It says almost none of us like. Let's stop right there. Right? I remember when I came to AA, my sponsor said, you're going to have to do, he said, he said, Rob, do you have a big book? I said, I said, yes, I do. He said, well, you're going to read it, right? And he asked me the question I've asked many new people. He said, do you know how to read? And I can tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous was the first book that I had ever read, right? I failed high school. I dropped out of high school in the 10th grade because I didn't know how to read. And I learned how to read by reading the book Alcoholics Anonymous. True story, you know? And my sponsor would sit and he would read it with me because I said, I kind of know how to read, right? And he would help me and he would explain it to me, right? He said, you're going to read it. He said, and in that book, there's 12 steps, right? And we're going to work those steps, right? And he said, and there's a candlelight meeting at the Concord Fellowship and you're going to be there every night at 10 o'clock because that's the meeting that I go to. And because I go there, I want to see you there. And you know, by the way, these sponsors for the new people, they have spies. You know what I'm saying? They, they really do, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I wouldn't go to the meeting because I knew he wasn't going to be there. 
And he'd call me the next day. He'd be like, I heard you weren't at the meeting last night, you know? I'm like, what the hell? They're watching me, you know what I mean? Oh, you know? And he said, and he said, and Rob, and quit being an asshole. Nobody likes you around here, you know? And I said, and, and, and you know why? And you know what I found out later is there was a reason I was an asshole, right? Because I had untreated alcoholism, right? And you forced me into a state of that sobriety, and I don't become happy, joyous, and free, right? I become restless, irritable, and discontent, and I take that out on the people around me because I don't know what to do, right? And so I did all the things that he said to do, right? It says almost none of us like the self-searching. And where do we do self-searching in AA? Step four, right? Step four, right? The leveling of our pride. And I'm here to tell you there's two steps more than any others that will level your pride. And that's step five and step nine, right? And the confession of our shortcomings, which is steps five, six, and seven. Or another way to paraphrase that is steps four through nine. The middle steps of our program. The action steps of our program. There is a solution. And what is the solution? The self-searching in step four. The leveling of my pride in five and nine. The confession of shortcomings in steps five, six, and seven. Which the process requires. It's not optional. It's required for its successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. Where would we see that? We would see that in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what drove me to the 12 steps was that I would go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor and the old timers that were there had that twinkle in their eyes. It wasn't what they said. It was how they lived their lives and what they did. It's that they didn't mind coming across town to pick me up. That they would spend their time and drive me home at night because I didn't have a car. That they took me in. That they made me part of their AA family. And that's what attracted me. And they said, Rob, we have a solution for you. And I saw that it worked in them. And even though I was hopeless, they gave me hope. It says, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it, when therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved. There was nothing left. Not 90 meetings in 90 days. Not wait two years. There was nothing left but for us to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven. And we have been rocketed. As Bill says in his stories, we have been launched into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. You'll remember on page 17, I said that a common solution will produce a common effect. Everybody remember that? And now that they've told us what our solution is at the top of page 25, steps 4 through 9, that's what gives me the spiritual experience. Now they're going to tell me what the common effect of that solution is right here in the middle of the page. It says the great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, that's my life, towards our fellows, that's all of you, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could, everybody underline this, never do by ourselves. Everybody underline that. Why? How many people here have heard that AA is a self-help program? Anybody here ever heard that? What does that last line say? That we could never do by ourselves. AA is not a self-help program. As a matter of fact, on page 45, it says that lack of power is my dilemma. That I have to find a power by which I could live, but it has to be a power greater than me. I do not have the power to keep me sober. I do not have the power to keep me happy. And I do not have the power to keep me sane. 
Therefore, I must find a power greater than myself. And when I find a power, the power solves the problem. The power gives me the intuitive thought. The power changes my life. Now, I was one of those intellectual alcoholics. My sponsor still says I'm an intellectual alcoholic. You know what I'm saying? He says, you think too much, right? But I wanted to know why. I said, I said to my sponsor, okay, 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 I get it. 439 is my solution. I get it. I said, but why? Why is it that 439 is my solution? Why is it that 439 changes my life? Why is it that 439 gives me this spiritual experience, right? And he said, there is a reason. And he explained it to me. He said, Rob, you're only going to have three relationships in your life, right? And it's talked about right here, right? I'm going to have a relationship with myself. I'm going to have a relationship with God. And I'm going to have a relationship with others. That's the only three relationships I'm ever going to have. And he explained to me that once I make the decision in step three, and he explained to me further that really the decision I make in step three is a decision to apply action, okay? He says four and five is what clears up our relationship with ourselves, right? I observe and identify what's wrong with my defects of character in step four, and then I share those with another human being. As a matter of fact, when we get to page 75 after lunch, it's going to say that once I've taken the fifth step of holding nothing, I can be alone at perfect peace and ease. I had made peace with myself, right? Step six and seven clear up my relationship with God. If you read that seven-step prayer, it says, God, I'm now ready that you should have all of me, good and bad. Take away every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Steps eight and nine clear up my relationship with my fellows, right? So the whole process of four through nine and the reason that four through nine is my common solution is because when I work four and five, it straightens up my relationship with me. When I work six and seven, it clears up my relationship with God. When I work eight and nine, it clears up my relationship with others. And then guess what happens? That pipeline to God that's clogged with self-will becomes clear and the sunlight of the Spirit can shine through. And I have this spiritual experience. And as long as I continue that in steps 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, I know that I never have to drink again. Right? Turn to page 29. going to hit a couple things here before our break. Bottom of page 28, we're going to start. It says, In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism as we understand it. And that's chapter uh, 3, which we touched on in the last session. It says, Then a chapter addressed to the agnostic, which is chapter 4. It says, Many who are in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a... Spiritual experience, which we know is necessary for permanent sobriety, right? And then it says, further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we have recovered. Everybody underline that. Clear-cut directions. Now, you know, I thought for a long time, and there's a movement within AA that wants us to believe that there are as many ways to work the AA program as there are people in it, right? And that's not what our book says. As a matter of fact, one of the things I love when people say is, well, the book Alcoholics Anonymous is open to interpretation, right? Oh, I love that. I love that, right? Because I don't know how you interpret clear-cut directions, right? But I know how I interpret it, right? As a matter of fact, I love when I go to a big book meeting and it says big book meeting in the schedule, and what it really is is it's a discussion around the big book, right? 
It's really somebody reads a sentence or a paragraph and then everybody goes around the room and says, well, let me tell you what that means to me. Okay? Because you know what? I really don't care what it means to you. Okay? I care what it meant to the person who wrote it. Because here's the thing about the language that we have. We have a language and the words have meanings. And you can't take a word or a phrase, attach whatever meaning you want to it, and call that the truth. That's why we have a language. Okay? So I care what the, re the, the writer of the words meant. Okay? Because that's the purpose of a textbook. The purpose of a textbook is to convey from the mind of the writer to the mind of the reader. And we all may have different experiences, but the program of recovery is the same. And that's why sometimes it's dangerous when I carry the message, but I'm really carrying the mess. Because I'm not carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm carrying my message. And the reason I'm here today is not to carry Rob Mason's message. The 12 steps says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message, not mine. Right? Let's turn to page 45. First full paragraph says, lack of power, that was our dilemma. Everybody underline that. We're coming back to it. Jump over to page 44 in the middle of the page. Second full paragraph. Says, to one who feels he's an atheist or an agnostic, such an experience, that would be a spiritual experience, seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And over and over and over again, it makes mention of this in our book, if you were an alcoholic of our type, if you're an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. It says, to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. Everybody underline that, right? So, as one of my mentors said, you can have what's behind door number one. You can be doomed to an alcoholic death. That's what's behind. That's your prize behind door number one, right? Or you can have what's behind door number two, right? You can live life on a spiritual basis. Now, I don't know about any of you. I know some of you in here. I know some of you in here pretty well. And I don't know how many of you have ever seen anybody die an alcoholic death, right? But let me tell you something. I've seen it more times than I wish to recount, okay? And to die an alcoholic death is not a pleasant way to die, right? As a matter of fact, most of the time when you die an alcoholic death, you die alone, right? You die miserable. And everyone that you ever cared about or loved is glad you're gone. I remember I went to the hospital to counsel the family of a guy that I had tried to work with in the Salvation Army many, many years ago. And I went there because the guy had died of alcoholism, right? And I remember talking to his family and they said, Rob, you know what? Thank you for all you tried to do to help the guy. You know, we appreciate you being here. But the truth of the matter is we're glad it's how sad how sad so you can have that okay you can have that behind door number one or you can live life on a spiritual basis now you would think that that would be a pretty easy decision wouldn't you you can have this great alcoholic death over here that I just described right Vanna tell him what he's won you know it's like <laughs> Or you can live life on a spiritual basis, right? But the book says, oddly enough, that for a guy like me, that isn't always an easy alternative to face. It's like, well, how bad is that alcoholic death really, you know? How bad is it really, you know? And you know why it's not an easy alternative to face? I'll tell you why. Because nobody wakes up in the morning 
and says, today I'm going to die an alcoholic death. Right? We always think we're going to be the exception to the rule. We always think that somehow we're going to find a way to do it differently. I know Pete used to sponsor a guy out there in celebration. The guy resigned from AA because he had a better way. Right? What do we do? We wish him luck. Right? We wish him luck. But if he is an alcoholic of our type, he will find his way back to Alcoholics Anonymous or alcohol will kill him. Right? Because as I said in my last talk, I've got two choices. It's either AA or ABC. One way or another, I will find a solution. I will either find a spiritual solution or I will go to the thing that gives me temporary relief from that condition. Right? I will find a way to get temporary relief from my spiritual malady, which for me is always found in a bottle. And so at the top of page 45, it says, lack of power, that was our dilemma. You know, I thought I knew what a dilemma was. A dilemma, I thought, was a bad problem. What I found out later on is a dilemma is not actually a bad problem. A dilemma is a problem with two equally unpleasant alternatives, right? And what are the two equally unpleasant alternatives? Well, they just told us on page 44. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis. Those are my two choices. I would point out that nobody chooses to die an alcoholic death. I have never worked with anybody who chose and said, you know what, I choose the alcoholic death. Here's the interesting thing about the two alternatives. Is if I don't choose what's behind door number two, guess what door number one? Door number one is what I call the default position. What that means is if I don't choose a spiritual way of life, I automatically get what's behind door number one. Right? We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Shortest sentence in the big book, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? And that's really what this book is about, it says. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Not my problem with alcohol. My problem being lack of power. They just told me that my problem is lack of power. That's my dilemma. And I have to find a power greater than myself. As I started this session with this morning, if my problem is powerlessness, I need power. If my problem is unmanageability, I need management. And that's what the rest of this book from page 45 on is all about. As a matter of fact, from page 45 on, they're not going to talk about the illness of alcoholism anymore. right? The book says on 44, we hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. They're not going to talk about that anymore. And if you read the first three chapters of the book in the doctor's opinion, and you're not sure about the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic, go back to the beginning and read it again. Right? Because from here on out, they're going to talk about where and how we are going to find this power. From here on out, they're going to talk about the clear-cut directions on how to recover. You know, I'm a chef. I understand a little something about clear-cut directions. And you know what I know for sure? I know that if I have a recipe and you like the recipe, I'll give you the recipe. And you can take your recipe and you can go home to your kitchen. But suppose you take my great recipe that you like so much and you start to change the recipe. Are you going to get the same recipe that I got? No, you're not, right? And here's the interesting thing about it. We have a book of recipe. We have clear-cut directions, right? But the interesting thing is, is if I don't do anything with the directions, if I just read them, and there are people that believe that if you just read this book and understand it just right, Right? That that's enough. And I'm here to tell you something. AA is not about knowing. AA is about doing. Right? 
AA is a doing program. As a matter of fact, I was on my way over here with Jimmy. Jimmy and I were talking this morning. Has anybody here, now I'm not going to put, I'm going to put some people on the spot here because this is a program of rigorous honesty now, okay? How many people here have ever been on a diet? Have you ever been on a diet? Ever been on a diet? I've been on a diet. I'm on a diet right now. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Now, how many people here have ever read a diet book, right? Read a diet book? Okay, I've read diet books, right? And here's the interesting thing, and I apply to the AA programs. Like, let's say I go get a great diet book, right? And I read it cover to cover. And man, I am just so inspired, right? And I can quote things out of it, and I can tell other people what they should do to be on their diet, right? But I don't actually do anything. Am I going to lose any weight? No, I'm not. And the same thing is true with the book Alcoholics Anonymous. If I don't do something with it, if you take my recipe and you go home and you study that recipe, you can know that recipe backwards and forwards. You can recite it from memory, right? But guess what? If you don't actually make the recipe and eat it, you're still going to be hungry, aren't you? Right? Interestingly enough. Page 55, and we'll take our break. You know, I thought for a long time that God lived far, far away. And you know what I found out? I found out that the reason I never found God is because I'd been looking in the wrong place the whole time. Right? And it's going to tell me right here on page 55 four times where I'm going to find God. Right? It says, Yet we have been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems. They said that God made these things possible, but we only smiled. Uh, where am I? We had seen spiritual beliefs but like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. And then he says, actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Everybody underline that. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Right? So God is in me. Right? So if I have a God deep down within me, do I have a distant God or a personal God? I have a personal God. Right? And not only does it say that God's within me, but it says that God is within you too, right? And you know what my first sponsor said? He said, you know what that means, Rob? That means that I need to treat you like your God. I need to honor the God within you. I need to respect the God that God put in you, the spark that he put in there. You know, I don't know about you, but ever since I was a little kid, I had this experience. I had this little voice in my head, right? And you know what he used to say? He used to say, you better not do that. You better not do that, right? And I thought I was the only one. And I didn't tell anybody about that voice because I had an aunt that heard voices and they took her away. You know what I'm saying? But I believe what the 12 by 12 says. I believe that I, I was born with that spark of God within me. Right? But listen to what it says. It says, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscure. Everybody circle that, which is another word for blocked. Right? By calamity by pomp, or by worship of other things. But in some form or other, it is there. And I'm here to tell you, a long time ago before I came to AAA, I, was born, I believe I was born on four planes of existence. Spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical. Right? And a long time ago, I shut myself up. Right? Why? Because I had problems in my life. Calamity. Pomp. Right? Self-will. Worship of other things. Oh, God, it gives us a whole list of things on 54 that we worship. People, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves, right? And it was pointed out to me that the word worship is an interesting word, right? 
The word worship means to obsessively focus my attention on. That's what the word worship means. So if you want to know what you worship, okay, close your eyes and picture your life like a pie chart, right? And the thing that you spend most of that pie chart thinking about, that is what you worship, right? Maybe it's your job, right? If you spend 99% of your time thinking about your job, and 1% of your time thinking about sex and money, then you worship your job, okay? If you spend 99% of your time thinking about him or her, then they are, in fact, what you worship, right? And that's okay with God, right? God doesn't care. If I want to put something between me and God, that's okay with God, right? That's okay. He doesn't care, right? I seek God for me, not him, right? And the problem is, is when I put something between me and God, I have just put something between me and God, right? And now you know what happens? Is I will live in the shadow of that thing that I have just put between me and God, right? And as a result of that, I block myself off from God. I shut myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit, right? It goes on to say on page uh, 55, we finally saw that faith in some kind of a God was part of our makeup. Second time they told me. Just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality, capital G, capital R, where? Deep down within us. And when do we find it? In the last analysis. Right? Not in the first analysis. After I have looked everywhere else, and I did. I looked everywhere else for God. I looked everywhere else for a spiritual way of life. I looked everywhere else for peace and serenity. Under every rock, under every skirt, under every... I mean, I'm telling you, right? And it was insufficient for me. And when I was completely done and broke, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally, I came here. And you said, Rob, we have a program of recovery and you can have the best a life better than you could ever imagine. And I would love to stand here and tell you that I believe that that was going to happen for me. But I was a skeptic. A cynic. And I said, it may work for all of you, but I don't think it's going to work for me. But through a lack of alternatives and having nowhere else to go, I became willing to take actions that I did not believe in. I became willing to do things I did not agree with. And so I started working these steps. And lo and behold, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened for me. Right? That the spirit within me came awake. And we talk about spiritual awakening. What is a spiritual awakening? It's quite simply the spirit within a person coming awake. My spirit wasn't dead. My spirit had been asleep. And it had been asleep for a long time through pomp and worship of other things, self-will, calamity. And somehow by working these steps for reasons that we're not quite sure, we don't quite understand, that when I do these things and I follow these directions and I do exactly what the book says, somehow that spirit within me comes awake. And I follow the recipe for recovery, and I've seen it again and again and again. Turn to page 15 in Bill's story. Actually, I take that back. We're going to end with that. Let's turn to page 47. says in the middle of the page, we need to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, that's for the atheist, or am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves? 
As soon as a man can say that he does believe or is even willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he is on his way. On his way to what? On his way to a spiritual experience. And as we found step one on page 30, we find the essence of step two right here on page 47. Do I now believe? That's for the agnostic. Or am I even willing to believe? That's for the atheist, that there is a power greater than myself. And as soon as a man could say that he does believe or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him he's on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. Page 15. And we'll end with this. You know, if you're here today and you're here and you were driven here because of alcoholism or you were driven here because of untreated alcoholism, because my problem is not drinking, my problem is sobriety. My problem is that when I'm forced into a state of abstinence, my life is unbearable sober, right? There's some good news. Bottom of page 15 says, We have commenced to make many fast friends, and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. Have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. Feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and their communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. And that's been my experience as a result of finding a power greater than myself. I have a life better than I could have ever imagined. You know, in the book, in the fourth chapter, it talks about scientific education. And Bill was a, kind of a scientist. He believed in Scientology, you know. As a matter of fact, he followed Scientology for a long time before they called it Scientology, right? Back in then it was called Scientific Christianity, Emmett Fox and all that, right? And he later became a Catholic later in his life. But in Bill's story, he talks about, you know, were we not the spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation, you know? And we would involve in, engage in windy arguments to prove that this world had no God, you know? And I always close this session by talking about the experience of a guy who was a pretty smart guy, a guy by the name of Albert Einstein, right? And what most people don't know about Albert Einstein is Albert Einstein actually was raised an atheist by his parents, right? But he became a believer later in life. And you'd say to yourself, why would a guy who's so smart like Albert Einstein, who grew up with scientific schooling, probably I would say safe to say, smarter than most of us in here, right? Why would he go from being an atheist to believing in God? There must have been some compelling reason. Right? And Albert Einstein used to tell this story, right? Because one of the things that Albert Einstein did through his research as he developed his very famous theory on relativity and how the universe worked was he began to see that there had to be a rhythm and a purpose and an, and an intelligence somehow. And he said if you were to take a watch and take it apart and put all the parts in a glass jar, it would be safe to say, you put the lid on it, it would be safe to say, that you'd have everything in that glass jar to build a watch, right? Now, there's an old theory about how the universe, that scientists like to push down our throats about how the universe came to be. It's called the Big Bang Theory. Anybody ever heard that, right? Big Bang Theory? And essentially, the theory is that everything existed that we needed to create life, 
And so one day there was this big bang in the universe and everything sort of came together and created life as we know it as time went by and there was evolution and so forth. And what Albert Einstein said is that's kind of like the theory of taking the watch, taking it apart, putting it in the glass jar, right? And clearly you have everything in the jar to create the watch. And he said, and take that jar and shake it and shake it again and shake it again and see if you get a watch, right? He said, unfortunately, what he realized as he developed this theory of relativity of how the universe worked is that there had to be some sort of intelligence to put the universe together that things were too precise. And like the watch, in order to put the watch together, you have to take the lid off. And you have to take some sort of intelligence and put it all together. And that's what brings us to Alcoholics Anonymous. The knowledge that we alone are insufficient. That I alone cannot solve my problem. That self cannot overcome self. And I tried year after year after year for my self-will to overcome my problem. And I'm here to tell you, if self-will had worked for me, you'd have a different speaker today. For those of you who are new, Alcoholics Anonymous has some good news and some bad news. The good news is that we have a way of life, as I said, that is infinitely better than anything you can imagine. The bad news is it doesn't work nearly as fast as three shots of tequila. We'll take a five-minute break. <laughs> to cover before lunch. As usual, I've gone too long and uh, I'm behind, so I'm going to apologize for that. We're going to start on page uh, 52 of the text, page 52, because we've talked about the problem. We talked about the powerlessness, the unmanageability of my life. We've talked about a little bit about the solution, the idea of this power greater than myself and where and how we're going to find this power. But we haven't really talked about this idea of why I need to find this power. I mean, obviously, we know that lack of power is my dilemma, and I have to find a power by which I can live. That's good enough reason, right? Obviously, we know that I cannot solve my own problem, my own alcoholism. But there's another reason. And the reason that I have to stay sober is found on page 52. Because I don't know about you, and I don't know what happens to you when you're sober, but I know what happened to me over and over and over again, right? As one of my mentors said, for a guy like me, for a real alcoholic, getting, getting sober is like driving down the road in this station wagon. And when you're an active alcoholic, you always run into stuff as an active alcoholic that you don't want to deal with. So you know what you do? You throw it in the back of the station wagon, right? And I was in active alcoholism, and I, didn't, I, I owed the IRS money. And I didn't want to deal with that. So you know what I did? I threw it in the back of the station wagon, right? And then there was my parents. Oh, God, I treated them terribly. You know, I ripped them off time and time again, and I felt horrible about that. So you know what I did? I threw it in the back of the station wagon, right? And then there were all those girls, and I mistreated those women, right? And I had some really great women that tried to help me, right? And I felt terrible about that, and I didn't want to deal with it, so I threw it in the back of the station wagon, right? And then there was the probation officer. I didn't show up for my probation. I knew I was going to jail. I didn't want to deal with that, so I threw it in the back of the station wagon. So pretty soon, you're riding around with all this stuff in the back of the station wagon, right? And for a guy like me, getting sober is like slamming on the brakes at 80 miles an hour. And all that stuff in the back is on top of me in the front seat, right? And that's how it felt like to me time after time after time. And it's talked about right here on page 52. As a matter of fact, at the top of page 52, if you have a pen, you can write these words. Spiritual malady equals untreated alcoholism 
which also equals unmanageability. All three of those terms mean the same thing. The spiritual malady, the untreated alcohol, what we call untreated alcoholism, and unmanageability. They all mean the same thing, right? And that's how I live my life. And that's how I live my life sober time after time after time after time. Because as the doctor would say, I would be forced into abstinence, right? And I would get sober, and I would stay sober as long as I could until I couldn't take it, and then this is repeated over and over and over. But here's why I drank right here. As a matter of fact, if you want to know where you are in your spiritual walk today, right now, I try to always bring things current, okay? Ask yourself how you're doing in these areas right here on page 52 today, okay? Let's see what it says here. It says, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to point, change our point of view. We were having trouble with our personal relationships. Anybody here have trouble with personal relationships? Show of hands, please. Thank you. Okay. We couldn't control our emotional natures. Anybody feeling a little emotional today? A little emotional? Yeah. That's honest. We were prey to misery and depression. Anybody here get any misery and depression going on? We couldn't make a living. That's an interesting one. See, because I make a lot of money today. I've been blessed with a good job. That's a blessing, right? But as my sponsor pointed out to me in early sobriety, that being, being able to make a living doesn't just mean making a lot of money. It means being responsible with the money that God has entrusted to me. Right? As a matter of fact, where I got sober in California, there's a, a group maybe some of you have heard of called the Pacific Group. Okay? It's the biggest AA meeting in the world. Okay? They have over 1,500 people every Thursday night at the big speaker meeting there. Okay? And they also have a finance meeting there that meets. Okay? And most of the people that go to the finance meeting are people with 20 years or more. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. That's what it tells me. Right? It says, we had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of any help, of any real help to other people. Now, I would observe that all of these things are symptoms of the spiritual malady of untreated alcoholism or what we call the unmanageability in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, is alcohol mentioned anywhere in here? No, it's not, right? And as has been pointed out many, many, many times in Alcoholics Anonymous in the fellowship, it's only the first half of step one deals with alcohol. The rest of it is about changing my way of life and my way of thinking. You know, it's often been said that Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of action. How many people here have heard that saying? Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of action, right? As a matter of fact, we have a chapter in our book called Into Action, which we're going to get to after lunch, Right? But have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is Alcoholics Anonymous a program of action? Right? Why? Because, and there's a reason why. Right? And that's what we're going to talk about after lunch day. Actually, we're going to start talking about it right now when we get into step three. Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of action, not because it sounds good, but because I have to act my way into better thinking. That's what we do here. If you go to most psychiatrists and psychologists, and this is what they told me year after year, Rob, if you change your thinking, your actions will change. And that didn't work for me. But when I came to AA, they said, no, Rob, change your action and your thinking will change. Because when I start acting differently, when I start taking different action, guess what happens? If you do that over a long enough period of time, you take a different action, your thinking will begin to change. And when your thinking begins to change, your feelings will begin to change. And when your feelings begin to change, your life will begin to change. 
and the lives of the people around you will begin to change too. And that's why Alcoholics Anonymous is a program of action. Because I have to act my way into better thinking. And that starts with step three. Turn to page 58, please. Real comments about how it works. We read this at every meeting, don't we? We read it at every meeting. And I'll be honest with you, I hate that we read it at every meeting. And I know we got to read something at the beginning of the meeting. But the reason that I hate that we read this at every meeting is because we read it out of context at every meeting. And so people come to the meeting, just like we read the promises. We read the promises at every meeting, and people think all i got to do is show up here, and all these wonderful promises are going to come true. But they don't, unless I do the work. And the reason that I take issue with reading this at the beginning of the meeting is if you haven't read the four chapters that come before this, you don't know what the hell they're talking about. Right? First paragraph says, Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. What path? Well, if I haven't read the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion, I have no idea what path they're talking about, do I? Right? They've already described the path in the first four chapters. So when I get to chapter 5 and they say, rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path, they're assuming that I've already read the first four chapters so I know what they're talking about. And I read this for the first time. I remember hearing it in a meeting and I thought, our path. Must mean all of us, right? Turn to the forward to the first edition. Forward to the first edition. Tells us who the we of this program is. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We know where they talk about the mind. They're talking about the obsession of the mind. We know where they're talking about the body. They're talking about the allergy of the body. And it tells us who the we, the are, and the us is. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So where it says, we did this, and this is our experience, they're not talking about us. They didn't even know. I wasn't even born when they wrote that, right? They didn't know me, right? I am not a part of the we, right? The we, the are, and the us is the first 100 members of this program. And we know that 75% of them died sober and never drank again, right? Best recovery rate in history for the recovery of alcoholism and better than any other therapy in the history of the world, right? It says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Everybody underline that word. Precisely. Not generally, not not sort of, not a guideline, right? The purpose of this book is to show other alcoholics specifically, okay, precisely how they have recovered, right? Turn to page 21 real quick. Second full paragraph. Jump up three lines. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking yourself, what do I have to do? Everybody underline that. Not what do I have to think. Not what do I have to believe. Not what do I have to share about with my therapist. Right? What do I have to do? And as we've already talked about, AA is a doing program. Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who need it. And it's not for people who want it. Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who do it. Plain and simple. And it says it is the purpose of this book to answer such questions Specifically, everybody underline that word. 
So we've got precisely and we've got specifically. Turn to page 29 real quick. First full paragraph. It says, further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we have recovered. We already talked about that in the last hour. Okay, back on page 58. So where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, singular, not our thousand paths, right? Our path, right? What path are they talking about? They're talking about the path of precise, specific, and clear-cut directions showing how they have recovered from alcoholism. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that. That is the path. It says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Everybody underline that. I think thoroughly following our path and completely giving themselves to this simple program might mean the same thing, right? You know what that means to me? I have been around AA for a long time, right? Because I'm the kind of guy, I'll circle the table, I'll look at your steps on the wall, right? I'll, I'll obligatorily say hi to you, you know what I'm saying? But I won't do the work. I won't completely, thoroughly give myself to this simple program. And the last time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, my sponsor told me, he shared with me something that probably saved my life. He said, Rob, you don't need to be around the fringes of AA. You need to be in the center of AA. You need to be in the middle of AA. And so you know what? I had to drink the AA Kool-Aid. That's what I had to do, right? I had to get in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was involved in AA for a long time and unable to stay sober, right? But I had to become a committed member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know the difference, right? You know what my favorite thing to have for breakfast is? Is eggs and bacon, right? I love eggs and bacon, right? I eat eggs and bacon like four days a week, right? Because I like high-protein diet, right? And the chicken that laid the eggs for my breakfast, he was involved in making that breakfast, right? But the pig who made that bacon, he's committed, right? Okay? And I had to become committed to Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And that's the difference, right? I had to put my butt on the line. I had to do everything that was asked of me. I had to get in service. I had to help the new person, right? I had to do the service work that they asked me to do, and I had to take these steps, right? Next little paragraph on page 58 tells us some conditions for taking the steps. Now, I didn't realize for a long time that there were conditions for taking the steps, right? It says here, if you have decided that you want what we have, well, what did they have? Well, we know from reading in chapter 2 that the first thing that they had at the bottom of page 17 is they had a common solution, didn't they? Right? That's what they had. They had a way out upon which they could absolutely agree and upon which they were joined in brotherly and harmonious action. On page 25, it says that the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. They had been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which they had not even dreamed, right? And if you want that, if you go, you know, that sounds pretty good, right? And I remember my sponsor said to me, do you want what they had, Rob? And I said, well, you know, I'm just not sure, you know? And he said, well, ask, let me ask you another question, slick. He said, do you want what you have? And I said, no. Right? And he said, well, then you better want what they had. Right? And I did. Right? 
It also goes on to say, if you've decided you want what we have, you, uh, we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it. Everybody underline that. Not many lengths, not some lengths, not a few lengths, not the lengths I choose to go to, not the lengths I go to when it's convenient, but any lengths. What does that mean? It means I'm willing to do anything it takes to find victory over alcohol. It means that I'm willing to go an extra mile, that I'm willing to do whatever my sponsor says to do, and that's what it was for me. I'm willing to do whatever this guy, who obviously has a solution that I don't, tells me to do. My sponsor today, some of you know my sponsor today. And lots of people say lots of things about my sponsor, but you know what my sponsor says over and over and over again, and the reason that he's my sponsor is that he says that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous really, if you boil it all down, is about one thing. It's about taking actions that go against my better judgment. It's about taking actions that are contrary to what I want to do. And that's still true for me today. I woke up this morning. I had to go pick a guy up on the other side of town. I didn't want to do it, right? And that's okay. That's the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Because you don't have to want to do it as long as you do it, right? You don't have to want to show up to the meeting as long as you show up. You don't have to want to help that new guy as long as you help him, right? And by taking those actions over and over and over again, my thinking begins to change, right? So it says, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps, right? And if you had asked me when I came in here the six years before I took the steps, Rob, what step are you on? I would have told you I'm on step one, right? But you know what I found out? I found out that until I can meet these two conditions on page 58, I'm not on step one. I'm on step none, right? Because until I want what they had, and until I'm willing to go to any lengths to get it, I am not ready to take certain steps. So if you're sitting in here today, and you've been unable to take the 12 steps, maybe it's because you're not on step one. Maybe you're on step none, right? And maybe I have to ask myself those two questions. Do I really want what they had? And, more importantly, am I willing to do whatever it takes to get it, right? And if you are, welcome. You stand on the precipice of Alcoholics Anonymous. The door is open. Page 60. Second full paragraph sums up the first 60 pages for us. It says our description of the alcoholic, and we know that the description of the alcoholic is the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism. That's where they describe the alcoholic. The chapter to the agnostic, that's chapter 4. And our personal adventures before, that's Bill's story, and after, that's There is a Solution, where they talk about the spiritual experience. Or, another way of saying that, is the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion of this book make clear three pertinent ideas. So everything that we've read up to this point in the book is really designed to make clear three pertinent ideas. Now, only an alcoholic would take 60 pages to make clear three pertinent ideas, right? Most people can make clear three pertinent ideas in about five pages, right? But not Bill. He spends 60 pages to try to convince us of three pertinent ideas. And for the benefit of those of you who are new, I know some of you have been here for a while, but for the benefit of the newcomer, right? For the benefit of the newcomer, right? The whole purpose of the first four chapters in the doctor's opinion is we read their experience and what happened to them, and we think about our own experience, right? And how we were. And we say to ourselves, am I like that, right? 
And the whole idea is that by the time we reach page 60, from what they've said in the text, in our own experience, we're going to be able to make an admission of three pertinent ideas. And he poses them right here in what we call the ABCs. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter of the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. Everybody understand that, or everybody uh, underline that. Two ideas contained within pertinent idea A. A, that I'm alcoholic because I suffer from the illness that Dr. Silkworth describes, and, not therefore, I cannot manage my own life, right? When I take a man or a woman through the steps, I know that offends some people, but I've taken more women through the steps than most women have. And I always ask them, okay, do you believe you're an alcoholic of our type? Yes? Why? Explain to me. Tell me why you believe that, based on what we've read so far in your own experience. Do you believe that you can manage your own life? Do you believe that any human power can relieve your alcoholism? Pertinent idea B, right? Who's tried? Who's tried to manage your alcoholism? Who's tried to manage your life? We were talking about it in the car this morning, Jimmy and I, right? Who's tried? Have your parents tried? Your wife tried? Your kids tried? Probation officer tried? Lawyer tried, right? Treatment centers tried? Detoxes tried? Doctors tried? Police officers tried, right? All those people tried in my case. None of it was sufficient, right? And see that God could and would if he were sought. Not found, just sought. I don't need to find God. I don't find God till later on in the book, right? But for here, I have to seek God, and all I have to do is seek. One of the things it says in the chapter of the agnostic that we didn't have time to touch on is that I have to be willing to lay aside one thing and one thing only, my prejudice, right? And what is a prejudice? A prejudice is a preconceived notion or idea that I bring to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous the last time with lots and lots of preconceived ideas. As a matter of fact, I often share with people that I was the worst kind of newcomer. And people say, what's the worst kind of newcomer? The worst kind of newcomer is the kind of newcomer that's been around AA for a long time, right? Like me, right? And I've been to thousands of meetings, right? So I knew the jargon. I knew the 12 steps, right? I knew the preamble by heart, right? And so anytime anybody would try to tell me something, I'd go, yeah, I know, I know, I know, right? I sponsor guys like that, right? My sponsor had a nickname for me after I became slick. I became the I know guy, right? He said, you're the I know guy. I said, why is that? He said, because that's all you say to me is I know, I know, I know, right? And he said, I don't want to hear what you know. I want to hear what you don't know. As a matter of fact, he said, Rob, do you know that you have your own page in the big book? I said, I do. He said, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, they must have known I was coming, right? You know what I'm saying? He said, yeah, open to the first page of the big book. So I opened to the first page of the big book, and it's Bill's story. He says, no, not page one, the first page of the big book, right? So I opened to the first page of the big book, right? And I said, well, there's nothing on the first page of the big book. He said, exactly. That's your page, right? And he made me write my page right on the first page of the big book, right? I still got it here. It says my page right here on the big book, right? And he said, you know why that's your page? I said, why? He said, because that's what you know about staying sober. You don't know nothing, right? And he said, but there's good news, Rob. He said, as we go through this book and as we work these steps, you're going to learn something about alcoholism. You're going to realize things about yourself. You're going to understand things that you didn't understand before about the illness of alcoholism and about the recovery from alcoholism. 
so that one glorious day, the day is going to come where you're going to have a message of recovery to carry to the next sufferer, right? He said, you're going to write notes on that page and you're going to write down things that you know and things that you learn. And one day, the first page of your book is going to look like this. and You're going to have all sorts of things that you've written down and realizations that you've had and things that you now understand that you didn't know before so that you can carry a message to someone else. It was explained to me by my wise sponsor that if a blind man leads a blind man, guess what happens? They both fall into a ditch. And that my responsibility to the newcomers carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, which means that I have to understand what the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is. Otherwise, I'm being of disservice rather than of service to you. Page 60. Page 60 of our text says that being convinced after the C, after C on page 60, we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that and just what do we do? And I'm here to tell you that it is my belief that this third step is the whole key to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that everything that we do here, the steps, the sponsorship, the service work, all the stuff that we do, is really designed to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Right? I make an admission in step one, I come to believe in step two, and I make a decision in step three. A decision to do what? To turn two things, my will, which is my thinking and my emotions, and my life, which is my actions and the things that I do in every day over to the care of God as I understand it, right? Two things and two things only, right? My sponsor pointed out to me that if I had done such a great job of managing my life, I wouldn't need step three, right? As I said earlier, God will give me more than I can handle because if he doesn't, I don't ever need God, right? So I need to have a power greater than myself that can do this for me. It says the first requirement, everybody underline that, is that I must be convinced that any life, drunk or sober, run on self-will, can hardly be a success. And I always ask the people that I sponsor when I take them through the steps, are you convinced? Because it says that's the first requirement. The first requirement of the third step is I have to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Right? And he said, how's your life going? Right? I said, not very well. He said, how are your relationships? I said, terrible. All the people that I know don't want to talk to me, right? He said, how are you doing legally? How's your legal life? I said, not very good. They want to put me in jail again, right? He said, how's your job life? I said, I haven't been employed in two years, right? And he said, do you believe that you can manage that, right? And my experience with this is this. Even in sobriety, the more I try to manage, the more screwed up things get. I don't know about anybody else in here. Anybody had that experience? The more I try to manage things, the more screwed up they get, right? So I had to be convinced that any life, not just my AA life, but my sex life, my financial life, right, my relationship life, my parenting life, right, that all of those things could hardly be a success. And I looked myself in the mirror and I realized that everything that I had ever touched was designed for one reason and one reason only, was designed to make me happy. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous completely bankrupt in every area of my life. Because every effort that I made to make me happy had failed, right? And I came to the point of bankruptcy. I came to the point of suicide that drove me to AA, right? So I was convinced. But I believe that this is a very important... And this is what kept me out of AA for a long time. Because if I still believe secretly in my heart that my life on my will can be a success, then guess what? I don't need God, right? And I didn't need God for a long time because I still believe that sober... 
I could handle it. But as we learned in the first step, really this is an example of step one, section B. Really what this is saying is the same thing that the second part of the first step says, which is that my life run on my will can hardly be a success is another way of saying that my life is unmanageable by me, drunk or sober. And it's going to tell me why on page 61, right? Page 61, we're actually going to stop at the bottom of page 60, start at the bottom of page 60. It says, most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show. He is forever trying to arrange the lights, the scenery, the rest of the players in his own way. If only his arrangements would stay put. Right, Lisa? If only my arrangements would stay put, right? If only people would do as he wanted, the show would be great. How many people have ever said that to themselves? If only so-and-so would do what I wanted to do, everything would be great. I, oh, my God. You know, Maybe it's your kids, right? If only my kids would do what I wanted to do, right? Everything would be great. Or if only those stinking sponsees that don't listen to me would only do what I want, right? The show would be great, right? But they don't, right? They don't. It says, everyone, including himself, would be pleased. And I'm not a control, and really, I'm not a control freak, you know? I just like things right. You know what I'm saying? It says, Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. It's a perfect description to me. You know what I'm saying? It says, on the other hand, he may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest, but as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. Right? Now listen to this. It says, what usually happens the show doesn't come off very well. So I'm trying to get things my way. I'm trying to arrange things to suit myself. I'm trying to get everyone around me to do what I want, which incidentally is a big job. To try to keep everybody around you doing everything that you want them to do and have to have everything just the way it's supposed to be, it's a lot of work, right? So it's no wonder that a lot of alcoholics suffer from anxiety, right? It's a big responsibility to carry the entire world on your shoulders, right? And to make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, when they're supposed to be doing. And I see people come into AA and do the same thing. You know, no, that's not how we set up the meeting, and that's not what time. Right now, you know, you've only got three minutes to speak, and right? And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, you know what I'm saying? Why don't we have a prayer meeting? How about that? You know, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right? So you'd think at this point, like a normal person would say, you know what? This isn't going very well, right? This isn't going. But here's where the whole trouble starts, right? It says, what usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think. Everybody underline that, right? This is where, I'm telling you, this is where the trouble starts. And I don't begin to think, maybe I'm going about this wrong, right? Or maybe it's me, right? What does it say? I begin to think, life doesn't treat me right, right? Anybody here ever thought that? Man, these people aren't, they don't appreciate all the effort that I'm going to, right? He decides to exert himself still more. He becomes on the next occasion still more demanding or gracious as the case may be. But still, the book says, the play does not suit him. Right? And let me tell you something. Before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and still sometimes in Alcoholics Anonymous, because I don't have alcoholism, I have alcoholism, I suffer from this, that the play doesn't suit me. Right? I don't like the way things are going. Right? And I was the kind of guy, before I got to AA, that I would try to arrange everything to suit myself. And I thought, I really believe, you could have put me on a lie detector 
and said, Rob, is the reason for your problems that you don't live in the right town, have the right job, and the right girl? And I would have said, absolutely. And it would have said I was telling the truth. Right? And so you know what I would do? I would switch. I'd change jobs. Right? And I'd think, now i got the right job, but I don't have the right girl and the right car. Right? Or I don't live in the right town. So I'd change town. How many people here have ever thought, if I, was, if I only had him or her, then I'd be happy? Anybody here ever thought that? Right? Or if I, if I only lived in the right town or had that right thing. How many people here have ever thought if I had the right, that right possession that they want, then they'll be happy? Anybody ever thought that? Right? I've thought that stuff, right? Let's see what the book says. It says, admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is his basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not the victim? Anybody here the victim? This is the only place in our book where I get to be the victim, right here. Is he not the victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only he manages well? Everybody underline that. As I was sharing with somebody at the break, there's two delusions talked about in our book. The first one we talked about in the last hour. It's the drunken delusion. The delusion that I may be like other people or presently may be. The book says it has to be smashed. You know what I believe? I believe that this is our sober delusion right here. The delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I manage it well. And another way of saying that is, if only I get what I want. Right? Only I get what I want. You know what the biggest lie on the planet is? If I only get what I want, then I'll be happy. I'm here to tell you I spent a lot of time getting what I wanted, thinking, believing, living in the delusion that if I only got that thing or that person or that possession or that job, then I would be happy. And it works for a while, doesn't it? Right? It works for a while, right? You get that great job and for about four weeks you're happy, right? And then reality sets in, right? And it's the same as the last job, right? Or you get that new relationship. Oh, my God, I'm not going to talk about relationships. You know what I'm saying? Okay, well, now about sex is later. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, we get this new relationship, and for a while it's great, right? But then you know what? The reality of that sits in, you know? Or we get that new possession, and for a while it's shiny, you know what I'm saying? But then the neighbor down the street, he gets a newer car, you know what I'm saying? And it's not as great as it used to be, right? There's another book that I read, and that I continue to read, that says it this way. It says, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world? but lose his soul. And I'm here to tell you, I sold my soul time and time again chasing happiness. But the reality of the situation is it was a delusion because it's never enough. And eventually you reach a place, as one of my sponsors used to say, you reach the point where you can't put anything else, there's nothing left to put between you and you. And you have to deal with it. Right? And I tried. Right? The only way I could have made that successful is if I could have had a never-ending, successive, like, new events every other day. You know what I'm saying? A new girlfriend every week. A new car every other week. A new job every third week. You know what I'm saying? Then you can make it work, but none of us can make that work. Right? None of us can make that work. Page 62. This is the crux of the third step right here. And you'll remember they started out by telling us that our problem was selfishness and self-centeredness, right? 
or excuse me, they started out by telling us our problems that we had an allergy and an obsession. And then they changed the problem on page 45. They said lack of power really is our dilemma, right? And now they're going to change the problem one more time on us. They're going to say, really, that's not our problem. Really, our problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, right? It says selfishness and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. When I got sober, my first sponsor said to me, he said, Rob, you not only have fear, you have a hundred forms of it, right? And you not only have it, the book says you're driven by it, right? And I got to thinking about that, and that was absolutely true for me. I was driven by my fear, driven by my self-pity, driven by the resentments that I had, right? driven by all of those things that I was so ashamed of and I lived in the fear of that someone would find out. Right? It says, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find without variation that sometime in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Everybody underline that. Very important idea. It says, invariably we find that we've made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt, right? We haven't found that yet, okay? What we're going to do is we're going to find that when we do inventory. That's where we find that we are the ones that started the ball rolling, okay? I think it's interesting in here, just a little editorial comment, that Bill's talking about how selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles and we step on the toes of our fellows, we hurt them, and then they retaliate. And then it says, uh, we, you know, that later placed us in a position to be hurt, right? Well, I think it's interesting that he's talking about how selfish and self-centered that we are, but he doesn't say it placed them in a position to be hurt, right? He goes right back to himself and says it places us in a position to be because really isn't that the important thing is how I'm affected by all this. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that I am so selfish and self-centered. As a matter of fact, I have this friend of mine. Some of you know him, so I'll remain nameless, you know. I mean, I remember three years ago, I was going through this terribly painful divorce, you know, terribly painful, devastating divorce where my, my life, my whole life had fallen apart around me, right? And I would call this guy on the phone, right, to get some relief, you know, and to talk to somebody about, you know, getting me out of my depression. And I'd be saying, you know, and then this, and then he'd say, well, let me tell you what happened to me today. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because that's how we are by our nature, right? Enough about you, you know. You could call me up and say, I have terminal brain cancer, I've got six months to live, and I'd say well, you know what else happened at work today? You know what I'm saying? It's just the nature of my illness, right? Next paragraph says, so our troubles we think are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourself, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Everybody underline that. I sponsor people like this, right? There's two kinds of people in AA. There's people who are so sick they don't know how well they are, and there's people who think they're so well they don't know how sick they are. And that really is true, right? And I sponsor some people that are pretty well, let me tell you what, right? And they think that we, what happens? Sobriety lends itself to that delusion. Because all of a sudden I'm not drunk and punching cops anymore, I'm not in jail anymore, I'm not in the detox anymore. So I start to think, man, I got this all together, right? I got this all together, right? And I usually don't think so. You know why? Because now I can justify it. Well, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so really I'm saying these bad things behind your back because I just want to let people know who you really are, right? I'm going to gossip, but I'm not going to call it gossip. I'm going to call it educating people, right? And on and on and on. And I know that some of you are going, <laughs> okay, but you all understand what I'm talking about. Because Bill Wilson says in the 12 by 12 that we have a perverse motive to hide a bad idea under a good one, right? 
that we have a desire to hide our defects of character under a good motive to justify it, right? I know none of you here do that, right? It says above everything, that's about the middle to me, right? Above everything. We alcoholics must be rid of the selfishness we must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And often there seems no way of entirely being rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. Here is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. Everybody underline that, okay? Notice that it doesn't say we had to quit being God, right? It says we had to quit playing God, right? I mentioned when I came, I didn't have a job when I got here, right? And I wasn't going to get the job I want because God already had that taken. You know what I'm saying? Okay? But I had to quit playing God, right? When I take people through the steps, I ask them, how are you playing God, right? How are you the guy on page 61 that's trying to run the whole show? Tell me in your own life how you're trying to arrange things to suit yourself. Tell me how you've tried to play God to the people around you. It says, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Why? It didn't work, right? Pretty simple. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his children. He is the, uh, we are his agents. He is the father. We are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch, everybody underline that, through which we pass to freedom. We know from history that an arch is an entrance or an exit from anything, right? That's the purpose of an arch. And in our case, it's both. It is an exit from our old life and an entrance into our new life. Now, we have a, a name for this, right? What does the book say? The book says that he is the principal, we are the agents. He is the father, and I am the child, right? On the next page, he's going to say, he is the employer, right? So that makes me the employee, right? And we have a name for this. We call this taking the secondary position, right? Now, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm playing God. I'm in the primary position, right? But what our book says is I still get to be in the show. But now, instead of being in the primary position, I'm going to be in the secondary position. He is the father. I am the child. He is the principal. I am the agent. He is the employer. I am the employee, right? Why am I bringing that up? Top of page 63. Now, I would observe that all of these promises that come after the third step come before the third step prayer. Why? Because the third step prayer is simply the outer observance of what we do in our heart, right? I remember when I got married, we went to marriage counseling, right? It didn't work, but I went to marriage counseling, right? And I remember the pastor saying that there's a difference between a marriage and a wedding, right? He said that a wedding is an outward observance for our family and our friends that confirms the decision that we've already made months and months ago, that we're going to spend our life together forever and we're going to love each other through thick and thin, right? That that's what a marriage is. A marriage happens between two people. But that a wedding is simply an outward observance to confirm what we've already decided. Make sense? Well, I believe that these promises are not as a result of doing the third step prayer. I believe that they are a result of purposing in my heart that God is the director and I am the agent, that he is the father and I am the child, right? And when I take that secondary position, things begin to happen in my life. It says, when we sincerely took such a position, what position? The secondary position. All sorts of remarkable things followed. Everybody underline that. All sorts of remarkable things followed. I remember I got sober. I got down on my knees with uh, my sponsor. I did the third step prayer. I had been unable to find a job. And all of a sudden, I kid you not, like three days later, right, 
somebody called me on the phone and said, hey, I have a job for you, you know? And I went, wow, that's great, right? And I remember I didn't have a place to live. And somebody called me on the phone and they said, hey, I got a place for you to live. And I went, wow. And all this sort of eerie sort of good luck started happening that I could not explain, right? But it's interesting that it all happened after I made this decision in step three and I made God the director, that things began to change in my life. Unfortunately, what else began to happen is that God began to remove things from my life, right? And here I am, right? I'm banging on my high chair, right? Because I, I don't get the plan, right? And so I'm all pissed off because God's removing people and things and from my life. Because in his ultimate knowledge and wisdom and, and, and omnipotence, he knew what had to go and I didn't, right? And he knew that that girl that I'd been seeing, I wasn't going to be able to stay sober with her in my life, right? Now, I looked back and saw that, but I didn't see it at the time. He knew that those people that I'd hang around with that I called my friends, that they weren't going to be a good influence in my life, that they needed to go. And I'm kicking and screaming because I don't get the game plan. But here's the thing. In the third step prayer, it says, God, build with me and do with me as thou wilt. And let me tell you something. I always tell people you've got to be really careful when you say the third step prayer. Because when you ask God to begin to build with you and do with you as you as he wilt, guess what he does? He begins to do what he wilt. You know what I'm saying? Which means he's going to begin to move things around in my life that he knows need moved. Right? Next paragraph. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage, the slavery of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my, vic my difficulties that victory over them. May bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And then it gives us some directions on taking the third step. It says, we thought well before, not long, we thought well before taking this step, making sure that we are ready that we could abandon ourselves utterly to him. And then it says, we found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. And then it says the wording was, of course, quite optional. Everybody underline that. Book says it. I didn't make it up. Book says it. Right? So when I take somebody through the third step, what I do with them is I have them write their own version of the third step prayer. I have them read the third step prayer here in the book right? And ask themselves what it means to them in their own words. And they write their own third step prayer, right? And then what we do is we get together and we do the third step together. It goes on to say, the wording was of course quite optional as long as we express the idea of voicing it. What does that mean? It means I have to say it out loud, right? Without reservation, which means sincerely, I have to do it sincerely, right? This was only a beginning, though, if honestly and humbly, and my sponsor explained to me that humbly meant on my knees, right? An effect, sometimes a great one, was felt at once, right? And so when I get together to do a third step, and I've done third steps with hundreds of people, right? They write their prayer, and we get together, and we get down on our knees, and I take their hand in mine, right? And they read their third step prayer that they've written to God. And why do I have them write their own third step prayer? Here's why. Because a prayer from my heart means more than something that someone else wrote. Because it's from my heart to God's ears. Right? And then we read the third step prayer together out of the big book. Right? And then I know for sure 
that they've done step three. Now, we're going to get into this after lunch, but the book's going to tell us, as a matter of fact, if you read Lois Wilson's diary, there's a book on Lois Wilson's diary. It's a great book. I would recommend it to anyone. Because I always say, if you really want to find out about an alcoholic, don't ask the alcoholic. Ask his wife, right? And Lois Wilson said that in the early days of our fellowship, that they used to call the third step prayer, the prayer of decision, right? That really the whole purpose of the third step was that we were making a prayer to decide to take some other action. But our book is very clear that our decision is a vital and crucial step, but it's going to have little permanent effect unless we follow it at once with some action. And this is where a lot of people go wrong. And this is incidentally why we get people that do what's called the one, two, three waltz, right? They come in, they get sober, they do the first three steps, they get the great effect that the third step promises, right? And then they say, you know what? Maybe I can take my time on that fourth step, right? But they haven't gotten down to the causes and the conditions of their drinking. And my experience with the fourth step is this. Is that every day that I procrastinate on writing that inventory and sharing that with another person is a day that I remain conflicted. Every day that I procrastinate on writing that fourth step and sharing it and getting rid of that stuff that has troubled me and plagued me and caused me to drink over and over again is a day that I'm closer to my mind reminding me where I can find relief. And our whole purpose in this whole thing is to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. One of the biggest mistakes that I see people make in Alcoholics Anonymous is they're turning their will and their life over to the God, care of God in step three. Step three doesn't say we turned our will and our life over to the care of God. It says we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. If we could turn our will and our life over to the care of God in step three, guess what? We'd have a three-step program, right? The process of four through nine is the action that I take to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. How do we know that? Because when we reach the end of the ninth step, Bill Wilson makes an editorial comment about the first nine steps. He says, we have now entered the world of the Spirit. My will and my life have been turned over, and I am now God's people. We'll take our lunch break. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Once again, my name is Rob Mason, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> had a couple of people at the break ask me some questions. And you know, and my favorite part of the, the meeting is, is the meeting that happens in between the meeting, you know? It's when I get to make new friends and talk to old friends and, you know, hear people talking about recovery. And, and I always like to listen to the laughter that I hear in between the meetings, you know? The laughter and the, the talk and the camaraderie that happens in events like this. And because really that's what it's all about. It's connecting with people and, you know, talking about people doing the work and who've realized some things and, you know, want to change their life and do something different with their life. Because that's really what, where, where it all, you know, comes from. That's what it's really all about. You know, we were, we were talking on the break about a couple of things. We were talking about the 12 by 12. And I, I will be referring to the 12 by 12, making some commentary on the, some of the things in the 12 by 12. And uh, I'm, I'm not a huge 12 and 12 guy. And the reason that I'm not, and don't get me wrong, I like to read it, but if you read the 12 by 12, if you read in the, in the forward of the 12 by 12, it talks about the purpose of the 12 by 12, right? And it says that the 12 by 12 is a group of essays, right, that are written to help expand our knowledge of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That the book Alcoholics Anonymous is still our basic text. That doesn't change, right? And remember that when Bill Wilson wrote the big book, he was four years sober, he was not a spiritual giant by any stretch of the imagination, right? 
And so when he goes back 13 and a half years later to write the 12 by 12, he had some more things to say. He had things that he had realized. He was almost 20 years sober at that point, right? And so he had some more things to say. Coupled with that was that, remember, in the 50s, 1952, late 52, early 53, when the 12 by 12 was published, there was a big push to get the traditions accepted by the, uh, the groups, okay? As a matter of fact, they went to the 55 convention to have the traditions ratified at the first international convention, Cleveland, okay? And uh, as a matter of fact, that's a whole funny story, right? Because Bill was going around to the groups trying to get the groups to accept the traditions because he thought that the traditions were important to protect the group because he was seeing some of the same things that some of the earlier precursors to AA had seen, the Washingtonians and the Emanuel movement and some of the other groups that had fallen by the wayside because they didn't have anything to unify them. And so he went to the first international convention. It's a true story. I know somebody that went and they said, uh, okay, we're going to have a vote. All in favor of accepting the traditions. All opposed. Hearing none, they were ratified. And that was it. You know what I'm saying? Because there, there were a lot of groups that didn't want the traditions, believe it or not. I mean, nowadays that sounds silly, you know what I mean? But in those days there were a lot of people that had these, say, what are these rules in AA? And We don't need any rules and those kinds of things, right? You know, alcoholics, we don't like any sort of structure whatsoever, you know? But the 12 by 12 is a set of essays. And the reason that people like the 12 by 12, listen, for those of you who love the 12 by 12, I know why you love the 12 by 12, okay? Because you can read it and pontificate about it, think about it and talk about it, and there's not one single direction anywhere in it, right? So while the 12 by 12 may help us to understand the 12 steps, where we do the work in Alcoholics Anonymous is not in the 12 by 12, right? We do the work in the big book because that's where the clear-cut directions on how to recover from alcoholism are found. Right? It's worked for 79 years. Millions of people have been helped. As a matter of fact, if you read in Bill's story, we don't have to turn there, on page 8, Ebby comes to visit Bill in December 1934 in his kitchen. Okay? And they have this conversation. Right? And at the bottom of page 8, Bill makes an editorial comment, as he often did in the big book, about his meeting with Ebby. He says that two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend Ebby's commitment and that they had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. And then he says the important thing. He said, that was two months ago and the result was self-evident. It worked. And people always say to me, well, you know, you sound... As a matter of fact, I had somebody... I gave a talk not long ago up in, uh, up in Ontario and uh, somebody came up to me and they said, well... You know, you sound, you said, I liked your talk, she said, but it sounded a little preachy to me, <laughs> right? It sounded a little preachy to me. And I said to her, I said, you know, please don't misinterpret my enthusiasm and my passion for Alcoholics Anonymous with preaching, right? You see, I'm just passionate and enthusiastic about AA. And maybe that's because I actually do AA. And there are lots of people that sit in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that talk about AA, right? And they talk about doing AA, okay? But they don't really do AA, right? You see, I do AA, and I always tell people, if you want to find out about Rob Mason, right, don't listen to what I say from the podium, right? You come hang out with me, right? Come with me Friday night over to the detox, right? Come hang out with me when I'm outside of, uh, off the podium of AA, and then you'll find out what I'm really about. Then you'll find out if what I really say is what I really do. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is not about what we say, it's about what we do. And as my sponsor always reminds me, when all is said and done in AA, more will be said than done. And AA is a doing program. 12 by 12 on page 34. A couple of closing notes on the third step before we get into step four. 
first paragraph says, Practicing step three is like opening of a door which to all appearances is still closed and locked. All we need is a key and a decision to swing the door open. There is only one key and it's called willingness. Once unlocked by willingness, the door opens almost of itself. And looking through it, we should see a pathway beside which is an inscription that reads, This is the way to faith that works. Now listen to this. It says, In the first two steps, we were engaged in reflection. We saw that we were powerless over alcohol, step one. But we also perceived that faith of some kind, if only an AA itself is possible to anyone, step two. It says, These conclusions did not require action, they required only acceptance. Everybody underline that. Very important. So the first two steps don't require any action on my part, right? And I've heard people say, oh, well, you should write a list of a hundred things you're powerless over. You should draw a picture of your higher power. You should do, you know, I mean, you know, and you could do, yeah, you know, I mean, you could do all that stuff, but that's not what my book says. What the 12 by 12 says is all I need to do in the first two steps is do two things, reflect and accept. Right? And if I could say, yes, I'm powerless over alcohol. Yes, I believe my life is unmanageable. And yes, I believe in some sort of a power greater than myself. Then there's no more work for me to do. Right? I am now, as the big book says, after pertinent idea C, I am now at step three. If I could say yes to A, yes to B, yes to C, there's nothing left for me to do. There's no other work. I am now at step three. Right? It says, like all the remaining steps, step three calls for affirmative action. For it is only by action that we can cut away the self-will which has always blocked the entry of a God, or if you like, a higher power into our lives. Faith, to be sure, is necessary. But faith alone can avail nothing. We can have faith, yet keep God out of our lives. Therefore, our problem now becomes just how and by what specific means shall we be able to let him in. Step three represents our first attempt to do this. In fact, the effectiveness of the whole AA program will rest upon how earnestly we have tried to come to a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. In the big book on page 64. You know, we were talking at the break, me and my, my friends from Celebration over there, and we were talking about the nature of my illness. And as we talked about in the morning sessions, really the nature of my illness is that I suffer from this spiritual malady. And the nature of my spiritual malady is such as that I don't believe that I have the problem. As a matter of fact, when I have the problem, when I am living in the spiritual malady, when I'm living with untreated alcoholism, really, honest to God, I don't feel like I'm sick. You know what I'm saying? But oddly enough, all of you look sick. You know what I'm saying? In my perception, Right? And that's why I always say that the stupidest saying ever invented for an alcoholic is the saying, perception is reality. Anybody ever heard that saying, right? Perception is reality. That is a stupid saying for alcoholics, okay? And here's why. Because I'm using a broken tool to judge everything around me. That's why, right? Because if I suffer from a spiritual malady, I'm in full flight from reality, the book says. I'm prey to misery and depression, I do not see things clearly. So I'm judging you and everyone around me based on my skewed perception of how I see things. Right? And what we're going to see in the book is we're going to see that really the whole process of 4 through 9 is designed to treat that spiritual malady. That's really the whole process here. 
Chuck Chamberlain used to say that it's really kind of like getting a new pair of glasses, right? That somehow we need to change our perception of the world around us. And until I could do that by working the steps and taking the inventory and sharing it and making amends so I could see things clearly, I was ended up treating the symptoms rather than the nature of the problem. So I would have these relationship problems, and I'd try to fix those. And I'd have job problems, and I'd try to fix those, right? And I'd have problems in my with my kids, and I'd try to fix that. But you know what? I was addressing the symptoms rather than the real nature of the problem, which was in here, right? And so... What we learn in the program of A, and I would say to my sponsor, well, I've got this problem, I've got that problem, and I got, and he'd say, no, that's not the problem, right? But it feels like it's the problem, right? It seems to me that those are the things I need to address. It always seems to me that the problem is out here, rather than in here, right? Bottom of page 63. I would observe that there is no amen after the third step prayer. We're going to explain why when we get to the seventh step. But the word amen does not appear after the third step. I wonder why. Bottom of page 63. Next. Everybody circle the word next. The word next means following immediately. Okay? We're going to come back to that in a minute. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which was a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Now, I had attempted a personal house cleaning. But they weren't talking about yours. They were talking about mine, right? Okay. I had taken the inventory of every single person I had ever met. How many people here are like that? You know what I'm saying? And I am an expert, self-proclaimed expert, by the way, at judging everyone around me. I know what's wrong with you. I know what you need, right? As a matter of fact, I have, I can even do that in AA. You know what I'm saying? I'll go to meetings when I'm off the beam spiritually, right? And I'll be like, oh, he's full of it. And she's just looking for a husband. And you know, I mean, you know, you know, right? Because I'm off in my perception. It's exactly what I'm saying. And when I'm sick, I feel like I'm not sick. You're sick, right? It says, which many of us had never attempted, though our decision in step three was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless followed at once. Everybody circle that. By a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom so we had to get down to the causes and conditions. Why do we do an inventory? Well, it tells me right here. We had to. We had to. I didn't do an inventory because I wanted to. I did an inventory because I had to. And my sponsor explained to me that if you do a third step and you have good sponsorship and you get up off your knees, okay, then you have two choices. You can do the fourth step next or you can do it at once or anytime in between, right? <laughs> So when I take a guy or a gal and we get down on our knees and we do the third step prayer, right? As soon as they get up off their knees, I go over the instructions for doing step four and they go home to write their fourth step, right? There's no break in between. As a matter of fact, I would observe that nowhere in the big book does it say, well, you've done a great job. Take six months off and let it sink in. The only place in the big book that it says to stop is after step five, right? And it says we can stop for one hour, right? That's it. That's the only break, right? Other than that, we keep moving, right? As a matter of fact, I'll let you know a little AA history. In the early days of our fellowship, they would put a guy in the hospital for three to four days to detox him. They would take him out of the hospital and take him, drive him to the fir his first meeting, okay? And they would go to the meeting, and then after the meeting, they would all go upstairs, and they would get down on their knees as a group and do a group third step, right? 
And then he would write the inventory right there in the bedroom, share the inventory, write his eight-step list, right? And by the time he left his first meeting, he was on his way home to make his ninth-step amends, right? And people say, oh my God, that's so, that's so fast. Dr. Bob did his ninth-step amends his first day sober, June 10th, 1935, right? And people say, well, you take guys through the steps so fast. Maybe, you know, oh, these steps are... As a matter of fact, I had one old-timer say, well, these steps shouldn't be taken so fast because there's too much power in them. You know what I'm saying? And you know what I said to him? I said, well, that's exactly what my book says. It says, there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him two years from now. Right? No, no fortunately for me, I had a sponsor that says, Rob, you need God and you need him now. Right now. And we're going to work these steps right now. Because if we don't, you're going to return to the things that gives you temporary relief from your untreated alcoholism, and you're going to pick up the next drink. And that's why I push the people that I sponsor through the steps. Why? Because I want to give them a remedy for their spiritual malady. Because I know the great secret. The great secret is if I don't replace it with something, eventually they will return to the thing that gives them temporary relief. And I did that time and time again because I had no solution. Right? I was just... I was stone cold, stark raving sober, right? And I didn't like the way I felt, so I would drink, right? And it wasn't until 1988 that I got somebody that offered me a solution, right? And it started with the third step prayer, right? And we got up off our knees and he said, now you're going to write an inventory. And I'd like to tell you that I wanted to write this inventory, but I knew because of what he had told me, I knew what we'd gone over in this book, that if I'm an alcoholic of their type, this was my only chance. And then I had to write an honest and a thorough inventory. And there's lots of reasons that people procrastinate on step three. One of the reasons is old-timers scare them to death. That's one of the reasons, right? I remember I went to a, a meeting on the fourth step, right, because I was going to start writing my inventory, and I remember there's this old-timer there. He says, he says, yeah, I remember step four just about killed me. You know what I'm saying? And I thought, oh, my God, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to do, do that, you know? And I think there's a lot of people that don't know why we do the fourth step, right? Because no one is telling them, look, if you're an alcoholic of our type, your decision in step three is a vital and crucial step, but it's going to have little permanent effect unless we follow it at once by action. What does that mean? Well, we know there's not enough power in step one to keep us permanently sober, right? It tells us that in Bill's story. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me from it for a bit, but then came the insidious insanity of the first drink. And on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Right? We know there's not enough power in step two to keep us permanently sober. Right? We can have honest and sincere belief in God, yet keep God out of our lives. I believed in God. I would pray to God and drink. How many people here did that? Right? I would pray to God and still get drunk. Right? And here on page 64, we also find out there's not enough power in step three to keep me permanently sober. Our decision in step three will have little permanent effect unless followed at once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us, right? So I've done the third step prayer, but the book says I'm still blocked off from God, right? You know what that means? It means I am incapable of carrying out the decision that I made in step three, right? Because I'm still blocked off from God. So I've made this decision, and now I have to take the action to remove those things that are blocking me off from the sunlight of the Spirit. And that's what 4 through 9 is really about. That's what the action steps are really designed to do, right? To carry out the decision that I made in step 3. It says, therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step 4. It says, a business which takes no regular inventory, everybody underline that, 
usually goes broke. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding, which is another way of saying searching, and a fact-facing, which is another way of saying fearless process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. And that's what a moral inventory is. The word moral means the truth about the right and wrong of any situation. And the inventory that we're going to write is simply that. It is the truth about what has been right and what has been wrong in my life. Next full paragraph says, Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. Everybody underline that. Only place the word disease appears in the text Alcoholics Anonymous is where it says that we have a spiritual disease. In the 12 by 12, he calls it something else. He calls it a soul sickness. Right? It means exactly the same thing. It says, For we have not only been mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. Now listen to this. This is the first place where we get the message of hope in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And for those of you who are here and you suffer from what, what we call the spiritual malady here, if that's you, if you're selfish and self-centered, incidentally, people, a lot of people know where to find the, the uh, physical allergy in the book, you know. If you say, hey, where, where do you describe the physical allergy? They can tell you. You know, it's in the doctor's opinion, right? Or if you say, well, where do you find the obsession of the mind? They can tell you that's in the third chapter, parts of chapter two, right? But if you say, well, where's the spiritual malady? Right? They get stuck. Right? But the spiritual malady is actually described in a couple places in our book. It's on page 52. It's on page 62. 61 and 62. And so again on page 73. Right? That's where they describe the spiritual malady of alcoholism. Right? And it says here on page 64 that when the spiritual malady is overcome, step three, we straighten out mentally, step two, and physically, step one, let me explain that, right? When I turn my will in my life over to the care of God, right? When I carry out the action of the decision I made in step three, what happens? The obsession, the compulsion to drink is removed, step two. The insanity is removed. And then I no longer find it necessary to pick up the first drink, step one. Make sense to everybody? Okay? And that's exactly what happened for me, Okay? I shared my inventory with my sponsor in a park in Concord, California in August of 1988. And I can tell you this for sure, is that the compulsion to drink left me on that day when I shared my fifth step with my sponsor in that park, right? And in my case, I have never again from that day to this day had a compulsion to drink. And I know for sure that as long as I continue to do the things that keep me sober on a daily basis in 10, 11, and 12, I never have to take another drink of alcohol as long as I live. And you know what? Neither do you, right? As long as you're willing to take certain steps, right? What we're going to see when we get over onto page 66 is we relapse exactly in reverse, right? And if you ever want to see somebody relapse, okay, just watch them work the steps in reverse, right? They get a resentment, right? And then what happens? They take their will back, right? They stop praying, right? Then the insanity of alcohol returns and they end up drunk, right? So we recover step one, step two, step three. We relapse exactly in reverse. Step three, step two, step one, and then we're out. Right? I've seen it many, many times. We'll talk about that when we get there. And then it gives us our first direction in how to write inventory. Now, I want to point out that there are lots of people. As a matter of fact, you could go online to any popular website and find a hundred ways to write a four-step inventory, right? Can't you, right? You can go to any Hazelden website, or and, and there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. I have no opinion on outside issues, 
I don't wish to engage in any controversy, right? My primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety, right? But I will ask you this question. In 1939, when the book Alcoholics Anonymous was published, how many ways were there to write an inventory? There was one way. It was found in this book, right? And everything that's come after that has come after that, right? But here's the reason that this is important. Remember what we found out in the earlier sessions, that we have precise, specific, and clear-cut directions showing how they recovered, right? That's what's in this book. So if I follow some other format, I may or may not come to the conclusions that the inventory is designed to bring me to. Make sense? Okay. The whole purpose of the way that they outline the inventory in the big book is designed to bring me to certain conclusions. If I don't do it that way, I may not come to those conclusions. And then I have changed the recipe of recovery that we've talked about. Make sense to everybody? So now they give us our first direction on how to deal with resentments. It says, in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. We listed, everybody underline that word, right? When you write a grocery list, how do you write it? Do you write it top to bottom or left to right? A list is written top to bottom. Eggs, milk, bread, coffee, cigarettes, right? That's how you write a list. You don't write a list left to right. So when we write inventory, we list our resentments, which means we write them top to bottom, right? We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we are angry. And right after the word angry, you'll see a little dot. Everybody circle that little dot, okay? That little dot is what's called a period, okay? And in the English language, that means end of one thought, beginning of a new thought. What does that mean? It means before I do anything else, I do the first thing that they ask me to do, right? I got sponsees all the time. They say, well, what's the next thing that I'm supposed to do? And I always say, do the first thing I told you to do, and then we'll talk about the next thing I told you to do, right? Just like I get people that say, well, I want what you have. And I always tell them this is the truth. I say, well, if you want what I have, you've got to do what I do. They say, well, what do you do? And I tell them, when you do what I do, you'll know what I do, then you'll get what I get. <laughs> so before I do anything else in writing about resentment, I list the people, institutions, or principles with whom we're angry. Let's look at Bill's example on page 65. It says, he says he's resentful of Mr. Brown, Mrs. Jones, the employer, and his wife. And then we go to the second direction. It says, we asked ourselves why we were angry. Let's look again at Bill's example on page 65. In column 2, once we complete all the names in column 1, we go to column 2. He says he's resentful at Mr. Brown because of his attention to his wife, told the wife of his mistress, and Brown's going to get his job at the office, Right? Now, those are three pretty major things, wouldn't you say, right? And notice that he did all of that in 19 words, right? I give the guys I sponsor 20 words, right? I just round it off, right? But notice that he didn't write a dossier on what Brown did. He wrote it in bullet point format so that when he did his fifth step that he would remember why he's pissed off at Brown, right? We're not writing a five-page thing on what Brown did, just bullet points, right? He's mad at Mrs. Joan because she's a nut and she snubbed me. She committed her husband for drinking and he's my friend and she's a gossip. He's mad at his employer because he's unreasonable and unjust, overbearing, and threatens to pat, uh, fire him for padding his expense account. Now, that is unreasonable, right? <laughs> he's mad at his wife because she misunderstands and nags and she likes Brown and she wants the house put in her name. Now, let me tell you something, guys. When the wife wants the house put in her name, it is not a good sign. I'll tell you right now, right? 
So that's what Bill has in column two for his example here, right? Bottom of page 64 says, in most cases it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. On our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, our personal or sex relations, which had been hurt, threatened, or interfered with in some way? We are usually as definite as this example, right? So column three is very simple. It's a five-question multiple choice. What part of myself was affected? Was it my self-esteem, my security, my ambitions, my personal or sex relations, which had been hurt, threatened, or interfered with in some way? Pretty straightforward, right? So Bill says here, regarding Mr. Brown, it affected his sex relations and his self-esteem regarding his wife, his sex relations and his self-esteem regarding his mistress, and his security and his self-esteem regarding Brown getting the job at the office, right? Regarding Mrs. Jones, it had affected his personal relationships and his self-esteem and fear. Regarding his employer, self-esteem and security, again, fear. And regarding his wife, pride, personal, and sex relations and security, which is also fear. And then it says at the bottom of the page, we went back through our lives. Everybody underline that, right? This is, again, a very clear-cut direction on how to write inventory. When I write inventory, I don't start at the beginning of my life and go forward. The book says we go back through our lives, right? So when I write my inventory on who I'm resentful at, I say, well, am I resentful at anybody today, right? How about yesterday? Am I resentful at anybody from yesterday? And how about last week? And how about last month? And how about last year? And I go back chronologically through my life, right? One of the questions I always got get asked is, well, if little Jimmy Smith pushed me off the swing when I was five years old, do I need to put that on my inventory? And my answer is very simple. If Jimmy Smith pushed you off the swing when you were five years old, and you say to yourself, well, I was angry about it at the time, but, you know, we were kids, and that's just how it is. You don't need to put it on your inventory, Right? If every time you go to the store and you see a cantaloupe, you say, man, that looks like that sucker's head. I just want to cave that thing in. You might want to consider putting that on your inventory, right? But here's the secret in inventory writing, okay? Here's the secret. When in doubt, write it out. When in doubt. If you're not sure whether you should put it on your inventory, put it on there, right? Put it on there. It's like cancer. It's not the part that you get that'll kill you. It's the part you miss that'll kill you. Right? It says we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. I always point out to the people that I take through the steps that there's only two things that get graded in inventory writing. Thoroughness and honesty. You don't get graded on penmanship. Right? You don't get graded on how articulate you sound when you share your inventory. Right? You only get graded on thoroughness and honesty. It says, when we were finished, we considered it carefully. Everybody underline that. You know, some people will tell you that the fourth step is a writing step. I don't believe that the fourth step is a writing step, right? How many people have heard that? Oh, the fourth step's a writing step? Anybody heard that? Okay. I don't believe that the fourth step is about writing. I believe there's writing involved, okay? But I believe that the fourth step is a set of directions, considerations, and prayers. And there's writing involved in it, Right? And so what we do when I take somebody through the four-step, I don't just say, here's your four-step, go write it and come get me when you're done. No. Where the book says we stop and consider something, we stop and consider it. Right? Where the book says, here's a prayer to use, guess what? We say that prayer. Because that is part of the process of going through the four-step. Right? 
So it says here at the bottom of 65 that after we write the first three columns of our inventory, we stopped and we considered it carefully, right? It says the first thing that was apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. Everybody underline that. And I don't know about you, but that's as far as I ever needed to get, right? Was to conclude that you were wrong, right? You're wrong. I'm right. I'm the victim. That's the end of that, right? As a matter of fact, I've also, I've never had a resentment where I also wasn't right. I don't know about anybody else in here, you know what I'm saying? But that is so true for me, right? It says the usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. The more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got, right? You know, there were people in my inventory when I wrote my first inventory. And I'll never forget there were people in my inventory that I hated far, far worse than their actions dictated that I should. You know, I mean, I think of my poor parents. You know, my parents got a raw deal, right? They adopted this kid from the Sisters of Mercy at Catholic Social Services in San Francisco to try to give him a better life, right? And all I did was make their lives miserable, and I hated them when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and had for years and couldn't speak on friendly terms with either one of them. Right, And you know what's interesting about my resentments? Does anybody here know who Joe Theismann was? Joe Theismann? Any football fans here? Joe Theismann was a quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Right? And he was a very good quarterback, wasn't he? Right? And he got injured in a terrible, horrific accident on Monday Night Football in the mid-80s. Right? And I remember, I was watching it live when it happened. Right? And they said, hey, we're going to go to commercial break. And they went to commercial break and they came back and they said, we're going to show you that in replay, right? And so they zoomed in on it, right? And they showed it in super slow motion, right? And here's his leg snapping in half, right? And they said, now we're going to see it from another angle. You know what I'm saying? And they showed it from this other, and every time they showed it, interestingly enough, it looked worse than the first time, right? They said, now we're going to see it in reverse, right? And now we're going to zoom in super close. You know what I'm saying? And so, all, and, all, and you know what's interesting is my resentments are exactly the same way, right? Something would happen to me, and it would be bad, you know? And I wouldn't like it. And I'd be hurt, right? Or I'd get angry. But here, I have a strange ability. I have the ability to replay things in my mind, right? And just like Joe Theismann, I would replay it, and I would zoom in, and I would slow it down in my mind, right? And I'd look at it from another angle, right? And I would replay this. And interestingly enough, there's something else that happens. Maybe it doesn't happen to you, but it absolutely happens to me. Is the more I replay that resentment in my mind, you've got to take good care of resentments. They're like potted plants. If you don't take care of them, they die. You know what I'm saying? Okay? The more I would replay this resentment in my mind, right, their part gets a little bit more. And my part gets just a little bit less, right? So by the time I've replayed that thing like a hundred times in my mind, I can honestly say... I was just standing there and they came up and did it to me, right? <laughs> True story. The more I try to fight and have my own way, the more I replay it in my mind, the more I tried to build a case against you, the worse matters got. And that was always the case for me. 
It says that it is plant. Oh, we're going to do a little group participation here. Okay. And I'm going to give you the answer to the group participation. The answer is death threat. Let's try it. Can everybody say that? Very good. Okay. We're going to see how productive these resentments are in my life. Okay. Let's see what it says about these resentments right here on page 66. It says it is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours which might have been worthwhile? But with the alcoholic whose hope, here's the hope, is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. And something that's infinitely grave would be a? It says, we have found that it is fatal. And something that's fatal would be a? It says, for when harboring such feelings, such feelings as resentment, fear, guilt, shame, the insanity, we shut ourselves off from the uh, sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us to drink is to die. And if we're going to die, that would be a? It goes on to say, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm for not made, uh, were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men. But for alcoholics, these things are poison, and poison will kill you, therefore it is a... I think it's interesting that Bill uses the word poison to describe resentment. It was explained to me by my wise sponsor that resentment is the only poison that kills the container that it's held within. And that was the case for me. I came in here with resentment, and it wasn't hurting the people around me. The only person that it was hurting was me. But it tells me right in here, that when I harbor these feelings, these feelings like resentment and fear and guilt and remorse, what do I do? I shut myself off from the sunlight of the Spirit. Step three. And then the insanity of alcohol returns. Step two. And then I drink again. Step one. Right? And if you watch somebody who relapses, I'm telling you, mark my words, you can see it happen. And that's why I always talk to people in their last 90 days, because everyone around them can see it except them, right? Because when I'm screwed up like that, I don't feel screwed up. I think it's everyone around me. As Clancy says, it's almost as if I go to bed one night and all of you get together and decide to act bad towards me, right? In my perception, right? And so, and, and, you know, and as long as I do these things, as long as I take, continue to take these actions, you're all fine, Right? So really, I don't even do these things for me. I do it so all of you will stay okay. Because when I'm doing these things, you're all fine. But when I stop doing them, you all get together and decide to act bad again. Think about it. Bottom of page 66. You, You have to ask the right question to get the right answer, don't you? If you don't ask the right question, you're never going to come to the right conclusion. And I think part of the reason that people don't come to the right conclusion in the inventory is they don't ask the right question. Because it tells us right here at the bottom of page 66, if all you do in your inventory is write the list of resentments in the first three columns as it gives us the example on page 65, you've only done 60% of the process. right? And people often ask, they said, well, why did he write a three-column example when it's really, if you read on page 67, which we're going to get to here in a minute, it's really a five-column inventory, right? People ask that for a long time, and I asked the same question. And I was out doing a, a big book workshop far, far away from here, and somebody came up, up to me after the meeting, and they said, Rob, I have the answer. I asked the same question. And I was in New York at Stepping Stones, and I talked to the head archivist for the big book part of Stepping Stones at the General Service Office. 
And I posed that question to her, and she gave me the answer. That in 1939, when they printed, when Harper Payne printed the big book, they printed it on a printing press, one page at a time, like this, right? And there was a guy that stood there and printed the pages just like this. Some of us may be old enough to remember that, right? They did not have the technology that we have today to take the example on the big book and turn it this way, right? So what they did was they put it this way, and the only thing that would fit on the page was a three-column example, right? Today, what would we do? We'd just reformat it and turn it this way and make a five-column example but they did not have that technology in 1939. Make sense? And that's why we have a three-column example on page 65, but if you read the narrative, it's really a five-column inventory. Very important. Bottom of page 66. says, we turn back to the list that we've written so far, the first three columns. Why? Because it held the key to the future. It says, we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And one of the questions that I ask the people that I sponsor is, are you entirely ready to look at this from a different angle? Are you ready to look at this from an entirely different angle? Because the book says we have to do that. And if you cannot, aren't willing to do that, you cannot go on. You have to ask for the willingness. Because until I'm willing to look at it from a different angle, what it really means is I'm still vested in being the victim. I'm still vested that it's really your fault. I came into the inventory as the victim, right? It says at the top of the page, right? I concluded that other people were wrong. I, you're, I'm the victim. You screwed me over. That's as far as they ever got. But now the book says I have to put aside what they did, and I have to be willing to look at it from a different angle. And he's going to give us three courses on how we're going to do that. It says, we saw that the wrongdoings of others fancy to real had the power to actually kill, and something that will kill you would be a? It said, how could we escape? We saw these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. First of all, we realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Everybody underline that. There's a guy in this room that I sponsor. When I began working with him, he was an angry guy. He was an angry guy. And he was angry at a lot of people, but one of the guys he was angry at was a former boss that he used to work for, right? And we used to call him, he had a name for him, he called him Evil Ben, right? Evil Ben. And he would always talk to me, he'd call me on the phone and he'd complain about Evil Ben, right? And we took, we went through the third step, we got down on our knees, we did the third step prayer, and we started writing inventory. And I said, hey, I've got an idea. I said, instead of calling him Evil Ben, why don't we change his name? Why don't we call him Sick Ben, right? I said, can you see how Ben is perhaps spiritually sick? And he said, yes. And so we began to call him Sick Ben. But there's a difference between Evil Ben and Sick Ben, isn't there? Right? Evil Ben is a bad person. Sick Ben is a guy that did bad things. And what does spiritually sick mean? It means that they're blocked off from God. That's what it means. And I could see that. I could see how the people who wronged me were perhaps spiritually sick. They're sick and probably screwed up too. Right? I, got, I get that part. It says, though we didn't like our, their symptoms and the way that they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. Everybody underline that. So now not only are they sick, but now I'm sick too. You know what this means? My sponsor explained to me that what I had to do in the fourth step, really, if I follow the directions, is I have to see how they are like me and how I am like them. 
that they're spiritually sick, but I have to see how they, like me, are spiritually sick. And the question I had to ask myself as I went through the list of the people that I'd resented, which incidentally was everyone I had been in contact with for more than 15 minutes, okay? I had to ask myself if I could see how I was like them and how they were like me, and how I could see myself doing the same thing in the same circumstances that they did to me. But I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with two sets of standards. I had one set of standards for me and another set of standards for you. Convenient. And every time I would do something, I would give myself a free pardon. You know why? Because there were extenuating circumstances. That's why. You didn't understand. I did what I did because I had to do it. I didn't have, I didn't have any twi- I mean, lack of power is my dilemma, right? That's why I did it. But whenever you would do those same things that I was guilty of, I would judge you and condemn you and criticize you. And what this says is that I have to see how you are like me and I am like you. I have to come down off my high horse. I have to level the playing field. As one of my sponsors pointed out to me, that God works the same way for you as he does for me. In another book that I read, it says that God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. That it's either mercy for everybody, including me, or it's justice for everybody, including me. And if I want mercy for me, then I have to start by offering that same mercy to you that God would offer. And if I want justice for you, then I have to accept justice for myself. And as I went through the list of the people that I had had on my resentment list, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, I had done the same thing or worse to someone else in my life that I had condemned those people for doing to me. And if I hadn't done it, I'd thought about it. And you know what? It was the first step away from resenting those people because I realized that they were just like me. They weren't evil Ben. They were bad Ben. And I wasn't an evil guy. I just made mistakes in my life. It goes on to say, we ask God, this sounds like a prayer, to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry, thy will be done. You know, one of the things that I often use with the guys that I sponsor, and we don't have time today, but one of the things that I do with the people that I sponsor, and sometimes at workshops, is I I do what's called the clenched fist prayer. Somebody gave me this in early sobriety. And and basically what it it was is an old-timer said, if you have a resentment that you couldn't get over, and I had a couple, he said, he said, take it and put it in your hand just like that and clench your fist like that and just reach up to God and just open your hand and let it go to God. And it was a visual representation of the whole idea of releasing something and letting it go to God. Because it says here, God save me from being angry. My resentments don't hurt you. They really hurt me. They poison me from within. And that's what caused me to drink over and over and over again. But you know what I realized about two years after I learned this clenched fist prayer and I would release things to God and it was working in my life and it was starting to pay dividends? I realized something. That as long as I held that thing in my hand, I was incapable of receiving anything from God. But the minute I opened my hand and I released it, I had opened my hand to receive God's grace. You know, by offering mercy to you, I receive grace for myself. And that's the great news in the fourth step. And one of the things I believe that the fourth step is designed to teach us. As a matter of fact, if you stay around here long enough, one of the great truths of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the great truths of the fourth step is it's really never about you. It's always about me. 
It goes on to say in the next paragraph, we avoid retaliation or argument. I want to point out it does not say there we return fire. Okay? Yeah, I know, I know. We avoid retaliation or argument. As a matter of fact, here's a little spiritual principle that I learned. Is it's impossible to be adversarial towards somebody who's always on your side. Right? Think about it for a minute. Right? As a matter of fact, in this other book that I read, it says that when you're kind to someone who's nothing but evil to you, you heap piles of hot coals on their head. What does that mean? It means that when I'm consistently and constantly nice to someone who's nothing but mean to me, you do that over a long enough period of time, and let me tell you something, they're going to end up feeling like a big jerk. Right? And that's why this other guy, this carpenter that lived a few thousand years ago, used to say that when someone wrongs you, don't return evil for evil. Instead, turn the other cheek. Right? Because somebody who continues to wrong you will inevitably feel bad for doing that if you consistently show love and kindness to them. And if you don't believe that, that will people take advantage of you? You bet. You can write it down. You follow the Alcoholics Anonymous. You live this way of life. You be kind and loving towards all people. Are some people going to take advantage of you? You bet they are. You bet they are. But guess what? When, even when that happens, I still win because I get peace and I get contentment and I get a sense of purpose. Think about it. It goes on to say, we wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we'd destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. And then it brings us to the last part of the inventory that most people miss. It says, referring to our list again and putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely look for our own mistakes. So now I have, there's two directions. First of all, I have to put out of my mind the wrongs others have done. That's the first thing. When I go to column four in my inventory, I've written the first three columns. When I go to what, where was my wrong, I have to put out of my, wrong, my mind what they did. And I have to resolutely look for my own mistake. Where had I been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? Though the situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them again, top to bottom. We admitted our, uh, we placed them before us in black and white. And I always tell the people I sponsor, that's black ink, white paper. Very simple, right? It says, we admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. It goes on to talk about fear. And I don't know about any of you. There are two kinds of people that I've taken through the steps. And I've taken enough people through the steps to know this. There are people that are fear-driven people. And there are people that are resentment-driven people. Right? Usually people either have 20 pages of resentments and 2 pages of fears. Or they have 2 pages of resentments and 20 pages of fears. Right? True. True story. I have always been a fear-driven person. Right? I was angry at some people when I got here. But I was much more in fear. Fear that you were going to find out about me. Fear that you wouldn't like me. Fear that I would lose something that I had. As the 12 by 12 says on page 76, you can make a note. It says, my primary activator of my defects of character is self-centered fear. Fear that I would lose something that I had or that I would not get something that I demanded. Right? And that's how I lived my life. I was constantly in fear. And the book says, and we're not going to talk too much about fear in the interest of time, it says that fear is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. And that it set in motion trains of circumstances that brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? As a matter of fact, if you want to know the mission statement of the entire fourth step, it's that statement. 
Did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? The whole purpose of the fourth step is for me to see in living color how I myself set the ball rolling. In the third step, it says invariably we will find that at some time in the past we've made decisions based on self, column four, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. You remember examples, Bill's example on page 65 of Mr. Brown. He said he was mad at Mr. Brown because of his attention to the wife, told the wife of his mistress, and Brown was going to get his job at the office. Right? So what was Bill's fault in that example? Well, first of all, he had a mistress, didn't he? Right? Second of all, he says he's going to lose his job. Brown's going to get his job at the office, but we also know that he's padding his expense account. That's probably why Brown's going to get his job at the office. So let me ask you a question. Do you think Bill was selfish? Do you think he was dishonest? Do you think he was self-seeking and frightened? Do you think he was inconsiderate? And what we really see, and this is the key to the whole inventory process and why we write the inventory as it's outlined in the big book. The whole of the key to the inventory process is that column five becomes column one. You see, if Bill hadn't been selfish, if he hadn't been dishonest, if he hadn't been self-seeking and frightened, and if he hadn't been inconsiderate, would he have had the resentment towards Brown in the first place? No. You see, I walk into the inventory, and I remember writing my inventory, and I sat down with my sponsor to share my inventory. And I really believed when I sat down to share my inventory that this was going to be my big chance to tell him all about what they did to me. And I sat down and I began sharing my inventory. And resentment after resentment and fear after fear, he would point out to me, Rob, can you see how your actions caused this? Rob, can you see how it wasn't the police that pulled you over? It was the fact that you were drinking and driving. Rob, can you see how the reason you got arrested wasn't because the cops happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? It was because you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing. And time after time, I could see it. And it's like the lights went on for the first time. What I realized is I came into the inventory believing that I was the victim. But I came out the end of the inventory realizing that I was the perpetrator. I was the guy that caused nearly every resentment and every fear and every harm that I had done in my life. It all came back to me. It all came home to roost. We're going to turn for a second to page 68. I'm just going to spend a couple minutes on this. Now about sex. Oh, yeah. You know, if when I get a guy, and this is true, I sponsor a lot of guys, and I sponsor, so I've sponsored some women too, and, you know, whenever I get a guy that calls me in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning ready to commit homicide or suicide, it's always about a relationship. I'm telling you, right? And I think alcoholics are more screwed up in this area than most people. Why? Because the book says we're enthusiasts. We run to extremes, right? We run to extremes. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a guy I sponsor call me up and said, I love her. She's the love of my life. And three weeks later, he'll call me up and say, I hate her. I can't stand to be around her, right? It's true, right? And so it's not odd that we are screwed up in this area, right? But incidentally, what they talk about in the big book, and I've taken a lot of men and women through the sex inventory, it's not about the sex act. Now, I know that's disappointing for some people, okay? But what they really talk about in the sex inventory is about two things. My motives, why I do what I do, and my ideals. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I can, I'm here to tell you that I did not have an ideal for my sex life. I did what I wanted, when I wanted, with whoever I wanted. Right? 
And I'm not proud of that, but that's the way I live my life. Right? But the book gave me some principles for how to change my behavior in that area. And I'll talk about that in a minute. It says, now about sex, many of us needed an overhauling there. But above all, we tried to be sensible on this track. Everybody under circle that word sensible. And the reason I'm having you circle that word is that doesn't come naturally for alcoholics. Right? It says it's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is the lust of our lower nature, the base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we don't have enough of it, or it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare. The other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. And then it says something interesting. It says, we want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiters of anyone's sex conduct. Everybody underline that. You know what I wrote right here in my book? Neither do I. I don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct either. And it's going to tell me why. It's going to tell me that my sex powers are God-given, not Rob-given. They're God-given, therefore good, right? It says that counsel with other people is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. Do you remember what we read in the third step on the bottom of page 60? It says the first requirement is step three, that I have to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And at the bottom of page 62, he follows up on that by saying, first of all, we had to quit playing God. Right? And you know what that means? That includes in sponsorship. You see, I don't have the power to manage my own life. What makes me think that I have the power to manage your life? But there are some people that get in here and they get sober for a little while and they think suddenly that they're qualified to manage everyone else's life around them. And that's not my job in sponsorship. When we get into sponsorship in the last session today, I'll share with you a little principle that I have. I'll share it now, but I'll share it again then. And my spirit, my principle on sponsorship is very simple, is that they have a God, and I'm not it. And I don't try to do for the people that I sponsor what God can do better. I try to give them first aid. I try to lay the simple kit of spiritual tools at their feet. I try to help them any way that I can. But guess what? I'm not in charge of their sex, their sex life. That's between them and God. I can counsel them, but I try to give them spirit. My job as a sponsor is to lead them to the spiritual principles. And then really, God and them do the work. And that's why I tell the people I sponsor, if you make it, I'll take 1% of the credit. And if you get drunk, I'll take 1% of the blame. The rest of it's between you and God. But I will know that I gave you the clear-cut directions on how to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's my part. It says here, in the middle of the page, we reviewed our conduct over the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? And when I write my sex inventory, and when I have people write their sex inventory, that's one of the important questions, is what should I have done instead? Right? The book says that we all have sex problems, and that's true. Right? As a matter of fact, I've heard enough inventories, men and women, young and old, black and white, gay and straight, okay, to tell you that we all have sex problems. Right? And you know what? Everybody thinks that they're different. Everybody thinks that their problems are unique. Everybody thinks that they're the only one that feels that way, that they're not good enough. Right? 
that they, they're not going to be pleasing to other people, right? That, you know, as a matter of fact, most of the people whose inventories I've heard, if, if they're really honest about it, they're not even comfortable with their own body naked in front of another person, truthfully, you know? And that's sad. But as a result of writing inventory, I can get through some of that stuff. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what should I have done instead? And you know what I found when I wrote my sex inventory? When I got it down on paper and I asked myself, did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? A lot of bitterness. A lot of bitterness. Because you know what it was for me? It wasn't what I should have done. It was what I shouldn't have done. Because I'm the kind of guy that I try to get my sex instinct met. And a lot of times it wasn't even about sex. It was about that I wanted a relationship, a personal relationship with you, and I didn't know how to have that, right? Or I wanted something from you, and I didn't know how to have that, and I didn't know how to get that any other way, so I would resort to sex. Sometimes we use sex as a weapon, don't we? Sometimes we use it to get what we want or to manipulate someone else. And my experience is that when I start using my sex power for what they were not intended for, that's when I start having troubles in my sex life. And you know what? It's interesting that we have some principles by which we can live in this book. And it's going to tell us in the next sentence what we do to start developing a better life in, in our relationships with others. And by the way, because these are general principles, we can apply these not only to our sexual relationships, but any relationship that we have. If you want to have a successful relationship, try applying these principles to your relationships with the people around you and see what happens. It says we got this down on paper and we looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. Everybody underline that. Whenever I take somebody through the inventory and they write there, we talk about their sex conduct. And then on the back of their sex inventory, we have them write their sex ideal for their future sex life. And an ideal is nothing more than a guiding force or principle for my future sex life. And I'm here to tell you, when I wrote my sex inventory and I looked at it, I saw, you know what I saw? I thought for a long time, that I had 50 different relationships with 50 different women. And you know what I found out? I didn't. I had one relationship with 50 different women, right? It was the exact same relationship over and over and over again. It was a different face and a different name, but it was the same relationship, and it always ended up the same way. Why? And I remember my sponsor saying to me, Rob, what's the common denominator here, right? And I said, they're all brunettes? He went, no. You, my friend, you are the common denominator here, right? And, and it hit me, right? I was the common denominator. And until I did something different, I was going to have the same relationship over and over again. And if you're here and you're in a relationship and maybe it's not working, and I tell the guys I sponsor this all the time, if you don't change yourself and your behavior in your relationship, guess what? You will repeat the same relationship in the next relationship that you're in. And I've seen it time and time again. It's like switching seats on the Titanic. It says here, and so the ideal. So they write their ideal. And what I have the guys I sponsor do is they write three or four things of how they want to live their life based on what they believe and what they believe God would have them do. And here's the important thing. I don't look at it. right? And you know why I don't look at it? Because it's not between me and them. That's between them and God. I sponsored a lot of different people. And I'm here to tell you, some of them, what's okay for them and God may not be okay for me. And what may be okay for me may not be okay for them. So that's between them and God. But I can tell you this, and I can tell you the power of this in my life, is that from that day when I wrote my sex ideal to this, I have never again had issues in that area because I have always lived up to my sex ideal. And I've asked God to mold my ideals and help me live up to them. 
And so I've gotten able to get straight in that area. You see, for me, a lot of other things have gone as a result of the 12 steps other than just my drinking. Gambling. I don't gamble anymore. Cigarette smoking 15 years ago. Problems in my relationships with other people, right? Being an asshole, right? And that was a big one. And you know why? I remember one year somebody said to me, well, what are you giving up for Lent? I said, well, I'm giving up being an asshole. And they said, they said well, you're supposed to give up being... They said, they said uh, you're supposed to give up something you enjoy. I said, I'm giving up being an asshole, right? <laughs> Page 70, middle of the page says, to sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. And this takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. And now he begins by summing up what we've been trying to do in the fourth step. And incidentally, this is the first place in our book that I find where this personality change, this psychic change, this spiritual experience that we've been talking about starts to happen, is when I've completed my fourth step. Listen to what it says. It says, if we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we've written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility, and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. Everybody underline that. First evidence that the personality change has started to happen. It says, We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you'll read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from. Everybody underline that. Notice that it doesn't say he's removed it yet. As Chuck Chamberlain used to say, that the process of the steps is really about three things. It's really about uncover, discover, and discard. The only thing that we've done in step four is uncover and begin to discover what those things are. What we do in five through nine is we begin to discard those things with God's help. You know, we talk about character defects. And what is a character defect? A character defect is the defective parts of my character. That's what it is. And when we get into that in the next hour, we're going to talk in depth about what those character defects are in my life. But if I can begin with God's help to remove those defects of character, those defective parts of my character, then guess what happens? All of the good parts of my character can come to the forefront. All of the things that were there all along can begin to show. You know, I don't believe I'm any closer to God today than I was the day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? But you know what I do believe? I do believe that I was blocked off from that power. And that as a result of working the 12 steps, I was able to remove those things that blocked me off from Him and uncover what was there all the time. There's a guy that I read some of his books. He's actually an Eastern philosophy guy from, from uh, India. And one of the things he talks about is this great radio transmitter that we have. And he says that we have this radio transmitter to God. And he says, and sometimes the things in our life can create static. And we can create so much static in our own life that we can't hear the voice of God. And really, the fourth step for me was my first step away to reducing that chatter so I could begin to hear the voice of God in my life. And when I had gotten done writing my fourth step, I realized that I wasn't the victim. I was the perpetrator. 
I was the guy that caused this. And so I was running to my fifth step because I knew I had to be rid of this stuff or I would drink again. Let's take a five-minute break. All right. We're going to start on page 72 in the big book. The chapter entitled, Into Action. You know, I, I think it's interesting that there, I, I believe that there's a spiritual truth in each step. And it, I'm not talking about these spiritual principles that somebody came up with, up with after the steps were written and they assigned a spiritual principle to each one of them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that there's a spiritual truth, I think, behind each step that has been recognized, that I've recognized in my own life. Oh, sorry. That I've recognized in my own life. And you know, the, the spiritual truth behind step three, we found that we actually find it. It's that I'm not God. Right? That's a spiritual truth. That was, and that was a revelation for me. Right? I'm not God. And people say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know? Now, I really didn't believe I was God. But I can tell you this. I was certainly acting like I was. I was certainly, if you'd looked at my actions, my actions dictated that I did believe that, right? I think that the spiritual truth behind the fourth step is I'm not the victim. I'm the perpetrator, right? And I think that the spiritual truth behind step five, and this was hard for me to grasp, is that I'm unable to feel good until I'm willing to look bad, right, to one other person. Because I was the kind of guy that I would sit in silence and I would suffer because I wasn't going to share that stuff that I'd hidden with anybody because I was so ashamed and so remorseful about it. I had so many things that I had done that I didn't feel very good about. And I was just hoping that they would go to the grave with me and that I would never have to think about them. And at the top of page 72, Bill starts talking about some of the things that should have happened as a result of doing a thorough fourth step. It's what I call the statement of purpose of the fourth step. It says, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude. That's the first thing we've been trying to do. And a new relationship with our Creator. And to discover, again, remember what Chuck Chamberlain says, uncover, discover, and discard. It says the obstacles in our path. We have admitted certain defects in column four and five. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. When are they going to be cast out? So when do I do my fifth step after my fourth step is written? Exactly, right? And it's going to reiterate that. It's going to reiterate that when we get to page 74 and page 75. We'll get there, I promise you. It's going to tell me when I should do my fourth step or my fifth step after my fourth step is written. It says we have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part. Everybody underline that. As I said earlier, there's no chapter in our book called Into Thinking. The chapter is called Into Action. As a matter of fact, they once asked Bill Wilson, could you sum up the program of AA in a few words? You know what he said? He said, I'll sum it up in three words for you. Action, action, 
action. And that's the truth. Next paragraph. Uh, this is perhaps difficult, especially when discussing our defects with another person. We think we have done well enough in admitting these things to ourselves. There is doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. Everybody underline that. Very important concept. Because one of the truths of step five is, I am unable to see my own defects of character. Right? As my friend Vic L. says, there's an old Russian, Russian saying, a man can't see his own ears. Right? And that's true. I can't see my own ears. You can see it. And that's why I need sponsorship. This is one of the reasons that I need sponsorship. And we'll talk more about that when we get to step 10. It says I'm also prey to all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. And I can justify it. And that's why I have a sponsor. That's why, this is why self-sponsorship does not work for a guy like me. And it doesn't work for most people who are alcoholics of my type. Because I can rationalize the most ridiculous crap ever. And I need a sponsor who sells me things like, keep it practical, be practical, right? Put God first. Why don't you stop thinking about yourself and think about the newcomer? These are things I wouldn't come to. And in actual practice, I usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. And I've been doing this for over 25 years. So you'd think that you would get better at self-appraisal. And I have gotten better. But it doesn't, it never ceases to amaze me how I will write inventory and I will think I know what the situation is very clearly. And I will go share that with my sponsor. And he will give me a completely different perspective on the situation than I ever would have come to myself. And really that's the job of a sponsor. The job of a sponsor really is to lead us in a direction we are unable to go on our own. You see, if I could pull myself up by my bootstrap, if I could do the job myself, then I wouldn't need you. But my experience was that I couldn't find God until I found someone that could help me find God. You know, there's an old saying. One of the speakers in AA says that, you know, that I, I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I sought myself, but I couldn't find me. But when I sought my brother, I found all three. And that really is true. Is that I need someone else to help me find that God in my understanding. It goes on to say here, the best, uh, many of us thought it necessary to go much further. We will be much more reconciled at discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first, for those of you who are new, if you want to know why you need to do a fifth step, here it is right here. The best reason first, if we skip this vital step, which means life-sustaining, we may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves Certain facts about their lives. Everybody underline that. Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. And I wrote right here in my book, they still do. It says almost invariably they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but they hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. But they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else 
all of their life story. That means all of the stuff that we've hidden, all of the things that we're ashamed of, all of the things that we don't want to share with another human being. And I'm here to tell you, it says here that time after time, what do we do? We try to keep to ourselves certain facts about our lives. And I'm here to tell you, every person that I've ever worked with and taken through the steps had what I had. When I came to AA, I had the one thing, right? I had the one thing. And you know what the one thing is? It was the thing that I was so ashamed of and so fearful of that I, did, I couldn't even bear to think about it. I couldn't even, I pretended like it didn't happen for a long time. I made it up in my mind that that really didn't happen. It was just a bad dream so that I could justify it so I didn't have to deal with it. And I remember I would sit in meetings where they would be discussing the steps and the fifth step would come up. And people would be talking about the freedom. And they'd be talking about how much relief they got. And I would sit there and I would think about the one thing. And it was the one thing I wasn't going to share with anybody. Right? You know, they talk about in our book, as I said, about the spiritual malady. And what I didn't realize is that the spiritual malady in me was all centered around that one thing that I had hidden. Right? And as I said, they talk about the spiritual malady in a couple of different places, but I think that the best place where it's talked about is right here on page 73. People ask me all the time, well, Rob, what page of the big book describes you and your life the best? And this was it for me right here. When I read the big book the first time, it was page 73, the next two paragraphs. It really described my personality to a T. It says, more than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but he knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. Right? You know, I was unwilling for a long time to tell people where I was. To tell people where I was. And I always use the analogy that it was impossible for anyone to help me in Alcoholics Anonymous because I was unwilling to talk about where I was at. It would be no different than if you said to me, hey, Rob, can you give me directions from getting from Winter Garden to Orlando? I could give you the directions, right? You go out here, you take Main Street, you go down, take 50, you take 50 all the way into Orlando. That's how you get there, right? But let's suppose that I wasn't honest with you about where I was. Let's suppose I wasn't in Winter Garden, right? Let's suppose I was in Claremont. I could give you the directions on how to get from Winter Garden to Orlando, but if I'm not honest about where I am, you can't give me the directions on how to get to where I want to go. Make sense? And that's what kept me sick and kept me out of Alcoholics Anonymous, is I was unable to reveal certain facts about my life to another person. And I was this guy here. I wanted to live this double life. You see, I was the kind of guy that I always felt like my experience wasn't good enough. Like somehow I didn't seem to measure up. Somehow it just always felt to me like I was inferior to, less than, and not up to the same standards as everyone around me. See, I'm the kind of guy that I've got to be twice as good as you just to feel average. Because if I'm the same, just as good as you, I feel like I'm less than somehow. And I don't know why that happens to a guy like me. right? But that's been something that I struggled with my whole life before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? And so you know what I did? In an effort to combat that, is I developed this fictitious stage character that they talk about here in order to make myself feel a part of and in order to make myself feel like I was good enough. Right? 
And so I would tell these stories. I would take a story based in truth and I would make it better than it was just so I could feel like I fit in. Right? I'm the kind of guy that, you know, I bought my car, I paid $17,000 for it. But I won't tell you I paid $17,000 for it. I'll tell you I either got it for 700 bucks or I paid $70,000 for it, right? I either got to tell you I got the best deal ever for it, right? Or I spent a fortune on it, right? Because for me, just telling you I spent $17,000 on my car just doesn't seem adequate enough, right? So I've got to make up these stories to make myself seem better than I am. Because I believe in my heart that if I make myself seem better than I am, maybe I'll feel about me the way that you think about me, right? Do you know what I didn't know? What I didn't know is the very things that I was doing to make myself feel a part of were actually making me feel more alienated. Why? Because I said to myself, well, if you ever knew the truth, if you ever really knew me, then you'd feel about me the way I feel about me. If you knew the liar and the cheat and the phony that I was, then you'd feel like I feel about me. You know, I think one of the greatest gifts in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're going to talk about it on page 75, is that once I've taken these steps withholding nothing, that I can be alone at perfect peace and ease. See, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous two halves. And somehow by working these steps, the person on the outside and the person on the inside got to meet for the first time. Truly. And I didn't have to be that fictitious stage character anymore. And I didn't have to put on this this act for you anymore. Right? As a, and as a matter of fact, that's why I say, if you want to know about me, come hang out with me. And I can assure you of this, that the same Rob Mason that you hear talking to you today from the podium is the same Rob Mason I am at work. It's the same Rob Mason I am with my kids. It's the same Rob Mason that I am at the detox on Friday night. It's the same Rob Mason I am when I'm just out in the public. Because that's just a part of who I am. Because I don't have to be that fictitious stage character anymore. You know, I had a sponsor, and he once said that the ism in alcoholism stands for I separate myself. And that really is true. I would, without thinking about it, subconsciously, I would separate myself from you, I would separate myself from me, and I would separate myself from God. And I think one of the great gifts of this program is that I don't have to be separated anymore. I don't have to be separated from you, and I don't have to be separated from me. And as a result of that, I don't have to be separated from God, because I have steps four through nine to get me realigned when I'm feeling blocked off from that power greater than myself. It goes on to say, in the next paragraph, the inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think that someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension. And then what happens? That makes for more drinking. You know, you know. I used to think for a long time that people got away with stuff. You know, I thought for a long time that I could get away with stuff. But one of the great truths of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've learned in my brief time here is that no one really ever gets away with nothing. You know, It all comes home to roost sooner or later. And I've heard enough inventories to tell you that it all comes home to roost. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a quick story that some of you have heard about a guy that I sponsored in California, a guy by the name of John. And John was a guy that came right out of San Quentin prison. And John was full tax, big, huge guy, right? 
As a matter of fact, the way I came to sponsor John is kind of funny. My sponsor was scared of him, and so he asked my sponsor to sponsor him. So my sponsor said, uh, Rob will sponsor you, you know. So I ended up sponsoring John the convict, right? And so here I am, you know, I'm like three years sober, you know, my tail's wagging, you know. I'm like, hey, John, you know. <laughs> John's like, uh. And I was scared of John, too. You know, John's a pretty scary guy, you know, but I did what I was supposed to do. I took the guy through the steps because that's what I was supposed to, because that's what I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Because it doesn't matter. Park place to park French and Yale to jail. And so I took John. We did the first, we went through the first four chapters of doctor's opinion. I got him down on his knees. We did the third step prayer. I had him write his inventory. And I remember we got together to do his fifth step, right? John the convict, right? Me and John the convict are doing his, his inventory, right? So we're sitting there and we're going through his inventory. And it was the, and it was the normal stuff, you know. It was the normal stuff. It was the stuff that I expected to hear. You know, John had been in corrections facilities for his whole life since he was like 13 years old, you know. He went from juvenile hall to state to county jail to federal prison, you know. And he'd been institutionalized most of his adult life, you know. And in the interim of when he was out, he had a couple of kids. He had some women that he'd been involved in. And it was the same story as the father that abused him. It was the mother that left. It was, you know, all of those types of things. And, and I listened to his inventory, and I tried to counsel him, you know, as we're supposed to do when we hear somebody's fifth step. And, and we got to the end of his inventory. We did his sex conduct, his sex ideal. And we got to the end of his inventory. And I asked him the questions that I ask everybody when, when, uh, when they're done with their inventory. And one of the questions that I asked them is I said, John, is there, is there anything else that you're going to wish you had told me that you haven't shared with me? Is there anything that you're going to wish you'd shared with another human being, understanding that this process won't work if we're not thorough and honest? You know? And he said, he said, no, there's, not, there's nothing else. And so I gave him a hug like I usually do. You know? And I said, all right, well, and I sent him home. I said, if you think of anything, you know, between now and you get home to do your sixth and seventh step prayer, uh, I want you to call me. And I got up to walk away, and I remember this hand grabbed my shoulder, and I thought, this is it. This is where he kills me, you know? <laughs> and I turned around, and John had this look on his face. And he couldn't even look me in the eyes. And he had this look on his face like he'd lived in hell. And he said, there's one other thing. And John began to tell me about some things that happened to him in prison when he was 18 years old. Things that some of us have heard about, but most of us will never have to endure. And John talked about how ashamed he felt and how hurt he was and how he'd never been able to share that with another person and how it had affected his relationships with women in his life and how it had caused him to be violent and aggressive and that he felt so bad. And I remember John put his head on my shoulder and he started to cry. And I just sit there and I put my arms around him. And he cried for 45 minutes. He couldn't stop. And it reminded me one of the great truths of Alcoholics Anonymous. That nobody gets away with anything here. It always comes home to roost sooner or later. And that was the one thing that was going to keep John drunk. Right? That was the one thing that was going to keep John out of AA. And by being able to share that with another human being, he was able to get free of that, right? And he was able to work the rest of the steps and try to help other people. 
and sponsor guys out of the penitentiary that had had the same experience, that had had the same things happen to them that had happened to him, right? That even out of something so horrible, something good can happen, right? And as I stated in the introduction to my talk, is that our God is such a powerful God that he can take something so bad and so broken and so imperfect and make something good out of it. What a great God we have, huh? Page 75. Actually, we're going to start at the bottom of 74. It says, Notwithstanding the great necessity for discussing ourselves, it may be that one is so situated that no suitable person is available. Everybody underline that. And you know what I wrote right there? You can write this in your book. Call Rob Mason. Okay? If there is no suitable person available... In your circle of people, okay? I'm serious, okay? If there is no suitable person for you to share your inventory with, man or woman, young or old, gay or straight, black or white, doesn't matter to me, you call me. You have no more excuse because you can't share your inventory. And let me tell you something. I have heard over 300 inventory. And when you've heard that many, and, and let me t- say, just say this. The inventory is always more daunting for the person telling it than the person hearing it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you think that we're paying attention. We sort of are. You know what I'm saying? We, we sort of are. You know what I'm saying? But it's much more meaningful to you than it is to us. Okay? And here, you know, that's true. When you've heard that many inventories, you know, I'm waiting for somebody to come up with something new. It's always the same stuff. You know, my mother did this. My father did that. You know, screwed up relationships. And, you know, I, you know, I had sex with this person I shouldn't have. And, you know, and, you know, so forth. It's, it's all the same stuff. And when you've heard enough inventory, I, I mean, I've heard it all, you know? I've heard it all. I'm, I'm just waiting for somebody to surprise me with something. You know what I'm saying? And it's true. And you know, but you know what's the interesting thing? I remember when I heard my first inventory. And again, my tail's wagging. I'm like a year sober. You know what I'm saying? And this, my sponsor said, look, you need to take somebody else through the steps. You know? And I remember listening to this guy's inventory, right? And I think we all secretly believe that we're the only one that feels the way that we are, we do, right? That we secretly believe in our heart. I'm the only one that struggles with this stuff. I'm the only one that feels this way. I'm the only one that feels these insecurities. And I remember listening to this guy's inventory. And my mouth must have hung open. He must have thought it was like him, but it it wasn't about him. As as I'm listening to this guy's inventory, I realize something. And I've realized it with every inventory I've heard since then. Men and women, young and old, gay and straight. Is that really we're all the same. The same fears, the same resentments the same insecurities, the same I don't feel good about myself, the same I'm so ashamed that I did these things and I can't share it with anybody else. And I realized that he's just like me. And I fell in love with that guy. Not literally, but figuratively. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I fell in love with that guy. And I've been in love with Alcoholics Anonymous ever since because that was the thing for me that opened the door, was being of service to another person, being able to see the change happen in them. Middle of page 75 Or actually, top of 75, it says, When we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. I think that's a timetable. It says, We have a written inventory. We're prepared for a long talk. We explain to our partner what we are about to do and why we have to do it. He should realize that we are engaged upon a life and death errand. Everybody underline that. Step five, life and death errand. Very important concept. You know what that means? It means that when I have somebody that has a fifth step to share with me, I will change plans, break appointments, and do whatever I need to do to hear their fifth step. Because you know what I believe? I believe it's the fifth step of the program of recovery that in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, 
puts the disease of alcoholism into remission. And I'll show you why I believe that in the next paragraph. Okay? Because my experience is that until someone gets through the fifth step, they are in danger of drinking. And this is why we get the one, two, three wolves. One, two, three, don't want to deal with that stuff, I'll go drink. One, two, three, I don't want to deal with that stuff, I'll go drink. But once they write the inventory and share it, in most cases, they are able to stay sober thereafter, right? As long as they've done it honestly and thoroughly. And I've taken enough people to, and that's why I push guys right through. When I give them the fourth step, I say, uh, you've got about five days to get this done. That's it. No more than that, no less than that. So that means we're making an appointment for this Friday at three o'clock to do your inventory, right? Because if you tell an alcoholic, here's your inventory and take as long as you want, they're going to take as long as they want, let me tell you. Okay? So I put them on a time frame to keep them moving, right? It says we pocket our pride and go at it, illuminating, which means shining light upon every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. It says once we have taken this step, withholding nothing. That's the question we ask. Have I withheld anything? We are delighted. We can work the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. I've begun to make peace with myself. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. Now listen to this. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. Compulsion removed. We feel as though we are on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Everybody take your 12 by 12 and open to page 57. Is it 57? 57 at the bottom. I don't have my 12 by 12. They loan me one. How many people here know that there's really two fellowships in Alcoholics Anonymous? How many people here know that? I know a few of you know that. I know Pete and Lisa know that back there. There's two fellowships in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? There's the fellowship of the fellowship. That's what we're all enjoying today. But there's another fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous that Bill talks about on the last page of the text. It's called the Fellowship of the Spirit, right? And you see, I thought for a long time... You're a member of AA when you say you are. I thought that that meant I was part of the Fellowship of the Spirit, but I was wrong about that. Right? And I thought by sharing my inventory with my sponsor that that would be enough. Okay? But you know what I found out? I found out that that wasn't enough. Right? That that wasn't enough. That there had to be something else that I needed to do in order to join this Fellowship of the Spirit. And it's talked about here in the 12 by 12. Let's see what it says in the last paragraph on 57. It says, When we reach AA and for the first time in our lives stood among people who seemed to understand, the sense of belonging was tremendously exciting. It says we thought the isolation problem had been solved. But we soon discovered that while we weren't alone anymore in the social sense, we still suffered many of the old pangs of anxious apartness. You know what that means? It means I can be in a room full of people like this, and I can still feel totally alone and isolated, right? And that's how I felt when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, time after time after time. I still felt that sense that even though I wasn't alone socially anymore, I still felt separated from you. Right? But listen to what it says. It says, until we had talked with complete candor of our conflicts, told someone else our fifth step, and had heard someone else do the same thing, we still didn't belong. 
Step five was the answer, it says. It says it was the beginning of a true kinship between man and God. You see, I'm the member of the fellowship of the fellowship as soon as I say that I am. And no one can say that I can't. And thank God they can't. But in order for me to become a member of the fellowship of the Spirit, I not only have to tell someone else my fifth step, I not only have to work the 12 steps, I have to help someone else to do the same thing. And that's when the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous began to happen for me. Because all of a sudden I went from feeling like I was on the outside of AA to feeling like I was in the center of AA. To feel like I had a place and a purpose here. To feeling like that I was doing something that mattered. You know, I always tell people that I'm rich and I'm rich all right, but I'm not rich in the things of this world. I'm rich in the things that money can't buy. I'm rich in things like peace and contentment and a sense of purpose. And those are things that no amount of monetary value can be placed upon. And it was a result of doing things like helping someone else. Whenever I send somebody home to do their fifth step, bottom of page 75, it says returning home. Does that say going to a meeting? I get people that do that. Well, I'm going to go to a meeting. That's not what it says. It says we return home if we're lucky enough to have a home, right? We find a place where we can be quiet for how long? Not 60 days? No? Is that what that says right there? And I have people that read it that way. We find a place where we can be quiet for 60 days, right? Because they want to take a break. Oh, I've done my fifth step. I deserve to take a break. But that's not what the book says. And if we're going to follow the precise and clear-cut directions, we find them exactly as they're outlined in the text. And I always leave them with a couple of thoughts. Number one, is there anything you haven't told me that you, you want to share with me, right? Is there any sick sexual stuff that you have not disclosed for me yet, right? That we have not already talked about, right? Because that stuff comes up sometimes, right? And incidentally, on that sick sexual stuff, right? I mean, I, listen, I've, I've heard it all. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm telling you, I've heard it all. I, I know you think you're the only one, but you're not, right? I mean, I, you know, so you, so you had sex with a sheep. That's pretty bad, but you know what I'm saying? It's, it's... The sheep didn't die. That's the good news, right? It says, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, right? Knock it off over there. <laughs> and the other question that I always ask them, and, and, and there's a reason that I ask this, and this was given to me several years ago by a guy named Scott L. from, from Nashville, Tennessee, is I asked them, have you ever been involved in an abortion, right? And I'll tell you why I asked them that question, because number one, it's something that a lot of times people don't think about. But when I was 17 years old, I paid for a girl that I was dating to have an abortion, right? And that was the one thing that I wasn't going to share with anybody. And I pretended like it didn't happen for a long time because I was so ashamed of it, right? And I was able to get free of that, right? I was able to get free of that. And incidentally, I wondered for a long time how I could possibly make amends for that. And you know what I found out later? We'll talk about it in the next session. There is a way to make an amends for that, believe it or not. It's outlined in our book. So if you're sitting here today and you've had that experience and, and you don't know how to get free of that, well, that's something that's on your heart like it was on my heart for year after year after year and it kept me drunk and it was something that I drank over year after year after year. I'm here to tell you I've helped a lot of men and a lot of women get free of that. There is a way. So come talk to me after the meeting. It says, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. 
It says we thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. It doesn't say we know him well. It just says we know him better. And then it says taking this book down from the shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. That's page 59. Carefully reading the first five proposals. We ask if we have omitted anything, right? And I always tell people, get quiet in that hour. And my experience is in the quiet, okay, the truth will come to you. The truth will come to you, right? Like Clancy says, he says, you may be able to lie to me, and you may be able to lie to yourself, but you can't lie to the dark in the middle of the night, you know? You can't lie to the quiet, right? The truth will come to you. It says, for we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? If we can answer to our satisfaction, then we look at step six. Now, I want to observe that one of the things they told me when I started working the steps was, in the big book where they write long, we work long. And where they write short, we work short. Okay? So as an example, right, they gave us 60 pages plus the doctor's opinion, 72 pages in all on the first two steps, right? Then they give us three pages on step three, okay? Some work to do there, right? Then they follow that by seven and a half pages on step four. A lot of work to do there, right? Then they follow that with five pages on step five, right? A lot of work to do there. Then they follow that with six lines on step six, seven lines on step seven, and eight lines on step eight, and they follow that with eight pages on step nine. What does that mean? It means there's not a whole lot of work for me to do in steps 6, 7, and 8. But there's a whole lot of work for me to do in step 9. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find out a little bit later on is that there's only one step in our whole program that they dedicate an entire chapter to. And that's chapter 7, working with others. You know what that tells me? It tells me there's an awful lot of work for me to do in helping other people. That's what it tells me. So it was pointed out to me there's really not a lot of work for me to do in step six, seven, and eight. There's some work, but it's not a whole lot of work. And what does step six say? It says we became entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, right? And I've already talked about these defects of character, but it says here we have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all of the things we have admitted are objectionable? Everybody underline that. Can he now take them all, every one? And I'm here to tell you something. There were a lot of things that when I came to AA the first time that were not objectionable to me, that have since become objectionable. And I am a firm believer that God will not do anything to remove my defects of character until I reach a point where they are now objectionable to me. And as soon as that happens, then there's hope for me. Right? Don Pritz used to say that until things become object objectionable, God will not come in and have enough, I won't have enough grace to have those things removed. Right? As a matter of fact, when I came into A, and we don't talk about it anymore, but one of the things that they used to say about 6 and 7 is they used to say, well, Rob, if you, it was a very complex concept for a guy like me. They used to say things like, well, if you do good, you feel good. And if you do bad, you feel bad. And I went, what a concept. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't know about you, but you know the kind of guy I am? I want to do bad and feel good. Right? I want to be in trouble. right? I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with who I want to do it, but I want to still feel good. And I'd like to tell you that that worked for me, but it did not. Right? 
it did not. So I had to be willing to have those things removed. As a matter of fact, one of my mentors tells a story that I've often repeated because it talks about what we talk about in 6 and 7. It's the, it was a story about this young Indian. And this young Indian brave, and, and he was conflicted. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was conflicted. I had the same problem as the young Indian brave, right? So one day, after being conflicted for so long, he decided he was going to go to the elder of the tribe and talk to them about this problem he was having, right? So he went to his version of a psychotherapist, right? The elder of the tribe. And he went to the elder and he said, he said, I, he said, old man, I, I don't understand this. He said, some days I wake up and I just feel like I'm at one with everyone around me. I feel I just want to serve everyone in the tribe, right? And I feel so much love in my heart for everyone around me. He said, but other days I'll wake up and I'll feel like I'm just in conflict and I'm separated from you and I don't, I'm angry at people. I don't like people. He said, why am I like this, right? And the wise elder said, he said, he said, young man, he said, your life is like two dogs in mortal combat to the death. A dog of light, which represents all of the good side of your character, and a dog of darkness, a dark dog, which represents all the negative side of your character. And they're in this epic battle for all eternity to the death. And the young brave said, well, which one wins? And the old man said, whichever one you feed. And you know what? That was my problem before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and since, is that I only got one bowl of food. And guess what happens to the dog that I choose to feed? The dog gets bigger, right? And the dog that I don't feed, it starves. And you know what? I get to choose what dog I feed. I can feed the right dog, the good dog, or I can feed the bad dog. But I can only feed one. And the one I feed gets bigger, and the one I don't feed gets sicker and eventually will die. And that's the great thing about my defects of character, is I get to choose whether I feed those defects of character or not. As a matter of fact, in another book that I read, it says if you resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. What does that mean? It means that if I stop feeding the wrong dog, eventually that dog that has dogged me over and over and over again will get sick and will die because I chose not to feed it. Think about it. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought about a drink every single day. Anybody here like that? I thought about a drink every single day. Why? Because that's what I was used to, right? That's what I was used to. That's what I did. When I quit smoking, oh my God, every 15 minutes I thought about having a cigarette, right? And then the days would go by and I would think about taking a drink less, right? Because I just took the right action. I continued to take the action. And then we, and today, I, you know what? I just forgot to drink today, you know? I just forgot to drink today. Why? Because drinking is not part of what I do anymore because I have acted my way into better thinking. And the same thing is true of my defects of character. If you want to know how to get over your defects of character, it's very simple. We act better than we feel. If I feel like doing something, guess what? I get to choose if I'm going to feed that dog or not. And if I stop feeding that dog long enough, I'm here to tell you my experience has been that that dog will die. It says, when ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Everybody circle the word amen. As I pointed out when we did the third step, there's no amen that comes after the third step prayer. But yet they put it in here after the seventh step prayer. Now this book, I can tell you, was edited by a whole lot of people that looked at it. So it wasn't an oversight that they didn't put it in after the third step prayer. But I believe that there's a reason they didn't put it after the third step, right? Because I believe that on my own, I do not have the ability 
to do an inventory thoroughly and honestly. I don't believe that I have the ability to share my inventory honestly and thoroughly with another human being. I don't believe that I have the ability to see my defects to ask God to remove them on my own. And so as I always tell people, I believe that from the time I do my third step until I complete the seventh step, that I am in a state of prayer. That my life is in a continual state of prayer with God guiding me and assisting me and helping me through that process because I don't think I'd have been able to do it on my own. And the words amen, the word amen means I believe. That's what it means. And what do we believe? We believe that God, we're now ready to have all, you're ready to have all of me. Both the good and the bad. And then it says something interesting that people overlook all the time. Right after the amen, it says we have then completed step seven. Everybody underline that. doesn't say we work on step seven. doesn't say we think about step seven. doesn't say we go to our meeting and pontificate about step seven. It says I go home and I say, I am willing to, I looked at this stuff and I don't want this stuff in my life anymore and I don't want to be this person anymore and God, please help me to not be this person anymore. And I have then completed step seven because I have given it over to God. And I continue to do this and he takes care of the stuff. So I do the possible and he does the impossible. I do the tangible and he does the intangible. John Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist Movement, put it this way. He said, without God, I cannot. But without me, he will not. And my part of this thing is I ask God to remove it. And I do everything that I can to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what God does? He takes care of the rest. Let's take a five minute break. And we're going to start back on page 76 here in the text. And again, I know these uh, sessions get along in the afternoon, but it is what it is. Don't quit five minutes before the miracle. Eventually the miracle will happen and I will stop talking. You know, one, one editorial comment on the sixth and seventh step. I always, I always forget to mention something, and I, and I did forget this point, and it's an important point to, to point out, is on page 73 it talks about that I want to enjoy this certain reputation that I know in my heart I don't deserve. Right? That was the nature of my problem. That was my untreated alcoholism. That was the nature of my spiritual malady. That's what forced me to try to find a solution. It's what forced me to drink. It's what forced me to work the steps is I had to find some relief from myself, right? Because left to my own devices, when I put the plug in the jug, I don't get better, I actually get worse, right? I become restless, irritable, and discontent. But the sixth and seventh step talks about something different. It talks about my character, right? And there's a difference between my reputation and my character, right? You see, I was worried for a long time about my reputation, right? And one of the gifts of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is I don't worry about my reputation anymore. As a matter of fact, if you read AA history, you'll read the story of a guy by the name of Henry Parkhurst. Hank Parkhurst was the first sober member in New York. He was Bill's right-hand man in New York. When Bill went back from Akron after getting Dr. Bob sober and Bill Dodson, and he went back to New York and started the first AA group there. And Hank was his first guy. And Hank was actually a very dominant, predominant figure in AA history because it was actually at Hank's business in New Jersey 
a place called Honors Dealers in New Jersey, where Bill would go and dictate to Ruth Hawk, who would type the words to the big book. Okay? It was Hank Parkhurst who helped try to find get financing for the books. For the book, he was the one that founded the Works Publishing Company. They were taking these stock certificates and going around and trying to get people to spend $50 per share to get stock in the book, right? But Hank Parkhurst was going around and he would he, he had a problem, he had a he had a problem with sex, he had a problem with his sex conduct. And Bill Wilson was his sponsor, and Bill said, Hank, if you don't knock that off, you're going to get drunk. And shortly before the book was written, written, he got drunk. But here's the interesting part of the story. is Hank would go around to the groups and say, Bill Wilson is a liar and a cheat and a thief, and we need to keep the money away from him. Right? True story, right? And some of the groups actually believed him. Right? Because you know how alcoholics are. We like drama, right? Oh, God, we like drama, right? Go to any business meeting, you'll see that, Right? But see, Bill Wilson didn't defend himself. He didn't defend himself. Because you don't need to defend yourself. Because Bill wasn't worried about his reputation in AA. He was worried about his character. right? And that's the great thing when you got the truth on your side. I always tell people, you know what, I don't have to worry when the police are behind me. I don't have to worry about when the boss calls me to his office. You know why? I don't do anything wrong. One of the great truths of AA is that when I work on my character, guess what? My reputation takes care of itself. Three years ago when I got divorced, unfortunately, there were some things said about me in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? And people, some people believe those things. you know. And I talked to my sponsor about it. He said, Rob, don't worry about it. You just do what you do. Right? You just take care of your character and your reputation will take care of itself. So that's all I ever do. I just take care of my character. And so if you want a better reputation in AA, if you want a better reputation at your work or with your friends or with your job, work on your character and see what happens to your reputation. Middle of page 76. I would observe on this page alone, the word now appears four times, right? Are we now ready to let God remove our defects of that character? Can He now take them all, every one? And right after we have now completed step seven, it says now we need more action. So when do we start step eight after we've completed the seventh step prayer? Now, right? What does the word now mean? It means following immediately. That's what it means. So when I send somebody home from their fifth step, I send them home to spend their hour. I tell them if they think of anything while they're spending their hour to call me. And then I wait by the phone. Right? Because more often than not, the phone rings and they say, well, there may have been one small detail I left out. Right? Because that's how we are. Right? And that's okay. And then I say, okay, now that you spent your hour, you're going to ask yourself, am I now ready to let God remove all these defects of character? If the answer is yes, you're going to get on your knees and you're going to do the seven-step prayer. And tomorrow morning, you're going to call me. And we're going to write your eight-step list. So literally, the day after they have done their inventory with me, their fifth step, they are working on their ninth step amends. We write their eighth step list, and they're doing their ninth step amends. And that's very consistent with the way the early members of our program did it. Right? As a matter of fact, if you want to know how the early members did it, keep your finger on page 76 and turn to page 263 in the fourth edition. It's 292 in the third edition. 263 in the 4th edition, 292 in the 3rd edition, which I'm working out of a 3rd edition. 
And it says at the top of the page, now this is Dr. Bob, the co-founder of our program. I suppose he knew something about how to take people through the steps, right? It says, Wednesday in Dr. Bob's afternoon off, he had me down to the office and we spent three or four hours formally going through the six-step program as it was at that time. Not going over, going through the six-step program as it was at that time. The six steps were, and it lists the six steps. It says, Dr. Bob led me through all of these steps. At the, per at the moral inventory, he brought up some of my bad personality traits or character defects, such as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill-temper, sarcasm, and resentment. Now, if that's not taking somebody else's inventory, I don't know what is, right? We went over these at great length, and then he finally asked me if I wanted to have these defects of character removed. When I said yes, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, asking e each of us asking to have these defects taken away. This picture is still vivid. If I live to be 100, it will always stand out in my mind. It was very impressive, and I wish that every AA could have the benefit of this type of sponsorship today, right? Dr. Bob was taking guys through the 12 steps in three or four hours, right? Not three or four days, not three or four weeks. As a matter of fact, if you turn to page 171, 171 real quick, we'll find out just how effective Dr. Bob was at taking guys through the steps in just that manner. In that italic writing at the top of the page, it says, a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, the birth of our society dates from his first day of permanent sobriety, June 10th, 1935. To 1950, the year of his death, he carried the AA message to more than 5,000 alcoholic men and women. And to all these, he gave medical service without thought of charge. Dr. Bob took 5,000 people through the steps exactly the way we just talked about on page 263 in three or four hours. Right? Now, nobody has a problem that Dr. Bob, in 15 years, because he got sober in 1935, he died in 1950 okay, of cancer. Bill Wilson died of emphysema in 1971 in Miami, Florida. Both died of cigarette smoking, by the way. Just want to throw that out there. And, uh, and he took 5,000 people through the steps in 15 years. Right? And people, people have a problem sometimes. They say, well, you've taken 300 people through the steps? That's a lot of people. But nobody has a problem that Dr. Bob took 5,000 people through the steps, right? My sponsor takes people through the steps in one day. They show up at his house in the morning at 8 o'clock. They have to bring donuts, right? Because he likes donuts, right? And he takes them through the first nine steps. And before they leave, guess what? They're working on their ninth step amends on their way home. And he's taken 700 people through the steps that way, Okay? So I'm a piker compared to him, right? Middle of page 76. Now we need more action without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps 8 and 9. We have a list of all persons we have harmed. Everybody circle that word. We're coming back to it. And to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. Now, how many people here have heard that you should burn your inventory? How many people here have heard that? When you're done with your inventory, you should burn your inventory? Well, i got some bad news for you. If you've burned your inventory, you don't have your eight-step list, right? You remember when I said that there's a reason we work the steps and that we do the four-step the way it's outlined in the book? And here's one of the reasons why, probably the most important reason, is because if you do it the way it's outlined in the book, you have all the information you need to do step five, 
step six, step seven, step eight, step nine, and I have my guys start the tenth step right on the back of their inventory, right? If you do it some other way, you may or may not have that information. Make sense to everybody? Right? So we made our list when we took inventory. The word harm is an interesting word. How do I know if I've harmed somebody? Well, in the 12 by 12, we don't have to turn there, but in the 12 by 12, Bill defines it this way. He says, what kind of harm do people do each other anyway? He said that a harm is the result of instincts in collision, which cause spiritual, mental, emotional, or physical damage to another person. Right? What I have the people that I sponsor do is I have them take their list from their inventory and write it on a separate piece of paper, who they have harmed. Right? And then what we do is we categorize the amends, which we're going to go over in a minute. It says the same thing in the 12 by 12 that it says in the big book. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Right? It says it in just a little bit different wording. I want to point out that I believe step 8 and 9 is where you need good sponsorship more than anywhere else. And here's why. Because one of the things we have to be very careful of is that we do not create still more harm by making these amends. And I was the kind of guy, usually I have two kinds of people that I sponsor. I have people that want to run out and admit everything to everybody right away. Or I have guys that say, the only thing that person I hurt was myself. I don't need to go out and make any amends. Right? And when I wrote my first amends list, right, I had people that I thought, I need to go out and clean this up right away. Right? But these people over here, I think I don't want to approach them. And my sponsor said, you, these are the ones over here that you need to do. And those ones over there that you think you should be doing, those are the ones we're going to leave till a little bit later because you've just got done harming them and we're not going to lead with the chin, right? So I need good sponsorship when I go to make these amends. Incidentally, the, ninth, the fifth step tells us once that we're going to drink if we don't complete this. It says it on page 73 on to page 74. Almost invariably they got drunk, right? Kind of important, right? Incidentally, the ninth step says if I don't make these amends five times, it tells me I will drink again if I don't clean up the wreckage of my past, right? I wonder how important that is, right? As a matter of fact, the ninth step is also the only place that this, where it says we must be willing to go to any lengths appears twice, right? You see, they realized when they wrote this that there were going to be two steps more than any others that were going to be hard to take. One was step five, you know? And it's hard admitting that stuff to another human being, isn't it, right? But we check them out before we go share our inventory with them, don't we? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I checked out my sponsor. Plus, I figured, you know, he was only one guy. I could kill him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know. As a matter of fact, my sponsor, oh, God, and I hated that guy. I hated And you know why I hated him? It's a true story. I hated him because he didn't talk to me the way I thought I should be talked to. He didn't talk to me with the respect that I thought that I deserved coming out of detox, Right? He talked to me like I needed to be talked to. If you, and if you had asked me, Rob, what do you need when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have told you that I needed someone kind and loving and nurturing. Right? Really, true story. But I didn't. I got someone that kicked me in my butt. Right? I got someone who insisted, said, go here, do this, do that. Right? And I didn't like it at all. Right? If I could have found a way to kill that guy and not get caught, he'd have been dead. I'm telling you. Okay? But he didn't give me jobs that were up to my intellectual level. He didn't give me jobs in AA that were up to what my standards were. He gave me jobs that were at my emotional level. Right? Clean out those ashtrays. Here, take these cigarettes and go give them to the guys in the detox. Hey, that guy needs a ride to the meeting tonight. Go pick him up. Right? I remember I was six months sober. Some of you heard me tell this story. My sponsor said, you've been sober long enough. You need to have a job in AA. 
I said, why do I need a job in AA? He said, because people who have jobs in AA stay sober, slick, right? He said, and you've been sober long enough. You're a pretty smart guy. He said, come to the meeting tonight. You're going to be the chairman of the meeting, right? And I thought, oh, my God. I figured, you know, I didn't know how AA worked. I figured, like, I was moving up the hierarchy of AA, you know what I'm saying? I figured before long I'd be president of AA, you know what I'm saying, right? And so I remembered I hadn't gotten a job yet, you know what I'm saying? So, like, the whole next day I was just a nervous wreck, you know what I'm saying? I'm a nervous wreck. I'm sitting there and I'm watching hours click by on the clock, you know? So I got there extra early to the meeting, right? I said, okay, I'm here early. What does the chairman do? He said, see all those chairs right there? Put them around the room, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and, and I secretly knew, I secretly knew I was being degraded, right? I secretly knew that I was being taken advantage of. Right? Because in my mind, how could I be treated like this? Doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know the things that I've done? Right? But you know what? My sponsor gave me jobs that he knew that I needed to have. And I am grateful today that I had sponsors who were more interested in saving my life than they were in hurting my feelings. I'm glad that I had old timers. And I think sometimes we sit around and we don't want to, we want to coddle the newcomers. Because we don't want to hurt their feelings and scare them out of AA. Right? And I am grateful that I had people that weren't afraid to hurt my feelings by telling me things that I didn't want to do that they knew would ultimately be for my betterment. And so I set up those chairs and I set them up every night, right? And you know what oddly happened as I was setting up those chairs? I got to meet everybody in the clubhouse, right? And so after about three weeks, I knew everybody in the clubhouse and they knew me. And see, here I thought I was being taken advantage of. You see, my sponsor showed mercy to me by giving me a job in AA. But God showed me grace by getting me to know everybody in the clubhouse. And as a result of that, you know what happened? I started to have a purpose in AA. Right? And what a great feeling that is. Because I'd spent a lot of my life not having a purpose. And when I got to step nine, it was a little bit different. Up to this point, the steps were low risk. But now, I had to go out and I had to repair the damage that I'd done. And there was a lot of damage. There was a lot of damage with a lot of people that I'd hurt. There was a lot of people that I wasn't sure would even want to see me or deal with me. Right? But the book says that I have to try to make that right. So I wrote my list. One of the things it says in the 12 by 12 is it says we should redouble our efforts to see who we've hurt and in what ways. Right? So I have the guys that I sponsor write their list, and then I say, I want you to go back and see if there's anybody else that you somehow not included on your list that needs to be added, right? And here's why. And people say, well, if you did a thorough inventory, how would that happen? Well, here's how. Because it's not just people I've harmed directly. It's people that I may have harmed indirectly that were not on my inventory. For example, if I'm married and I harmed my spouse, obviously she is on my list. But indirectly, I may have harmed her parents. Indirectly, I may have harmed her siblings who may have been hurt by my actions towards their system. I may have accidentally harmed my neighbor who had to deal with my drunkenness and me passing out and, you know, parking on his lawn, right? And so those people need to be added to the list. It goes on to say, we subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. Everybody underline that in the middle of page 76. We repair the damage done in the past. One of the things that I hear all the time, I actually heard it last night in a meeting, is I hear, I hear people say, well, the amends is where you go and you say you're sorry. Right? 
As a matter of fact, when we get to page 83, it's going to tell me that a remorseful mumbling that we're sorry won't fill the bill at all. Bill is going to give us several different descriptions or definitions for the word amend. But the word amend literally translated means to mend or to bring together, to reconcile. That's what the word amend means. And the purpose of the amends is not to get you to like me, and it's not to say I'm sorry. The purpose of the amends is to reconcile my relationships with the people that I've harmed. The purpose of the amends is to try to make it right. And if you go to somebody, and I had this experience, and you say, hey, I'm really sorry that I hurt you and screwed you over like that, you know what they're going to say? Where's my frickin' TV? That's what they're going to say, okay? Because that's what they said to me. The guy didn't care that I was sorry. He wanted his TV back, right? Right, John? Okay? John, John's from the old school. He knows what I'm talking about, right? And so I had to make amends, and when I had to make amends, it meant that I had to go back and I had to be ready to repair that damage. I had to be ready to pay back the people I owed money. I had to be willing to reconcile those relationships, not just with my words, but with my actions, right? As a matter of fact, when we get to page 83, it's going to give us what I believe is the mission statement of amends. It's going to say that the spiritual life is not a theory. I have to live it. And if you go out to make amends, let me tell you something. You know how the two best ways to screw up an amends? Number one, you talk about what they did. Best way to screw up an amends, right? Say You say something like this. Well, I did this, but it was because you did that, right? Great way to screw up an amends, right? And the second way that you can screw up an amends is you go, you make an amends, you say, gosh, I'm, I'm really terribly sorry that all this happened, and, you know, I'm trying to live a, a better life, and, you know, I'm sorry I was so mean to you. And then the next day, you do the same thing you did before. Right? Because then what does the amends mean? It means nothing. Right? And repairing the damage that we've done in the past is the first description of an amends that Bill gives us in the text. And that's a perfect definition of an amends. What are we doing in the amends? We're trying to repair the damage that we've done in the past. It says, we attempt to sweep away the debris. Another perfect description of an amends which is accumulated out of our effort to live life on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do that, we ask until it comes. That's the eight-step prayer. We ask for the willingness. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. Middle of the next page. We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from God when it will serve any good purpose. We are willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be that he's done us more harm than we've done him. Everybody underline that. Those occasions will happen. I've sponsored people that have had this situation. I've sponsored people that uh, were molested as children by older uncles, parents, sisters, brothers. I've sponsored several women who've been raped. Sponsored men who've been raped. Right? And it may be that the wrong that they did us is greater than the wrong that we've done then. But it says that nevertheless we take the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to a person we dislike uh, it's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. You know, as I said, that there's a great truth behind each one of these steps. I'll tell you a story. There was a guy that I worked... This was in sobriety. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, the hardest amends to make are amends that you have to make for stuff you did in sobriety. Okay? Tough amends to make. Right? Randy's laughing. She knows what I'm talking about. Because isn't it true that you can always sort of hang it on? Yeah, but I was drunk, 
right? You can always sort of hang it on that and use it as sort of an excuse for why you did it. But when you're stark raving sober and you're creating damage in the lives of the people around you, when you're a jerk to the people that you work with or your spouse or your kids or whoever, you don't have anything to hang it on, right? And I worked with this guy for, this was probably about 10 years ago, and he was the banquet manager of this place I worked in downtown. And this guy hated me with a purple passion, right? And I was one of those guys. I'm one of those spiritual guys that if you don't like me, I'm going to go out of my way to be nice to you, but to make your life as difficult as I can. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm spiritual that way, right? <laughs> so I wouldn't say anything to this guy outright, right? But I just tried to make his life difficult every opportunity I got, right? Like he'd say, look, I don't like the culinary team walking through the banquet, the banquet uh, pre-functionary, right? So what do you think the first thing I did was, hey, guys, when you go to my office, make sure you walk through the banquet pre-function area. You know what I'm saying? And so he couldn't stand me, right? And one day we had a blow up over something. I can't remember what it was, right? I can't remember. And this went on for a couple of years I worked with this guy, right? And, uh, and one day he, he, he came in my office and he, and he put his finger in my face and he said, you know, he said, I don't like you. And if we weren't here at work, he said, I'd kick your ass outside of work. I said, really? He said, well, that's great, you know. And, of course, I, I went to my boss and I told him what had happened, you know. But that particular weekend, I went away and I did a weekend thing. And I happened to bump into my sponsor there. We, we talked about the situation. And he, and he encouraged me to lay aside what he had done and resolutely look for my own mistakes, right? Because it was easy for me to justify what I had done because of what he had done. But the book said I have to lay aside what he did and I have to look for my part. And I remember I went back that Monday morning and I asked to speak to him. And this was a guy that I hadn't had friendly words with in probably two and a half years, right? And I said, you know, I want to thank you for what you said on Friday. And I said, and I thought about it over the weekend. And I realized that I've been at fault in our relationship. And I'd like to start over. And I'd like to work differently. And God willing, it won't happen again. And I prayed about this. And I hope that you and I can be friends. And the look on his face completely changed. Right? And I remember he sat there quiet for a minute. And then he said, he said, you know, he said, I, I never would have expected that, but it takes a big man to come in here and say something like that after what I said to you on Friday. But here's the interesting thing about that situation, and it's the power of the amends process. Is here was a guy that I hated, like the book says. And I hated that guy. And he hated me. But one of the great truths of the amends process is when you sincerely make an amends to someone that you hated, you will never hate them again, right? And that guy has not only become a friend of mine, he's become one of my best friends, right? He called me last week, right? Now, he's from Morocco. He and I don't share the same background. We don't share the same religion, right? But he calls me his Christian brother, right? Because we have now something that we didn't have before, right? And it all happened because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, where else does that happen? except in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you an even better story than that. I, three years ago, and some of you know the story, and I can share it out here because most of you don't go to meetings in Orlando, but my ex-wife, you know, she moved in with, the, with her boyfriend, you know? And this was a guy that I had known for a long time, went to our church, right? And she and him decided they were going to have a relationship, right? And so she moved in with him, and she ended up drunk. Right? And so this guy, the boyfriend, calls me on the phone one night because he doesn't know what to do. Because he doesn't understand alcoholism. Right? 
So I drove over to his house. And here I am sitting there on his porch where my ex-wife lives. And I'm counseling him on how to deal with my ex-wife and how to go to Al-Anon and how to go to Al-Anon and how to deal with an alcoholic. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself as I'm driving away. And I said to the guy when I left, I said, Don, if there's anything I can ever do for you, please don't hesitate to call me. And I'm driving away, I'm thinking, where else does that happen other than Alcoholics Anonymous? You know? Where else? Right? But that is the power of the amends process. Because the great thing about forgiveness is when I forgive you, I'm free. Right? And I can be of service to you. Bottom of page 77 says, Under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. Simply we tell him that we will never get over our drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. And what does utmost mean? Utmost means to the nth degree. It means the most we can possibly do to straighten out our past. We will not overcome our drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. Right? And that was very true for me. As a matter of fact, as we know from history, Dr. Bob was unable to stay permanently sober until he did his ninth step amends. What a lot of people don't know about Dr. Bob is Dr. Bob had been involved in the Oxford groups for two and a half years before Bill Wilson's infamous trip to Akron, Ohio. So he had been exposed to the six steps of the Oxford groups. And he had done everything else, but he was unwilling to do the one thing that was the key to freedom for him. He was unwilling to make restitution to the people he'd harmed. Because most people don't know this, but Dr. Bob was a proctological surgeon, right? And that's kind of delicate work, if you know what I mean, you know what I'm saying? Nobody wants an alcoholic proctological surgeon, you know what I'm saying? I don't, right? And he thought it would ruin the rest of it, it would ruin what remained of his medical practice, right? But Bill came and gave him Dr. Sulfur's description of alcoholism and the hopelessness of alcoholism, and he explained to him that if he didn't go to any lengths, that he would not stay sober. And so Dr. Bob went out the day, first day of his sobriety, June 10th, 1935, and made amends to every person that he could think of, right? We know that he woke up that morning. It was before dawn. Bill Wilson gave him two bottles of beer to steady his nerves so he could sleep, or so he could go to work because he was shaking. And he went and he performed this surgery, right, on this guy. Now, we don't know what happened to the patient. We don't know what happened to the patient. We do know that the patient lived. There were no deaths at Akron City Hospital that day, right? Perhaps the guy walked with a whistle for the rest of his life, but we're not sure. But that's the power of the amends process. Dr. Bob could not stay sober. I'll tell you another quick story. When I was in California, I did these workshops. I did these big book workshops that I sometimes do with a guy named Scott. And Scott sponsored this fellow by the name of Lester, right? And Lester was a bad alcoholic. His liver was out to here. He was yellow, jaundiced, you know, dying of alcoholism. And he asked my buddy Scott to sponsor him, right? So Scott said, sure, I'll sponsor you. So Scott took him through the first four chapters, and Lester continued to drink, right? And Scott got him down on his knees. They did the third step prayer. And after the third step prayer, Lester drank, right? And they wrote the fourth step, and he did his fifth step, and Lester got drunk, right? They did six and seven. Lester got drunk, right? They wrote the eight-step list. Lester continued to drink. So at this time, my friend Scott's going, wait a minute, something's wrong here, right? So he called my then sponsor, Don Brown, and said, Don, what's going on, right? What's going on with this guy? What should I do? And he said, well, do you believe he's been honest and thorough 
up to this point. And Scott said, yeah, they went through the steps and they kind of, yeah, yeah, he's been honest, he's been thorough, he knows he's alcoholic, he did the third step, he did an honest and thorough inventory, you know. He said, well, you know what, Scott, you've got to trust the process. He said, send him out to do his ninth step amends and see what happens, right? And Lester went out and he did his ninth step amends. And guess what happened? The miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened to Lester. And Lester got sober. And Lester hasn't had a drink since. And that's been over 20 years, right? But you see, the mistake that we make sometimes is we take people and go, oh, you need to go back to step one, right? You need to go back to step one. If you read the history, Bill didn't tell Dr. Bob when he got off the train from Atlantic City, you need to go back to step one. He just gave you an example of step one, right? He said, no, you need to go out and make those ninth step amends. That's where your problem is. Because you feel so guilty and remorseful over the things you've done, you can't stay sober. And that was the same problem that Lester had. He couldn't stay sober because he was so guilt-ridden. But he went out and he started to make those amends, and all of a sudden, guess what? The miracle happened, and the spirit came awake, and the compulsion to drink left him. The whole idea is simply this. is that somewhere in this process, somewhere between three and nine, somewhere in there, the compulsion to drink left. Right? Dr. Bob, it was after step nine. My sponsor will tell you when he did his third step prayer on a Navy ship in the Pacific Ocean that the compulsion to drink was removed. In my case, it happened after step five. My friend Vic will tell you it was after step six and seven for him. But the whole idea is this, is that if I do it honestly and thoroughly, it's somewhere in that process the compulsion to drink will leave. Think about this for a minute. I would, su I would suggest this, that we have a book that is a treatment for alcoholism, right? Okay. And I think it's interesting, nowhere in here does it say Today's the big day. Stop drinking. Right? Think about it for a minute. Right? You go to any cessation program, they'll say, today's the big day. Stop drinking. Right? But our book doesn't say that. You know what our book says? Our book says that if you take these actions, all of a sudden the problem will be removed. And then it'll happen automatically. You see, I didn't pick the day I was going to stop drinking. As a matter of fact, if I'd known that my sobriety day was going to be July 7th of 1988, I'd have drank another week. I'm telling you. Because I'm that kind of alcoholic, right? So I don't pick the day that I get sober. But when I start doing the work, all of a sudden the compulsion to drink is removed and I'm rendered sober as a result of the actions that we take. You know, one of the things that we learn here is that sobriety is not something that can be attained in and of itself. What Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us is that sobriety is the byproduct of the other actions that we take here, right? You know what I found out also? that happiness is the same way. You know, I thought for a long time I could make myself happy. But every action that I took, every move that I make that was designed to make me happy, only ended in destruction. And what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is that happiness, like sobriety, is not something that can be attained in and of itself. Happiness is the byproduct of other actions that I take. And when I do the right thing here, and when I take the right action, I get the right result. Make sense? Middle of page 79. Actually, we're going to page 83. <clears throat> Middle of page, uh, top of page 83. This is one of my favorite pages in the big book. It says, yes, there is a long period, not a short period, of reconstruction, another perfect description of an amends, reconstruction, ahead. Everybody circle the word ahead. Right. Once I've completed the first nine steps, and I see this all the time, right? I people see people going back in their life, right? And yes, we have to do that in inventory, right? 
But I see people rehashing the past over and over and over again. And as Clancy says, there are some people in AA that spend so much time in now grinding about what happened then that they never make now any better. And at some point you have to come to the great truth that if I want now to be better, I need to have now be now, I need to let then be then. Because the big book says there's a long period of reconstruction where? Ahead. Life is lived ahead. It's not lived behind. There's nothing I can do about yesterday. The only thing I can do is about right now, right? And live my life ahead. Live my life forward. It says, and we must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we're sorry won't fill the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it. Being careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring. That's a promise. But the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. Everybody underline that, you know. I think Bill gives us a little bit of a break at different places of the text where he says, well, although it wasn't entirely our fault and all, you know, we go and clean up our side of the street and all that. I think he's given us a break. You know why? Because in the fear inventory, he says, did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Right? You know what that means? It means that most of the time, I'm the one that started the whole thing off. Right? I set the ball rolling. And so if I set the ball rolling, really, it's all my fault, isn't it? Right? And you know what I found out? Is when I stop acting selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, I have a whole lot less resentment, a whole lot less fear, and a whole lot less amends to make because I don't harm people. I don't step on the toes of my fellows and they don't wish to retaliate. And I would blame them for retaliating when really it came back to my actions in the first place. Really it came back to a selfish decision I made way back in the past that later placed me in a position to be hurt. And I couldn't see it. It says, so we clean house with the family asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Everybody underline that. I would note that that is the opposite of selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate. Right? Here's a thought. We're going to talk about this in the 10th step. You become what you practice. You become what you practice. If I practice being patient, tolerant, kind, and loving, I'm going to become patient, tolerant, kind, and loving. If I practice being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, guess what? I'm going to become that person. And I get to choose which one I practice each day. And then it says that the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Everybody underline that. If you're like me, then verbal amends is only the first step away from a lifelong rebuilding process. Right? I now have to live out the amends that I have just made to that person. Right? If I say I'm sorry for being a jerk to you, then I need to purpose in my heart and I need to figure out how do I mend this situation. Right? As a matter of fact, when I send the guys and gals that I sponsor out to make amends, I ask them this question. What is the thing you're going to do to mend this? Right? For example, good example. When my kids were little, little bitty, right? I was so worried about my career that I spent more time than I should have away from my children. I missed birthdays, holidays, parties, plays, right? Because I didn't have the time to do those things, right? I tried, but I didn't give them the time that I should have, right? And I only realized that later. Right? So when I go to make amends to my kids, if the amends is for not spending enough time with them, guess what the amend is? It's my time. It's my attention. It's going out of my way to be there for them when they need me. And when they call me, I'm there. 
and I do whatever I can to spend that time with them, right? Same thing with other relationships in my life. If I have to make an amends to somebody because I wasn't very nice to them, then guess what? I have to be willing to live it out and practice what I preach and make that amends a living, breathing thing. The spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. As a matter of fact, there's a, you know, as I said, you work the steps in reverse, you'll get drunk. You develop a resentment. You don't clean up the wreckage of your past. And then the insanity returns and you end up drunk, right? The interesting thing about that is we have a way of living and we have some principles to live by. But you know what happens when people begin to move away from God? They start to make up their own rules about what's right and wrong. And I will make up rules and I will invariably lead myself in the wrong direction. Which is why I need meetings today. A. It's why I need the 12 steps and it's why I need strong sponsorship. And whenever I get blocked off from another human being, my first reaction isn't it's their fault. My first reaction is where was I to blame? And that didn't happen overnight. It only happened as a result of doing this over and over and over again. Next full paragraph in the bottom says, there may be some wrongs we can never fully Right. We don't worry about them if we would honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Everybody turn in the 12 by 12 to page 83. 12 by 12, page 83. Because they say the exact same thing that they say in the big book right here in the 12 by 12. It's just worded a little bit differently. I think it's a little bit clearer in the, in the 12 by 12, actually. It says, good judgment, a careful sense of timing, courage and prudence, these are qualities we shall need when we take step nine. It says, after we have made a list of people we have harmed, have carefully reflected upon each instance, and have tried to possess ourselves of the right attitude in which to proceed, we will see that the making of direct amends divides those we should approach into several classes. There will be those who ought to be dealt with just as soon as we become reasonably confident we can maintain our own sobriety. That's the first one. And we call those the right now amends, right? And guess when you make a right now amends? Ah, you guys are pretty smart, I tell you, right? And these are people that we see every day. Mom, dad, right? Kids, spouse, or co-workers. These are people that we see every day. And then it goes on to say, there will be those, uh, it says, uh, there will be those to whom we can only make partial restitution Less complete disclosures do them or others more harm than good. So the second category for the amends is what's called the partial restitution amends, right? And the question we ask ourselves is, would more harm than good be done? The big book gives us the example of the guy who's been unfaithful to his wife and the wife generally knows but doesn't know the specifics. The book says, should he tell her all the details? And the answer is no. On page 73 in the fifth step, and we didn't read it in the interest of time, it says that we have a rule. There's only two rules in the big book first one's on page 73. It says, the rule is that I'm always hard on myself, but considerate of others. And that is perfect for making amends. I'm always hard on myself, but considerate of others. I have no right to disclose something to save my own skin at another person's expense. Right? It goes on to say, there will be other cases where action should be deferred. Right? So the third classification is what's called deferred action. Right? And what's a deferred action? To defer action means to take a different course of action. That's what it means, right? It's what my ex-wife calls paying back the universe, right? Paying back the universe. And I'll give you an example. Like I had a guy uh, in uh, California that I sponsored, and he had abused women all of his life, right? And he didn't know how to make amends for that. 
right? He wanted to make amends for that, but he didn't know how to make amends for that. And all of these women that he had abused, they didn't want to see him anyway, right? So we decided that a deferred action amends for that would be that he donated his time at the battered women's shelter. That's what he did. And he spent his time there, working with the women there, right, and helping them, driving the van and all that kind of stuff as a deferred action amends, as a way to pay back the universe, right? I had a friend of mine in California. His name was Bill. And Bill was an older guy. He'd been sober a long while. And Bill owed a guy a large sum of money, like $10,000, right? And by the time he got around to making the amends, the guy was literally on his deathbed. And Bill went to approach him to make this amends. And the guy said, listen, I appreciate you coming to see me, but the money's not going to do me any good. So don't worry about it. But my friend Bill insisted. He said, no, I feel like I owe you this money. And the guy said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, the money won't do me any good, but I have a favorite charity, right? And so my friend Bill made payments to Planned Parenthood of California for 10 years until he paid back that amends. Think about that. It's another example of a deferred action amends. It's a way that we can't necessarily make amends to that person directly, but we, it's a, our way of paying back the universe. Make sense to everybody? It goes on to say, there will still be other cases where by the very nature of the situation, we shall never be able to make any direct personal contact at all. So the fourth category is the no direct personal contact amends. Back in the big book on page 83, it says exactly the same thing it said in the 12 by 12 in the big book. The verbiage is just a little bit different. In the last paragraph, it says, there may be some wrongs we can never fully right. That's the partial restitution amends. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we will write them if we could. Now listen to this. It says some people cannot be seen. doesn't say why they can't be seen. It says we send them an honest letter. Everybody underline that. Now this could be people that have moved away. This could be parents that have died, grandparents that have died, uncles that have died, spouses that have died. In my case, you know what it was? It was an unborn child that I never got to meet. I got to sit down and I got to write that child an honest letter. And I got to talk about how sorry I was. And I got to talk about how I wished that I had made a different decision in my life. And that there was nothing that I could do to fix that. And I was able to read that letter to my sponsor. And for me, it wasn't about writing. It was about tears. It was about getting free of that. And I'm here to tell you, I've heard Lots and lots of people, both men and women, share their honest letter with me because I'm a person that's lived through it and been through it and gotten to the other side of it and gotten free of it. And I can tell you that there is a way to clean that up, even something that bad that can't be righted, that there's a way to get free of it, right? And I was able to get free of it by writing that letter to that unborn child. I've taken many men and women to the graveyard with an honest handwritten letter to read that letter to their parent or grandparent that they didn't get to make an amends for. And it's okay. And we can make peace with it, right? And we can move on from it. Because the book says we send them an honest letter. I would observe that it doesn't say we send them a text message, right? It doesn't say we send them an email, right? Carrier pigeon, phone call. That's my favorite one. I call them on the phone, right? That's not what the book says. The book says we send them an honest handwritten letter. Why? Because there is something more personal about a handwritten letter than an impersonal email. Sorry for being a jerk, Right? And so that's what we do. So the people that can't be seen, what do we do? We write an honest letter. I usually have the guys and gals that I sponsor make a commitment. Once we get through the eighth step, we make a commitment to making one amends a day. Right? So if you have 90 names on your list, in 90 days, we're done. Right? If you can do two in a day, that's a bonus. Right? 
but we're at least going to do one a day. And that means if you write one honest letter a day and you have 90 honest letters to write, in 90 days we're done, right? And most people can commit to that, right? We never talk about what they did wrong. And then at the bottom of the page it says, there may be valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we should not delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, everybody underline that, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. And then it lists the promises here, these promises. And we read these out of context at every meeting, don't we, right? Because I thought for a long time all I had to do was show up at meetings at AA and I would get all these promises, right? And you know what I found out later on? There's a reason that they appear where they do in the text. Because the first thing it says is it says if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, what phase? The ninth step. We will be amazed before we're halfway through. Halfway through what? Halfway through the ninth step. Another mistake that people make is they say, well, these are the ninth step promises. And they think that the promises come true as a result of step nine, and they don't. These promises are not a result of step nine. They are a result of the action we've taken in step one through nine. Make sense to everybody? These promises are a result of the action that we've taken and the culmination of the work we've done up to halfway through the ninth step. And it says that we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Everybody underline that. My first sponsor, Don Brown, said that it doesn't promise us an old freedom and an old happiness. It says we're going to know a new freedom. It says we have a new way of life, a new design for living that works. He said, if you still know the old freedom and the old happiness, you've done something wrong. Go back to the beginning and start over, right? I had a guy last night at the detox say, do you want to have your old life back? I said, no, because the life that I have today is far better than the life I ever had before. It says, we won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. We'll comprehend the word serenity. We'll know peace. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Now listen to this. It says we will suddenly realize, everybody underline that, that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. I would observe that it doesn't say God will suddenly start doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. No, it says that I will suddenly realize that God is doing for me what I can't do for myself. I will suddenly realize that God has been there all the time, but I was too blind to see it. I will suddenly uncover what has been there all the time, because now all of a sudden I have cleared the channel to God. I don't think it's by any mistake that right after we've completed the ninth step, Bill says we are now God's people. Everybody remember in the third step, it said, God, I offer myself to thee. God, I offer myself to thee, right? And then when we got through the fifth step, it said we thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better, right? Not well. And then when we got done with the seventh step, it said, God, I am now ready that you should have all of me, good and bad. And now after we complete the ninth step, he says, we are now God's people. I have now completed the arch through which I'm going to pass to freedom. I have now completed the first nine steps. And I've gotten all these promises as a result of the first nine steps. And if you complete the first nine steps and you haven't gotten all these promises, you have done something wrong. You should go back to the beginning. And people say to me all the time, they say, well, Rob, you are so enthusiastic about Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Why are you so enthusiastic about AA? 
and I'm a little skeptical about you. And my answer is this. Maybe you haven't experienced everything that I've experienced in AA because you haven't done everything that I've done in AA. And if you want what I have, then you've got to do what I do. And maybe you'll be just as enthusiastic as I am about the program and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because AA is my life, right? It's not part of my life. It's not something that I do in my life. People always ask me, well, what do you do for a living? I go, AA, right? They say, no, really, what do you do for a Oh, you want to know what I do to make money? Oh, well, in that case, you know, I'm the director of food and beverage and the executive chef of a hotel in Orlando. But what I do for a living is I do this, right? Because this is my life. Because without this, I am a dead man. Without this at the center of my life, I would not survive. And I would not have a life better than I could have ever imagined. Now, what are these promises describing? They're describing something very specific. Everybody keep your finger right there and turn back to page 25. Page 25. And let's see if these things that we're going to read here don't sound a little bit like what we just read on page 82 and 83. Or excuse me, 83 and 84. In the middle of page 25, it says, The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, again, that's my life, towards our fellows, that's all of you, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. Sound a little bit like what we talked about on 84? Turn to page 27. Middle of the page. Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences. And then he goes on to describe them. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Back on page 84. So what are these promises describing? I believe that they're describing nothing more and nothing less than a vital spiritual experience. That as a result of the first nine steps, the spirit within me has come awake. And that's why when we get to step ten, right after completing the ninth step, which we're going to cover in the next hour, it's going to say we have now entered the world of the spirit. Right? The insanity of alcohol has been removed. And I have now turned my will and my life over to the care of God. Right? Now, last thing before our break. Everybody keep your finger right there and turn back to page 52. You'll remember on page 52 this morning, we talked about some symptoms of what I call the spiritual malady, untreated alcoholism, or the unmanageability that we talk about in step one, right? And I said that there's some bad news, that this is how I live without a program of recovery, but that we also have some good news that we have a treatment for this condition right here, talked about on page 52, that they call the bedevilment, right? And what I want to do, just for fun, and I do this at every workshop that I do, is I want to reread these bedevilments on page 52. And as we reread them, I'm going to pair them up 
with one of the promises that we just read on page 84. And let's see if we can see how each one of these things is addressed by our program of recovery. First, second full paragraph says, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems this same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with our personal relationships. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. We were prey to misery and depression. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. We couldn't make a living. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We had a feeling of uselessness. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We were full of fear. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We were unhappy. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. Our ideas didn't work, but the God idea did. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now let me ask you a question. Because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous exactly like this guy right here on page 52. This is my life. This was my reality. And today, I'm exactly like this guy over here on page 84, right? As a matter of fact, you go to enough big book workshops, your book will look like this too, right? So how did I get from being the guy on page 52 to being the guy on page 84? It's real simple. You know what I did? I did this right here, right? I did what's on the 31 pages in between. And when I did that, guess what? The spirit within me came awake. And all of a sudden, I knew a new freedom and a new happiness. I didn't regret the past. I didn't wish to shut the door on it. And all of a sudden, my life changed. But it ends by saying, I'm back on page 84, are these extravagant promises? And everybody always goes, we think not. I looked up the word extravagant in the dictionary. You know what the word extravagant means? It means undeserved grace. Right? Now, if you ask a guy like me for where I came from and the things that I did before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, if these promises and having the life that I have today is undeserved grace, I think it absolutely is. I hope you're not ever standing next to me when I get what I deserve. But I don't get what I deserve in Alcoholics Anonymous. I get what I've been promised by the program of AA. It says, are these extravagant promises we think not? They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly. That's a spiritual experience. Sometimes slowly, that's a spiritual awakening. But they will always materialize if we work for them. You know, I used to do this workshop, big book study, out at a halfway house out in Zellwood, Florida. Long way from here, right? And it wasn't even a treatment center or a detox. It was way below that, right? And I'll never forget that I would go out there and on the door to the meeting room, there was a, there was a picture that one of the residents had painted on the door. And on the door... There was a hand that was reaching up like that. And then there was the finger of God reaching down. And the inscription on the door said, is, if you reach up as high as you can, that God will reach down the rest of the way. And that's been my experience in AA. That every time I've done my part, God has always come through and done His part. When I did the third step prayer with my sponsor in 1988, I entered into a contractual agreement with God that's found in the third step. It says that God's going to provide everything that I needed as long as I keep close to Him in step 11 and perform His work well in step 12. 
And you know what? That's all I've ever done. Let's take a five-minute break. All right, so everybody can sign their seat. We're going to get fired up here again. Again, my name is Rob Mason, and I am alcoholic. It's uh, great to be here today. Somebody asked me if I was tired at the break. I said, I'll be tired later when we're done. But you see, I never get tired when I'm speaking in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I never get tired because this is what I love to do. I never get tired because this is what I love to do, you know? And so God always keeps gives me enough energy to do this. When I get home tonight, I'll be tired, right? But tonight, we're going to talk about this afternoon. We've got two more sessions. We're going to start talking about what do we do after we work the first nine steps, right? So as a result, if I, if I read the way I read the book, as a result of the first nine steps, I have cleared away the wreckage of the past. And I've removed the things that have been blocking me off from God. And therefore, as we talked about this morning, I have effectively removed those things that have been blocking me off from the sunlight of the Spirit. So my will in my life has been turned off over to the care of God. And so I have received a vital spiritual experience as a result of these steps. Right? And you know what's funny about these promises that we just read? As I said this morning, I got every single one of those promises when I took my first drink. And really what Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do, if you want to think about it this way, is Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do slowly what alcohol used to do quickly. It's designed to give me a new freedom and a new happiness. It's designed to give me a different state of consciousness and being that I used to get when I used to drink. And today I don't have to drink to get that because I have a program of recovery that does the same thing. Right? And just like 4 through 9 unblocks me, steps 10 and 11 are really designed to keep me unblocked on a daily basis. Because thank God Bill Wilson knew that what would happen? We'd work the first nine steps. We'd have this vital spiritual experience as a result of those steps. But then we'd get back out into life, wouldn't we? We'd go back to work. We'd go back to our home, right? And so what would happen? We'd start to get resentful, right? Because we're those kind of people, right? We'd start to get in some fear. We'd start stepping on the toes of our fellows, right? And they'd want to retaliate. and We'd feel guilty, right? And so thank God Bill Wilson in his wisdom knew that we needed to have some sort of daily remedial action to keep me spiritually fit. Otherwise, invariably, I would slowly but surely relapse into drinking. And I'm here to tell you that step 10 is the most important part of my daily program of recovery. It is the most important thing that I do as far as step work on a daily basis. Right? And my sponsor always asks me, how's your 10th step? How's your 10th step? Right? Are you taking inventory? Right? Anytime I call him and I've got a resentment, he says, have you 10 stepped that? Right? And it's going to tell us not only how, because one of the things that we hear a lot of steps, 10 and 11 are maintenance steps. How many people have heard that? Maintenance steps? Okay. Well, that's not what my book says. Okay. Because one of the spiritual principles of the universe is that everything is either growing or it's dying. Everything is either progressing or it is regressing. Right? And as one of my mentors from California, Dr. Paul O. used to say, that sobriety is like paddling upstream in a canoe against a very gentle current. And it's so gentle you don't even know it's there, right? And as long as you're paddling, you're fine, right? But if you stop paddling, 
you almost imperceptibly start drifting, right? Backwards, faster and faster. You don't even know it, right? And I don't know where that next strength is. I know it's there, but I don't know where it is. And that's why I hate when I hear people with long-term sobriety things say things like, well, drinking's not an option for me today. How many people have heard that? I've heard a lot of that, right? I'm here to tell you something. I'm a real alcoholic, and what they're going to tell me on page 86 of our book is that it's easy to let up on the spiritual program and rest on my lords, and I'm headed for trouble if I do, that I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Because if you're an alcoholic of my description, and I stop doing the things that keep me well long enough, let me tell you what, drinking will become an option, right? Because I'll look for relief. And because I'm the kind of guy that I know where the back door is, and I always know it's there. Now, I haven't had to open that back door for 25 years. But I'm an alcoholic of the type that they describe in this book. And if I become restless, irritable, and discontent as a result of not taking the action, sooner or later that drink will become an option for me. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, that may not be true for some people, but it is for sure true for me, right? As a matter of fact, I think it's interesting if you ask people who have been sober a long time, you know, and they get drunk, I find that very instructive because there's two things you learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. You learn what to do and you learn what not to do, right? And I always ask them, it's the old story about the guy who got drunk after long-term sobriety, right? And he went to a meeting and he said, man, I got drunk, I'd been sober for 10 years and I got drunk. And some old-timer come up to him after the meeting. He said, he said, you got drunk. He said, man, that's terrible. He said, he said well, let me ask you a few questions. He said, uh, he said, what meeting did you go to the day you got drunk? I mean, surely you went to a meeting. I want to make sure that I don't go to that meeting, right? And the guy said, well, I, well, I didn't go to a meeting. He said, oh, man. He said, that's, that's he said well, well, what page of the big book did you read? Because I want to make sure I don't read that page of the big book because I don't want to get drunk, right? And the guy said, well, I didn't read a page of the big book. He said, well, who did you call for God's sakes? I mean, you must have called somebody, and I want to make sure I don't call that person, right? The guy said, I didn't call anybody. And the wise old-timer said, well, no wonder you got drunk. You didn't do any of the things that we do here to keep ourselves sober and to keep our disease in remission, right? The big book says that we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Not our recovering, that we have recovered. And all of the question I always get is, but the book also says that we have a daily reprieve, right? Which is it? Am I recovering or have I recovered? And here's my answer. The answer is very simple. Is that as a result of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, my obsession to drink has been removed. And because my obsession to drink has been removed, I have not found it necessary to pick up a drink of alcohol in 25 and a half years, right? And as long as I continue to do things, I continue to live in a recovered state, right? I no longer have the, the obsession of the mind. And because I no longer have the obsession of the mind, I no longer pick up the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Right? However, my sobriety is contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And as long as I do those things on a daily basis, I get to remain that way. Make sense? But if I stop doing them, right? And that's the funny thing about alcoholism, if you think about it. It's like you don't have to do anything to trigger it. Like a lot of diseases, you have to do something to trigger it. Right? Like diabetics. My friend Vic is a diabetic, right? And you know, the, if he eats certain things, it can trigger his, a, a diabetic attack. And he's got to take insulin and all those things to regulate his blood sugar, right? That's a good example. But with alcoholism, you don't need to do anything to have it manifest itself. You know what you have to do? You just stop doing what keeps you well, right? 
And if I stop taking my medicine, if I stop doing the things that keep me well, eventually I will go back to drinking. Because it's a temporary solution to my permanent problem, which is a spiritual malady. You see, my problem isn't alcohol. My problem is alcoholism. And there's a difference. Right? Page 85 of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We're going to talk about steps 10 and 11 here. Middle of page 84 says the thought of getting these promises in our life brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take a personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. That's in the present. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Everybody underline that. We have entered the world of the spirit. Interestingly, I believe that the world of the spirit is completely different than the world of the world. Right? As a matter of fact, I believe that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have the ability to change the world. Right? Because when I worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the world around me changed. Right? Everything and everyone. It brings to mind the story that I've heard so many times, and maybe some of you have heard it, about the father who had a young child. And he was so, the child's running him around all day long. And so you know what he did? He decided to come up with a game. So he found a map of the world. And he took the map and he ripped it up into little pieces. And he laid it out on the floor and he told the child, he said, take this map and put the world back together. And when the world's back together, you can come get me and I'm going to go and watch TV. And he figured this would buy him at least four or five hours. But ten minutes later, the child came in. He said, Dad, I put the world together. And the father went in and he looked. And here was the world all put together. And he said to himself, how did the child do that? And he said, how did you put the world together? You don't know how to put the world together. And he said, well, Dad, on the back of the map of the world, there was a man. And when I put the man together, the world all fell into place. And that has been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, is that when I put the man together, the world all fell into place. Right? You see, I've entered the world of the Spirit. As I said, I'm rich in the things money can't buy. And no one can take that away from me. And I may lose or gain things of the world, but those things don't affect my inner spirit, right? Because I've entered the world of the Spirit. It says, our next function is to grow. Everybody underline that. A little bit different than maintaining. My next function is to grow. Grow in what? In understanding and effectiveness, right? In my understanding of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and service work and effectiveness, how effective I am at carrying the message. And that's something that I take very seriously. Now, once in a while, I'll get a guy that I sponsor, a gal that I sponsor, and they'll say, well, how long do I have to do this A&A stuff, right? And I tell them, turn to page 84 of the book because it tells us in the next sentence, it should continue for our lifetime. That's the bad news, right? And then it tells us, and let's see if we can see in here, right in here, where 4 through 9 is one more time. Because what a lot of people will tell you is that what step 10 is about, is it's about doing step 4 on a daily basis, because they see that word continue to take personal inventory. So they think that step 10 is really about step 4 done on a daily basis. And that's part of what step 10 is about, but that's not all that step 10 is about. Let's see what it says here. It says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That sounds a little bit like step four, doesn't it? Right? And then the next word, everybody circle that next word. When. Not if. Okay? When these crop up. Right? 
we discuss them with someone immediately. Uh, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anybody. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. I didn't know we had a code before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Now, it says, what am I supposed to do? I continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when they crop up, right? How many people here like to be right? Like to be right? I love to be right. You know? I hate to be wrong, you know? And how many people like to be wrong? Anybody in here like to be wrong? I don't like to be wrong. But you know what? Our book lets us off the hook. Because the tenth step of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous says we continue to take a personal inventory and when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. Not if we were wrong. That means that the tenth step promises me I am going to be wrong. I am going to feed the wrong dog. Right? I am going to have those moments where I get off the beam. I'm going to have those moments where I hurt other people around me. And when I'm wrong, what do I do? I discuss them with someone immediately. That sounds a little bit like step five. I ask God at once to remove them, six and seven. I make amends quickly if I've harmed anyone in eight and nine. And then what do I do? I have now re-cleared that channel and I resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. Why? Because I now have a new code. My code is love and tolerance, right? As a matter of fact, Dr. Bob, in his last message, and Dr. Bob's what, what some people call the Gettysburg Address of AA. And what a lot of people don't know is Dr. Bob was dying when he gave his last talk. He went to the first international convention in Cleveland, right? Dying of cancer. And he would die a few weeks after the, the convention, right? And he said, I have to say a few words, right? And what he said was most instructive because it was from the heart. It wasn't a contrived lecture. It wasn't a long, you know, address. It was just a few words. And Dr. Bob said essentially that the program of AA can really, if you boil it down, come down to two things. Love and service, right? And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is, right? And that's my code, and that's what I do, right? And if you really boil down AA, that's really what it comes down to, is trying to love my fellow man and love God and serve all of you and serve God, right? And as a result of that, I get all these promises. And I, by the way, I have not only gotten the 12 promises that come halfway through the ninth step, Right? I've got all 147 promises that I have personally found in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not saying there's not any more than that. I'm just saying I know there's no less because I found 147, right? As a matter of fact, we always read the promises that come halfway through the ninth step, don't we, right? Read them at every meeting, right? But what I think is interesting is we miss the first promise in the book and probably the most important promise in the book. You don't have to turn there, but it's on page 12 in Bill's story where Bill says, my friend promised when these things were done, not half done, when they were done, that I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Right? What a great deal we got here. As one of the old timers where I got sober used to say, every day of my life is like my birthday, Christmas, and the 4th of July. And it really is true. Alcoholics Anonymous is the best deal going. We got the greatest show on earth here. Make no mistake. It goes on to say, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. You can write right in there, even our spouse, right? For by this time, sanity will have returned. Everybody underline that. You see, my sanity is not restored in step two. My sanity is not restored until I get to step ten, until I've completed four through nine. So if you want to know, if you're new, 
How do I get restored to sanity? Four through nine. How do I turn my will and my life under the care of God? Four through nine. How do I get the spiritual experience? Four through nine. How do I get the compulsion to drink removed? Four through nine. I think we're seeing a pattern here, don't you? Right? And as long as I do the work, guess what? I get the results. You know what the great thing about that is? It tells us on page 29 that four through nine is my solution. And here's the great thing. And for me, this is comforting. And for those of you who've been here for a long time, maybe those of you who've been here 10, 15, 20 years or more, you know what's comforting for me is the solution in Alcoholics Anonymous never changes, right? Anytime I'm having trouble in AA, anytime I'm having trouble with my relationships with people around me, my solution isn't any different. My solution today at 25 years is the same as it was at 25 days sober. It's still four through nine, right? I write an inventory. I share with another person. I ask God to remove those defects. I make amends to other people quickly. And then I turn my thoughts to someone I can help. And I get realigned with God's will, right? And I sponsor a lot of guys. And sometimes they say, they come to me after a couple of years, you know. They've been doing this. They say, well, yeah, okay, I've worked the 12 steps, but you got anything else, you know? And I got to share the bad news with them. It's like, look, in AA, I got 12 silver bullets. That's all I got. And if that doesn't work for you, I got nothing else. I'm not a vocational therapist, right? I'm not a religious person, right? I don't go, you know, I can't counsel you on your marriage. I can give you some principles, but that's not what I do. All I do is Alcoholics Anonymous, and that works. But you know what I found out? It wasn't, it had nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous not working that was the reason I got drunk. And I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous is the reason anybody gets drunk. You know where it says, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? I don't know about you, but I have never personally seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, right? And I've take, done a lot of these workshops all over the U.S. and parts of Canada, right? And I have never, ever personally seen a person fail who has done everything this book said, followed every direction, met every condition, and got drunk. I've not seen it. As a matter of fact, has anybody here ever seen that? Has anybody here seen anybody that did everything this book said, followed every direction, met every condition, and got drunk? No hands. Right? I think that's what you call a 100% rate of recovery if I do the work that's called for in this book. Right? Now, I will tell you this. I've seen a lot of people that have thoroughly failed to do it. I will tell you that. Right? But I have never personally seen anybody fail who has thoroughly followed this path and continue to do it on a daily basis. It says, we will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally. And we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are neither fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. We've not even said today's the day. It says instead, the problem has been removed. Everybody underline that. What a great promise. I would observe that we talk a lot about those ninth step promises that come halfway through the ninth step. But I think that these tenth step promises are some of the most powerful promises in our book. My problem has been removed. And you know what? I didn't set out one day to say, I want my compulsion to drink removed. I just did the work and all of a sudden I woke up one day and the compulsion to drink was gone. As a matter of fact, six months went by and I didn't even realize it until I was at work one day. And I'm at work one day and I'm chopping, I'm cutting something, right? And all of a sudden, it like hit me. And I, I actually had to put the knife down and step back. And, and I remember tears started running down my face. And I realized that the compulsion to drink had left me. 
right? And that I hadn't had a thought of drinking, and it had been six months. And that my life hadn't really changed. My life still sucked, right? I didn't have a place to live. I was, I was working at a job that was far less than what I was really qualified for, making far less money than I was used to, right? But you know what? For the first time in my life that I could remember, I was happy, right? And what was I doing? I was just doing this. I was just going to Alcoholics Anonymous and I was following directions. I was working the steps. I was making amends to my family, right? I'd started to develop relationships with people that I hadn't talked to in a long time as a result of this work, right? And it says, we are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And getting all of these promises is contingent on one thing and they're going to tell me twice. It says it is easy. Everybody circle that. It's not hard. It's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. That's what's already been accomplished. That's what's already been done, right? It says we're headed for trouble if we do. For alcohol is a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Incidentally, the rest of this chapter is all about how I'm going to maintain my spiritual condition on a daily basis. That's what the rest of this chapter is about, right? It tells me specifically what I need to do to maintain my spiritual condition. Has anybody here ever heard of the spiritual bank account? Spiritual bank account, anybody ever heard of that? Right? They used to talk about that where I got sober, right? That you go to enough meetings and you put money in the spiritual bank account so that that way when the day comes you have money to withdraw, right? But that's not what my book says. My book says I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. You know what that means? It means that when I wake up in the morning, I got zero in my cash register, except what I put in. And that's why when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is reach out to a God of my understanding, and I put something in the cash register for that day, right? Let me ask you a question. Will yesterday's air keep me alive today? Will yesterday's food feed me today? Will yesterday's meeting and service work and step work keep me sober today? It may for a while, right? But if I stop doing this long enough, eventually the day will come. As our book says on page 43, the day will come where there's no human power that will stand between me and that next drink. People always ask me, why do you spend so much time talking about 10 and 11? The reason is very simple. Because I don't know when that day is going to come, right? In Bill's story at the top of page 15, and he doesn't, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, Bill says something that I think is instructive. He says, For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he would not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. Not uncertain, the certain trials and low spots ahead. I think Bill promises us trials and low spots, don't you? Right? He says if he does not work, he would surely drink again. And if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. Right? You see, I'm going to have trials and low spots, and I don't know where that day is going to happen. Right? But I know this, that if I don't have a daily program of recovery, when that day comes, I am sunk. Right? I'm sunk. It goes on to say, every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. Right? Every day, not some days, no days off. Right? All of my activities includes things that I would rather not, including my taxes, right? 
So there's no days off and there's no activities off. When I go to the detox, I tell the guys the same thing every time. I give them my card and I say the same thing to every single one of them. I say, here's my card. And my phone is on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Do you know why? Because every day is the day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. That's why. Because I'm always a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because there was somebody there for me when I got out of detox that was there at 3 o'clock in the morning when I feel like, felt like taking a drink. Right? It says, How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. It says, Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from Him who has all knowledge and power. It says, if we have carefully followed directions. Everybody underline that. If we have carefully followed directions. You know, I would really hate to get to this point in the book and say, you know, I don't think that I, perm- I, I thoroughly followed directions, right? And that's why when I take a man or a woman through the steps, I know by the time we reach here that they've thoroughly followed directions because we've worked right out of the book, right? We have worked right out of the book. It goes on to say, we have become... Uh, begun to sense the flow of His Spirit into us, to some extent we've become God-conscious. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense. But we must go further, and that means more action. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer better men than, men than we are using it constantly. It works, that's a promise, if we have the proper attitude and work on it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. Remember, as I said, Bill Wilson was not a spiritual giant when he wrote this, right? But he's not, so he's not going to tell us how to pray and meditate. But you know what he is going to do? He's going to give us some definite and valuable suggestions for how we can develop our own life of prayer and meditation. And I'm here to tell you, if you will take these definite and valuable suggestions, you too will develop your own personal life of prayer and meditation, right? Everybody write at the top of your book the 24-hour plan, right? The 24-hour plan, right? I'll tell you a quick story while you're doing that where it talks about on the page before about that we have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Man, I had, I had a great experience recently. I was up in uh, Ontario, Canada. I gave a talk at the uh, Ontario Regional Conference. And uh, I was got to be the closing speaker there. It was a, quite an honor. And uh, in the front row, and I didn't know this, there were two members that in the countdown, a husband and a wife, and in the countdown, he was the longest sober in the member, uh, member in the room with 67 years of continuous sobriety. And she was the second longest sober member in the room with 60 years of sobriety. Right? And after my talk, I, I went down off the lectern, off the podium there. And they both came up to me, the little old frail people in their 90s. right? And I leaned down and I said, I said to the woman, I said, I am so honored by your presence. Thank you for being here. And she said, I have so much to learn. And you know what I said to my sponsor when I got home? I said, that's what I want to grow up to be like. Right? I want to be 60 years sober and say, I have so much to learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? Now that is the power of humility. Think about that. I'll leave you with that thought. Right? Page 84 or 86. The 24-hour plan. My uh, old friend Nancy O'Donnell, who passed away with 57 years of continuous sobriety, a relative newcomer by comparison, right? She got sober. She died about 20 years ago, unfortunately. 
But she was like a spiritual mentor to me, right? Other than my sponsor, she was the greatest influence in my life. She got sober in 1943 in New York. She actually went to Towns Hospital and was treated by Dr. Silkworth in Towns Hospital in 1943. She worked at the first general service office in New York. She was a walking, talking, living, breathing part of AA history, right? And I would ask her questions. I'd say, Nancy, what was it like in the early days? And she'd say, oh, we were all scared to death. We, di we didn't know if it would really work, you know? We didn't know. We didn't have any history, you know? And I said to her, I remember on her 50th AA birthday, she gave a talk at a big speaker meeting. It was like 1,500 people there, right? And my sponsor walked up to her, and I was there with my sponsor, and he said to her, he said, 50 years of sobriety. He said, what does it feel like to have 50 years of sobriety? And I'll never forget, she turned to him and she said, if I don't do what kept me sober yesterday, today, today is the day I'll drink, right? After 50 years of sobriety, right? And you know what? That was most instructive for me because it reminded me that even after 50 years sober, if I don't do the things today that keep me sober, that I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And one of the things that Nancy shared with me well, she shared with me that in the early days of AA, the first thing that they did with her was they took her to page 86 and 87 of the big book, right? And they got her on what's called the 24-hour program, right? And they got her on this right away. And what the book does is it takes us to bed at night, tells us what to do. Then it gets us up in the morning, tells us what to do. And then it says what to do throughout the day, right? So when I sponsor a new guy, one of the first things I do after he agrees that he's an alcoholic of our type and he's willing to go to any lengths, is I get him on step 11 right here, right? Because my experience is, is this stabilizes someone long enough to get him through the steps, right? And I tell him, do exactly what it says. Follow the directions. So let's see what it says here. It says when we just retire at night, we constructively review our day. Where, where were we? Uh, were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving towards all, not just some? What could we have done better? Everybody underline that. That is the best question that I can ask, right? What could I have done better, right? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others? Of what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry remorse, or, uh, or where am I? Worry, remorse, or foolish, uh, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness and inquire what corrective measures should be taken, right? So I do my nightly review, and I do it every night. I don't read it out of the book anymore, right? But I, I do a review every night. And then I say, God, show me what corrective measures should be taken, right? Then I go to bed, right? I'm often surprised how the next day, right, the right answer will come, right? Somebody will say something to me out of the blue, clear blue sky, right? Or I'll get the answer somewhere. Or I'll have this intuitive thought that the book promises us, right? And I'll suddenly have the, it'll be just be there, right? I'll go, wow, that's how I deal with that, right? But you know what? As my friend John says, if you don't ask the question, you're never going to get the answer. You see, God's a gentleman. God doesn't go where he's not invited. He doesn't stay where he's not welcome. And what God's invited into, he gets into. And what he's left out of, he stays out of. Right? And so I have to invite God in. And I have to ask him what corrective measures should be taken. And when I get up in the morning, I do the same thing. I invite him into my day. And I ask God for his guidance, strength, and direction. 
And people say, do you ask God to keep you sober? Sometimes I do. But I don't need to ask God to keep me sober because God already knows what I need. What I ask God for is His guide, strength, and direction to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous and to serve my fellow man. And He takes care of the rest. Right? On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. And if God's not directing my thinking, guess who is? As my first sponsor said, the third step for a guy like me really isn't about turning my will and my life over to the care of God. It's about keeping my life and will out of the hands of a complete moron, right? And when God's not directing my thinking, I have once again taken control. I am once again trying to manage things around me. And all of a sudden, my thinking gets screwed up again. As a matter of fact, what you'll see as we go through the morning meditation is that really the whole purpose of the morning meditation is to change my thinking, right? And as I take the action, my thinking changes. What does it say here? First thing it says is we think about the 24 hours ahead. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. That's the first thing. Why? Because my thinking needs to change. That's why. It says we especially ask that it be divorced from selfish, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. You know what I found out as a result of this program? Is that oftentimes spiritual growth doesn't happen by addition. It happens by subtraction. Right? In other words, I could read a spiritual book and that's adding something to my spiritual life. And that's one way to grow spiritually. But what does the book say? The book says that we ask God to remove from us selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Right? And so when I remove those things and when God removes those things from me, then guess what? It's like having a big trash can full of all this self-will, right? And then if there's a trash can full of self-will, then there's no room for God in there. So my purpose when I wake up first thing in the morning is I ask God to remove those things. And once that's empty, there's room in there for God's will to come in and begin directing and ruling my life. Does that make sense? But as long as I'm full of self-will and I have my self-will, then there's no room for God in there. It says... Before we begin to ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that be divorced from selfish, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties, which is another way of saying our thinking, with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life, there's another way of saying our thinking, will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course to take. Here, we ask God for inspiration for an intuitive thought or decision. Everybody underline that, right? People always ask me, hey, do you read the 11th step prayer? I say, sure I do, right? And they say, they say, oh, it's in the 12 by 12. I say, no, it's not. The 11th step prayer is at the bottom of page 86. It says it right here. We ask God for an inspiration and intuitive thought or decision. That is the 11th step prayer. The prayer that's in the 12 by 12 is the St. Francis prayer, and it was written 13 years after the big book was written. So the prayer that I use when I get up in the morning is not the St. Francis prayer, although it is a lovely prayer. The prayer that I use in the morning is, God, divorce me from selfish, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Give me an intuitive thought or decision. Give me inspiration in my thinking and show me how I can serve my fellow man and you today. Right? It says we, are off, we relax and we take it easy. All new ideas for a guy like me. We don't struggle. We are often surprised after, uh, how the right answers come after we have tried this for a while. And you know, I said at the beginning of this workshop, I'm a planner. And I like to plan things. 
And I like to have things my way. But you know what the mistake I made for a long time was? I tried to force my day into my plan, right? What that means is I'm the kind of guy, I'll come up with a plan for my day, and at 9 o'clock I'm going to do this, and at 11 o'clock I'm going to do that, and at noon I'm going to do this, right? And I will spend the rest of the day, because usually by 9.15 I'm off my plan, right? Because people are late or things happen. So you know what I do? I spend the rest of my day trying to get my day back into my plan, right? And you know what I found out after a while? My whole problem was that I had, the, I had it backwards. I'm supposed to change my plan to fit the day and not try to fit my day into my plan. Right? And that's what it says here. I relax. I take it easy. I don't struggle. Right? And I'm surprised how the right answers come after I have tried this for a while. Right? Top of page 87. What used to be the hunch or occasional inspiration gradually becomes the working part of the mind. Now listen to this. Everybody highlight this. This is important. Being still inexperienced and having just made a conscious contact with God, it is not likely, uh, it is not probable we were going to be inspired at all times. We may pay for this presumption with all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Everybody underline that. Oh boy, right? This is why I tell the people that I sponsor, when you have a good idea, call me. When you have a great idea, come see me. Okay? Because I'm here to tell you, I've heard some crazy stuff from sober people. As a matter of fact, I called my sponsor up about three months ago, and I was telling him some problem, right? And he says, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard, right? And I'm thinking, I'm 25 years sober. That's the stupidest thing you've ever heard? He said, yes, that is the stupidest thing I have ever heard, right? And he, and you know what? But that's what I needed to hear, because my thinking was off base. And this is why self-sponsorship doesn't work with me, work for me. Because I am subject to all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. I sponsored a guy once and said, well, God told me to leave my wife and children and go carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I said, no, he did not. <laughs> you think he did, right? But that is not what God is telling you. Now, three months later, he said, God, what was I thinking? You know what I'm saying? Why? Because I am subject to insane thinking, Right? I am subject to childish emotions. I am subject to rationalization and justification and delusional thinking. And that is why I have a sponsor. You know why I have a sponsor really today? Because the enemy has been educated. That's why I have a sponsor today, right? Because my head is still able to convince me of all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. As a matter of fact, there's a story about a guy who they believe was an alcoholic. He was actually from my hometown. And he was, he was a guy that wasn't in AA, but he was a guy that the story about sponsorship and all sorts of absurd actions and ideas really applies to, that applies to me and Alcoholics Anonymous, because it shows what can happen if I don't have the proper sponsorship and if I think I'm getting direct from God. And he was a guy that lived when I, where I lived in San Francisco in the 70s. And you know what? He was a guy that wanted to do God's work. And so you know what he did? He did what you do when you have that situation. He founded a church which is a good thing, right? He founded a church and he started helping people. And he was taking heroin addicts off the streets, right? And he was taking people that didn't have an education, he was educating them, right? He was taking homeless people and they were feeding homeless people, thousands of them every week, right? But things got a little weird, right? And so he decided that things got so hot that he was going to take his church and he was going to move it to Guyana, right? And about 250 people decided one day that they were going to drink some Kool-Aid with some strychnine in it and all kill themselves. Right? 
Now, I have to think and I have to believe that if Jim Jones had had a sponsor, maybe the sponsor might have said something like, Jim, maybe the Kool-Aid's a bad idea. Right? But that is the power of my insane thinking when I believe I'm getting it direct from God. And Jim Jones didn't believe that there was anyone that he was talking to. He believed he was getting it straight from God. Right? And this is the power of the mind and the justification and delusion that can happen. And it can happen for me too. Maybe not at that scale. Right? But in my own life. It goes on to say, we usually conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. And that we be given whatever we need to take care of such problems. We ask especially for freedom from self-will. And are careful to make no request for ourselves only. We may pray for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. We are careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that. It doesn't work. You can easily see why. And I could not easily see why. I had to ask my sponsor, why? Why can't I pray for myself? He said, Rob, don't you understand? You've worked the first ten steps. The whole purpose of the program is to get you away from you, right? The book says that I'm selfish and self-centered. And what the steps are designed to do in an ultra-simplified way of saying it is they're designed to push me out of the center of my own life, right? And that's great. And you know what? As long as I'm doing it, it works perfectly, right? As long as I'm doing the service and doing the things that I do every day, it works great. However, unfortunately, it's like being on a pendulum. And if I push it out that way, right, as long as I keep pushing it, it'll stay out there. But you know, the odd thing is, when, as long as I stop pushing it, what happens? It starts to swing back to the center again, right? And you know what happens? It will, I will become the center again, and I won't even realize it, right? And this is why I don't pray for my own selfish ends, right? Because if I do what I did, what I did in the third step, God's going to provide everything that I need. All I need to do is keep close to Him and perform His work well. He's going to take all of the things that I need. It goes on to say, if circumstances warrant, we ask our wives or friends to join us in morning meditation. If we belong to a religious denomination, which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles that we have been discussing. Now listen to this. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. And then it says, be quick to see where religious people are right. Not wrong. And I was quick to see where religious people were wrong. Let me tell you. Right? Make use of what they have to offer. And I'll be here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that for the first 10 years of my sobriety, I was not ready to hear that. But that is a direction in our book. It's not a suggestion, it's a direction. Make use of what they have to offer. That sounds like a direction, right? Now, that some people are not religious, and that's okay. I don't currently attend a church. I have in the past. I don't currently, right? But you know what? The book says that I should make use of what they have to offer. And I know that there are some people that are violently anti-religious, and that's okay. I would simply suggest this. At the first international conference of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson gave the keynote address in Cleveland. And as he was giving the keynote address, there were only two people on the stage with him. Sam Shoemaker, who was an Episcopal minister, and Father Ed Dowling, the Jesuit priest. Right? You see, we wouldn't be where we are today were it not for men from religion, from medicine, and from psychiatry. Where would we be without Carl Jung and his life-giving message to Roland Hazard that he had to find a spiritual experience in order to recover? Where would we be? Where would we be without guys like Dr. William Silkworth Harry Tebow, and others that have 
generously given their time. Where would we be without Dr. Esther Richards from John Hopkins University that read a copy of the monolith of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and wrote a letter to the First General Service Office saying, I think that your book is great, but it would be great to have a doctor who's an expert in alcoholism write a portion of the book. And as a result of that suggestion, they asked Dr. Silkworth to write the doctor's opinion. And it went into our book. Where would we be without these people? And so I guess I'm always a little bit skeptical when I go into a meeting. I hear people say things like, we don't need religion. We don't need doctors. We don't need psychiatrists. Where would we be without our friends in medicine, religion, and psychiatry? Right? You know, one of the early members of AA, who's actually the head archivist from the General Service Office in New York, a guy by the name of Marsh, he once said something very, very poignant. He said that whenever a civilization or society declines, there's always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. Right? And I think it's important in Alcoholics Anonymous, if we're to preserve our future, that we remember our past and we remember where we came from. Bottom of the page says, as we go through the day, we pause. Everybody underline that. We pause when agitated, which is resentful or doubtful, that's fearful. And ask, that's a prayer for the right thought or action, right? You know what the difference between a reaction and a response is? The pause, right? If I don't pause, it's a reaction. When I pause, it's a response. And I can tell you from my own experience, sometimes that pause is five minutes, and sometimes it's 24 hours before I make a response, and that's okay. And I ask for the right thought or action. I constantly remind myself I'm no longer running the show. Humbling and saying to myself many times each day that I will be done. We are then in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. We become much more efficient. We don't tire so easily for not burning up initially foolishly as we did when we were trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. It works. It really does. And then it says something that I think is one of the great truths of AA. We alcoholics are undisciplined. Everybody underline that. So after 11 steps, I'm still undisciplined. Isn't that interesting, right? And I'm here to tell you, I sponsor enough guys to tell you that alcoholics are undisciplined. It's like herding cats in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm telling you what, right? Okay? So what do we do? It says we let God discipline us in the simple way we've just outlined, right? I think it's interesting that a lot of times in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the word let appears right before the word God. You know, God's not going to force me to do anything. As I said earlier, God's a gentleman, right? So I have to ask him and I have to let him run my life, right? And if I choose to do otherwise, that's okay with God. And I can tell you hundreds of times in my sobriety over the last 25 years that I've decided that I was going to, I was going to take over. As a matter of fact, there was a long time where I'm like, okay, God, you can have all of me, good and bad, but I'm keeping sex and money, right? There was a long time that that was my attitude, right? Okay? And then after I burned that stuff to the ground, right, I said, okay, God, I guess you can do a better job of running this than me, right? Now I'll close this session with this. You know, one of the things that our book says, our book says that there are many helpful books also. It says the suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. And you know what? I've read hundreds of books on spirituality, right? A lot of people have read Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of books Emmett Fox wrote. Those were very popular amongst the early members of our fellowship. There's a, a book that I give out to a lot of people by Henry Drummond called The Greatest Thing in the World. Great book. should read it. Easy to read. Very short. Perfect for alcoholics, right? I've read The Variety of Religious Experience by William James, right? 
There's lots of books out there, right? As a matter of fact, Bill had a whole library of books in his office that he read for spiritual growth. He read the book, My Utmost for His, High, uh, for His Highest, which is a daily devotional by Oswald Chambers, right? But I have a favorite spiritual book, and I always like to share it at these workshops. It's this book right here. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's called Where's Waldo, right? And I remember when my daughter was a little girl, we would sit on the floor. And for those of you who are not familiar with what this book is, it's this book with these scenes like this, and they're very confused like my life, right? And, uh, and the whole idea is you're supposed to find Waldo. Here's a city scene where Waldo, here's Waldo right here, okay? And here's a beach scene with Waldo, right? Okay? And you're supposed to try to find Waldo. I can usually find Waldo pretty quick, but I don't know where he is. Oh, he's right there, okay? And here's a snow scene with Waldo, right? And I love this, right? I love this. And here's a, here's a, a camping scene. Here's a train station. It's like my mind sometimes, a train station, right? And I was sitting there reading this with my daughter one night, and I realized that this is exactly how God is in my life. And it became my favorite spiritual book, right? And people say, well, Rob, why is Where's Waldo your favorite spiritual book, right? And here's why. Because sometimes my life gets so confusing that I can't find God, right? And sometimes things can get so chaotic in my life that I forget to look for God, right? And sometimes things can be so hectic in my mind, right, that I don't always see God, right? But you know what I know? I know that if I look closely enough, I can see God in the midst of my life, right? Just like Waldo, he's there. And if I'll take the time to look closely enough and look long enough and seek his will, I know that he's always there. Let's take a five-minute break. Again, my name is Rob Mason. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Rob. I'm going to apologize. My voice is going a little here. It's good. To, it's good to be. It's good to be here. And uh, I know it's a long day. The only people that are left now are the dumb and the desperate. I'll tell you that right now. And the dedicated. Let's put it that way. Okay. We're going to start on page 89. And this is the last session, and it is incidentally my favorite session. It's my favorite session because this is where I do most of my AA work today. I do most of my AA work in working with others and applying these principles in all my affairs. And as a result of the first 11 steps, I think that the greatest promise in AA actually happens in the 12th step. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Not as one result, not as some result, not as a result, but the result of these steps is nothing more and nothing less than a vital spiritual awakening, right? And it's interesting that the 12th step has three distinct parts. The first part is the spiritual awakening, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And as a result of that, I'm charged with a certain responsibility. The responsibility I'm charged with this to carry this message to other alcoholics, and to carry this message and practice these principles that I've learned in the first 11 steps in every area of my life. Right? And I've had the spiritual experience that we talked about. And I know some of you, how many people here have had a spiritual experience? Spiritual experience, spiritual awakening? The Appendix 2, as I said on spiritual experience, and we didn't have time to turn there, but... In the back of the book, it was an appendix that they added after the writing of the first edition when they reprinted the book in 1950 for the second edition. 
Bill says that it's nothing more and nothing less than a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And I've had that. Right? My compulsion to drink was removed. The spirit within me came awake. Right? And now that I've had this spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, as I said, I have a certain obligation. As a matter of fact, that I had a sponsor that said, Rob, it's kind of like building a house and installing electrical wiring, right? He said, let's say you and I were to build a house and we wanted to run electricity into the house. So we ran all these conduits and cables all throughout the house, put in plugs and outlets and light bulb fixtures. We got it all wired up, but we never flipped the switch. He said, that's what working the first 11 steps without doing service work in Alcoholics Anonymous is like. It's like building this great house with this great wiring system and never flipping the switch. Because for me, service work and sponsorship is the switch that I flip that turns on the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you have never done it, you are missing the greatest part of AA. Because all of the first 11 steps are designed to do is get me out of the way enough that I can perform what I believe is God's intended purpose for every single one of us. And they tricked me. I thought it was really all about me. I thought it was all about what I was going to get. And all about what I needed. And all about my feelings and my thinking. And I got to the end of the 12 steps. And they said, no, it's really not about you. It's really about helping someone else. It's really about loving God and His kids. Right? And I thought, you duped me. right? But because I didn't have any alternatives... I listened to my sponsor. And my sponsor was a wise sponsor, and he pushed me right into working with others right away. Right? And I know that there are some people that you may hear in the fellowship, oh, you should wait two years or three years or five years or ten years or thirty years before you sponsor anybody. Right? How many people have heard stuff like that? Right? Oh, you should wait two years to sponsor anybody. You know what my answer to that is? I am forever grateful that Bill Wilson didn't wait two years to go find Dr. Bob. Because none of us would be here. I am forever grateful that Ebby Thatcher didn't wait two years to go 12-step Bill Wilson in his house in December of 1934 because none of us would be here. I'm forever grateful that Bill and Dr. Bob didn't wait two years to go visit Bill Dodson who was AA number three in the hospital in Akron City Hospital. Dr. Bob was sober two days when they finally went to visit Bill Dodson. And the depiction of that is in most AA clubhouses. It's called The Man in the Bed. And it's the depiction of the first time the two alcoholics worked with another alcoholic, and all three of them were able to maintain permanent sobriety. Right? What a great gift. And my sponsor said that if you've worked the first 11 steps of this program, and you've been given the gift of sobriety, the gift of a spiritual experience, the gift of the compulsion being removed, and you don't work with other alcoholics, he said, I got news for you, Slick. You're going to pay. Right? You see, I, there's, you don't get anything for nothing around here. Right? And so I have been given the gift of sobriety and I have a moral obligation and responsibility to carry that message to other alcoholics. If you want to know why I'm here today, that's why I'm here today. I'm here because there were people in Alcoholics Anonymous that were in service when I got here that took the time to do things just like this so I could sit way back there in the back and listen and absorb and learn about myself and learn about alcoholism and learn what I needed to do in order to stay sober. And I applied those things and my life changed. And as I said in the big book, where they write short, we work short. And where they write long, we work long. 
And if you think about it, they've just covered step 3 through 11 in two chapters. Think about that, right? 3 through 11, two chapters, right? And now they give us a whole chapter devoted entirely to step 12. What does that mean? It means that there's a lot of work for me to do in step 12. There's a lot of work for me to do in helping others. There's a lot of work for me to do in carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous wherever I can. And he gives us some practical ideas for how to do that. People ask me all the time, they say, well, how do you take somebody, how do you work with a newcomer, right? I said, we have a whole chapter on it called Working with Others. And there are some people that will tell you, well, sponsorship doesn't appear in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is not true, okay? The word sponsor does not appear in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because in 1939, when the book was published, the book was the 12-step call, okay? And they would send it in the mail. You'd send your $3.50, and it came with a money-back guarantee, and they would send you a copy of the book, right? So if you're in Los Angeles or Atlanta or Orlando in 1939, you're going to send your money, and you're going to get a copy of the book, right? So if they wrote in the book, get with your sponsor and do the third step prayer, are you going to be able to do it? No. If they say, get with your sponsor and share your inventory, are you going to be able to do it? No, right? So they didn't use the word sponsor. However, the principle of sponsorship is all over the big book. And what we know from AA history is that in the three groups that they had in Cleveland and Akron and New York, they had a sponsorship ethic. We talked about Dr. Bob taking guys through the steps and this type of sponsorship today. Incidentally, that story is the story of a guy by the name of Earl Treat. He got sober in 1937 in Akron, Ohio, two years before the book was written. And we, he calls Dr. Bob his sponsor. Okay? It's very clear. So they had a sponsorship ethic in the groups. But they didn't put the word sponsor in the book, in the text, because they didn't want people to be hung up on that and not be able to do the work. Because they didn't know how far-reaching this would be. As a matter of fact, I don't believe our founders could have ever foreseen a time where there would be a day when there would be 500 meetings in the greater Orlando area every week. Where I come from in San Francisco, there are 2,000 meetings a week, right? In Los Angeles, where the Pacific Group is, there are 5,000 meetings a week, right? And so literally, there are people that go to meetings, they start at 6 a.m. and they go to meetings all day long, till midnight. And they get up the next day and they go to meetings all day long, right? And so people have gotten the idea that they can stay sober on the fellowship. That doesn't work for a guy like me. What keeps me sober is doing this, right? And it tells me now that I've had the spiritual experience, I'm charged with a certain responsibility. Let's see what it says here. Everybody circle the first two words of this next paragraph, page 89. Practical experience, right? How do I learn to sponsor other people? Practical experience. How do I learn to take a man or a woman through the steps? Practical experience. How do I learn how to do things in AA? Practical experience. Nothing more than that, nothing less than that. And I was grateful to have a sponsor who pushed me into service, and I didn't think that I was ready to sponsor other people. He said, you're ready. You've worked the first nine steps. You have hope for the newcomer. Go out and find somebody to work with, right? And he made me work with somebody, right? Why? Because he knew the truth. And here it is right here. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics, right? In Bill's story, he calls it strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, right? And so it says here, nothing. That's not meetings, not service, 
right? Not my sponsor, that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking for me as intensive work with other alcoholics, right? And that has been one of the great truths of my sobriety, right? And whenever anything has happened in my sobriety and things have happened, I've had certain trials and low spots, right? My mom had cancer 10 years ago, right? And it was bad, you know? She had to have a full mastectomy, right? It didn't look like she was going to make it, right? She's alive today, right? What a blessing that is, right? But guess what? I work with other alcoholics. I had a painful divorce three years ago. And when I went through my divorce, you know what? I was blessed, 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 blessed to have lots of new people around me to work with because it kept me out of myself. And you know, I thought for a long time that there was some like really complex reason why working with others was so vital for a guy like me. And you know what I found out later on? It's not complex at all. It's very simple. It's when I'm thinking about you, I'm too dumb to think about me. I can't think about two things at once. And when I'm thinking about you and I'm helping you, I'm not thinking about me. And it's really that simple. Because me is the problem. And my self-centeredness is the problem. It says here, it works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help where no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, everybody underline this. Remember, they are very ill, right? And I think sometimes that we forget that in AA, don't you? Right? I think that we forget that. Some water. I think that we forget that sometimes, right? And so we have these people come into AA. I saw it a couple weeks ago at a meeting, right? Somebody come to me and they said, oh, this guy came into the meeting and he'd been drinking. I said, no. You're kidding me. In an AA meeting, he'd been drinking, right? Okay. But we forget that they're very ill, don't we? Right? And I have to remind myself of that all the time when I'm working with new people, right? That I was exactly the same way when I come to AA. As a matter of fact, when I came to AA the last time, I'd been in AA not very long, and I decided I didn't like AA, right? So I was going to start my own 12-step program. True story, right? Because I didn't like what they were doing in AA, right? So I got a meeting place, right? I had my own stuff. And I pictured one day they'd have my picture on the wall like Bill Wilson, you know. It's going to be good. So I said, we're going to have this meeting, you know. It's going to be better than AA, you know. And not one person showed up, you know what I'm saying? I brewed this big pot of coffee, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> not one person. So I went back. I dragged myself back to the fellowship where I got sober, and they were talking about gratitude, you know what I'm saying? And I'm sitting there, and I'm just stewing, right? I'm stewing because I'm not happy, Right? I'm pissed off at all these people in AA that are bossing me around all the time, right? And then I realized something. I realized that it really wasn't about them. It was really about me, right? It was really about me. And it wasn't Alcoholics Anonymous that was in fault. And I wasn't here to change Alcoholics Anonymous. And I mentor a lot of people. I mentor a lot of people that they don't actually sponsor, and they call me on the phone. And they say, well, we want to change this at our meeting. We want to change that. We want to take the Lord's Prayer out of the end of the meeting. We want to do this, and we want to do that, Right? And I say, really? You want to do that, do you? I said, well, let me ask you a question. Did you come to AA to change AA? Or did you come to AA to change you? Because AA was working fine before I got here, and AA will work fine after Rob Mason is gone. You see, I need Alcoholics Anonymous far more than Alcoholics Anonymous needs me. And so I had to become a part of Alcoholics Anonymous rather than making Alcoholics Anonymous a part of me. The next paragraph says, life will take on a new meaning. To watch people recover 
to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Notice that it says frequent contact with newcomers and with others is the bright spot of our lives, right? You know, I believe sponsorship is about a couple of things. I believe it's about accountability. I believe it's about transparency, right? Accountability, transparency, and I believe it's about following direction, right? And that's what, I, and that's still true for me today. I have a sponsor, and I, I have, by the way, I have a sponsor and I am sponsored. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between having a sponsor and being sponsored, right? There are some people that have a sponsor in name only, right? So they can say that they have a sponsor. And I get guys like that sometimes. They want me to sponsor them, but they already have it in their mind what they're going to do, right? So they call me up, and what they really want is not sponsorship. What they really want is validation, right? They want me to go, yeah, I think that's a great idea, right? But you see, my sponsor is the one that I take direction from, right? Because I can't see things clearly. And I'm here to tell you, I'm the kind of guy, again, I'm a skeptic and a cynic, right? And I'm waiting for the day that my sponsor tells me to do something that doesn't work out, and I'm going to throw him right under the bus in a meeting. You know what I'm saying? But it's never happened for me. It's never happened for me in 25 years, and I've always been sponsored. And I have a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor who has a sponsor. You know? Because I think that's important, right? But you know what's odd is it's not that I think my sponsor's infallible. I know my sponsor's fallible, right? But you know what I believe is infallible? I believe what's infallible is the power that works through him as he's trying to help me and the power that works through me as I'm trying to help the people that I sponsor. As a matter of fact, I have oftentimes sat there in amazement and heard myself saying things that I need to hear in my own life, right? Because one of the great truths in Alcoholics Anonymous is this, is that the teacher never really learns the lesson until he teaches it to somebody else, right? And how am I going to tell you to do your amend? if I haven't completed mine? How am I going to tell you to go to that meeting if I don't go myself? How am I going to tell you to turn your will and your life over to the care of God if I'm not doing that? Right? And so it forces me into action. And every time I take a guy or a gal through the steps, it reminds me of the action that I need to continue to take on a daily basis in order to stay sober. Right? What a gift. Top of page 90. You know, people often will ask me, well, how do you take a new guy or a new girl through the steps? Because if you read Working With Others and you read it carefully, there's not really direction. There's a lot of direction on how to hook a newcomer, right? But there's not a lot of direction on how to take them through the steps. Why? Because they assume that we're going to take them through the steps the same way they've just shown us how to go through the steps. That we're going to take them through the book. And when I sponsor somebody, I don't give them my sage wisdom and advice. Okay? I would like to. I would secretly like to say that I speak for God. Okay? But I don't. Right? And my job as a sponsor is not to give them my sage wisdom and advice. My job as a sponsor is to take them through the 12 steps so they can have a spiritual awakening. And then it's between them and God. Does that make sense to everybody? As a matter of fact, the book says that we have to quit playing God. And so I don't play God to the people that I sponsor. I can't manage my own life, let alone manage the lives of the people that I work with. So I don't try. So at the top of page 89, it starts giving us some directions. And we don't have time to cover all of this in detail, but I want to hit a few key points. 
It says, when you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. Everybody underline that, right? I want to point something out here that I didn't see for a long time, right? If you're like me, right, and any old timer will tell you this, this book gets smarter every year, right? I see things in there all the time that I didn't see before, right? I thought, I say, where, when did that appear in there, right? But notice that it says, when you find a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous. I would observe that it does not say, when a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous finds you. Right? You know what that means? It means I need to find the prospect. Why? Because nothing's going to so much ensure immunity from drinking for me as intensive work with other alcoholics. I remember when I was early in sobriety, there was an old-timer named Pete G. And Pete was this old-timer from Texas. He was about seven feet tall. And I asked him one day, I said, Pete, have you ever worked with anybody that failed in Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, nope, I've never worked with anybody that failed. I said, what do you mean? I said, how many guys have you sponsored? He said, a whole bunch. I said, really? And none of them have ever failed? He said, nope, I'm still sober. And he walked away. <laughs> right? And you know what? I've worked with a lot of newcomers, too. Some of them have stayed sober and some of them haven't. You know what? But you know what? I've always stayed sober, right? And that's why I need to find the newcomer. Because I need the newcomer more than that newcomer needs me. Jimmy and I were talking about that this morning, right? On our way over here, right? Then I need him more than he needs me. Why? Because I know that I'm going to stay sober today by helping him. And when I help him, it helps me, right? It says find out all you can about him, right? And this is what I call the preliminary questioning, right? Find out about his background and his religious leanings and the seriousness of his condition, you know, find out if he uses drugs in conjunction with alcohol. Find out if he's got a family. Find out if he's got a wife. Find out if he's got kids, you know. Why? Because the book says that I need that information to see how I would like him to approach me if the tables were turned. As a matter of fact, the mission statement of service work is found at the bottom of page 89 in the last three lines. It says, because of my own drinking experience, I can be uniquely qualified and useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate. Never criticize. To be helpful is my only aim. And if you want to know how to do service work in AA, that's it right there. Cooperate. Don't criticize. And I hear people all the time, my home group this, my home group that, that one this, that one that, right? Well, if you don't like your home group, then guess what? Why don't you do something about it? If you don't like what you're getting out of AA, why don't you look at what you're putting into AA, right? The problem in Alcoholics Anonymous is we've got 20% of the people doing 90% of the work. Become part of the 20%, right? Become part of the 20%, and you will get all the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I don't criticize AA. My job is never to break down AA. It's to build AA up. My job is never to break down and tear down the guys that I sponsor, although I'm sure sometimes it feels like it, right? My job is always to build them up. And you know how we do that? We do that by telling people the truth, right? But you know, one of the things we learn as we improve in understanding and effectiveness is you can be, you can mean what you say to somebody without being mean. And you can level with somebody without leveling somebody, right? And that's one of the things that we learn here, right? And so my job with the people that I sponsor is to always try to help them to a better life, right? Page 91. See your man alone at first if, po uh, if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. 
If he wishes to talk, let him do so. We will thus get a better idea of how to proceed. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how this was accomplished. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles your liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your ex escapades, get him to tell some of his. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Give him the account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done on the chapter on alcoholism. We didn't cover it today, but if you've read the third chapter, you know there's some stories in there about some guys. There was Fred the accountant, or excuse me, Fred the, car, uh, Fred the accountant. And Fred the accountant got the idea that he could have a few cocktails with dinner at the end of a perfect day because there wasn't a cloud on the horizon, right? And then you have Jim the car salesman. And Jim the car salesman had a great idea, right? He thought it was okay to have whiskey if only he mixed it with what? With milk, right? Now that makes sense to me, right? Why shouldn't you be able to drink whiskey if you mix it with milk, right? Okay. And it says in here, we should show him from our own experience how our drinking was exactly the same way as Jim or Fred. And if you're an alcoholic of my description, every alcoholic has a story like that, right? I remember one time I was trying to stay sober and I was reading this magazine, right? And on the back of the magazine, it had this thing, brew your own beer, right? And I thought to myself, well, if I brewed my own beer, I could probably drink it, right? It made sense to me, right? I didn't see what was wrong with that. But that's that alpha logic that I always talk about to the guys that I sponsor, right? Page 94. Outline the program of action. Everybody underline that. If I'm going to outline the program of action, then I need to know what the program of action is, don't I? You see, I can't transmit what I don't have. And if I don't have a clear understanding of the program of recovery, can I transmit that to you? No, I can't. If I haven't had a spiritual awakening, can I show you how to have one? No, I can't. And I can have the best of intentions, right? And there are a lot of well-intended people, right, that are trying to help people in Alcoholics Anonymous that are being of disservice rather than they're being of service. And I'm not criticizing, I'm sharing my own experience, because that's what I did. I tried to help people. And my sponsor told me if a blind man leads a blind man, both are going to fall in the ditch. And that's what happened because I didn't have a message to carry. And as much as I tried, I didn't have a message of hope to carry to anybody. Because I can't transmit what I don't have any more than I can come back from somewhere that I've never been. Right? Outline the program of action. Explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past, and how you are now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually... He may be helping you more than you are helping him. Everybody underline that, right? You know, one of the things that I always say about Alcoholics Anonymous is that Alcoholics Anonymous is what I call the upside-down kingdom, right? It's upside-down. I mean, if you think about it, right, there's things that we talk about in AA that really don't make any sense. We say things like, you got to surrender to what? you got to surrender to win, right? And you got to give it away to, right? And here's one of the things right here is you may he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Is somehow when I serve you, I save me. Right? What an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, in Bill's story, he says something that most people don't understand. He says, common sense would thus become uncommon sense. Right? 
Try to explain that to a non-alcoholic. As a matter of fact, go to work on Monday morning and tell people that you have a vital sixth sense and you live in four dimensions, right? See what they say to you. Right? Only an alcoholic of my description understands that, right? Good stuff, right? We're going to turn to page 97. We're actually going to start at the bottom of 96, and this is the last commentary I'm going to make on this, and we're going to do a few things and close it out. I'll try to get us out of here as close to on time as I can. I apologize for running long. The bottom of page 96, it gives me what I believe is one of the, one of the things I'm supposed to do or not do as a sponsor, right? It says, be sure you use discretion. Be certain that he will be welcomed by your family and that he's not trying to impose upon you for money connections or shelter. Permit that and you only harm him. Now listen to what it says. It says you'll be making it possible for him to be insincere. And then it says you may be aiding in his destruction rather than in his recovery. And we don't like to talk about that in AA, do we? Right? But you see, if I let the people that I sponsor get away with what they're not supposed to get away with, if I allow them to be insincere and dishonest with me, then I'm not helping them. Right? And I've had to tell more than a number of sponsees that I've taken through the steps, I don't think I can help you because you're not able to be honest with me. And if you can't follow my direction, you should follow the direction of somebody whose direction you can follow. Because if you can't follow mine, then I'm really not your sponsor. You are. Right? And I don't sponsor people with two sponsors. And if you're your own sponsor, then I can no longer sponsor you. Right? As a matter of fact, I mentioned my friend Kevin Haggerty. And I sponsored Kevin for a long time, and I could speak about him now because he's gone, right? And I sponsored Kevin for about three years. And Kevin was one of those guys, Kevin had what I called the good dope syndrome, right? That's where he thought he was the only one that had the good dope in AA, right? And so he would go to groups, and he'd call me on the phone, he'd say, well, they're doing it wrong down there at Central, and they're doing it wrong over there in Winter Park. And one group at a time, one person at a time, right? He backed his way out the door of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And my job was to be honest with him. And I was so honest with him to the point where he said he no longer wanted to work with me, right? But here's the thing. I'm here to save somebody's life. And I'm here to save the lives of the people that I sponsor because this is life and death. And I would rather that somebody I sponsor hate my guts, but I'm telling them the truth because I'm not going to preside over someone's destruction, right? I refuse to preside over someone's destruction, and if they have to hate me and they do the work and they have the spiritual experience as a result, then I'm willing to take that risk. But if they can't follow my directions, I'm not going to sit there and aid in their destruction rather than in their recovery. Right? The book tells me to never avoid these responsibilities, but to be sure I'm doing the right thing if I assume them. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. Everybody underline that. When should I avoid these responsibilities? Never. Right? Not on my day off, not on my vacation, not when I don't feel like it, right? I should never avoid these responsibilities. Why? Because every day is the day when I have to carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. That's why. It says a kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You may have to act the good Samaritan every day if need be, right? And I think it's interesting that Bill uses a biblical story here to make a point, right? And for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, the story goes that there was a guy traveling along the road and he got beaten up and left in, in the ditch, right? 
And he was a hated Samaritan. And in those days, the Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans, right? They were warring tribes. They were warring factions. And especially a religious person would never have anything to do with a Samaritan. And so along came a priest, right? A religious man, a Pharisee. And he saw this guy bleeding in the ditch, right? They'd taken his clothes. They'd taken his money. He was left there to die. And he passed by him on the other side, right? And then along came another guy, right? And he saw the guy sitting there, and he, and he, he did nothing. But then along comes this Samaritan. And he sees this guy in the ditch, and he has mercy on him, he has pity on him. And so he picks him up, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to the nearest town, and he puts him up, and he bandages him, he bandages his wounds, and he tells the innkeeper, I'm going to give you some money now, right? And later, if I owe you any more, I'll come back and pay you, right? And the moral of the story is that here comes the religious people, here come people that should have helped the guy, and they didn't. But here came the hated Samaritan, the guy that should have had nothing to do with this other guy, right? But he took the time and had pity and mercy on him, right? And I have to have pity and mercy on the people that I work with too. I have to have pity and mercy on the people down at the detox and the treatment centers. Because guess what? All of us are in here today, but there are thousands of people out there in treatment centers and detoxes and living behind the clubhouses that don't have anywhere to go tonight, right? And all of us, I believe, have a responsibility. As a matter of fact, now that I've worked the 12 steps, do you know that the book gives us a new job description? Did you know that? Turn to page 102 in the big book. Page 102. Bottom of page 102, second to last full paragraph. Your job now, everybody underline that. When is it my job? Is to place myself where I may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives, and God will keep you unharmed. And I've been to some interesting places doing service work in Alcoholics Anonymous, and God has always kept me unharmed. You'll remember that I said when I took the third step, I entered this agreement with God, right? And my part of the deal is I keep close to Him and I perform His work well, right? The book says that I have a new employer. And as a new employer, then God is allowed as my employer to give me a new job description. And here it is right here on 102. My job now is to place myself where I can be of maximum helpfulness to others. So I should never hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand, right? We're going to close this thing out with a couple of footnotes. Everybody turn to page 129. We don't have time to cover everything in here, but I want to cover a couple of quick things. A couple of quick things. You know, one of the things that we talk about in the last part of the 12th step is the idea of putting these principles in all my affairs, right? And especially in the areas where I don't want to. Like, it's easy for me to be this great spiritual guy that you all see in AA, right? But it's difficult for me at work. Sometimes it's difficult for me with my ex-wife. Sometimes it's difficult for me with people that I don't necessarily get along with in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? But there, even more than anywhere else, is where I need to apply. And sometimes people say, well, I'm going to put these principles ahead of your lousy personality, right? Isn't that how we usually say it, right? Do you know what we learn after we're around here long enough? There's only one person whose personality I need to put these principles ahead of. And that's mine, right? Because my personality is really the problem. 
You know, I remember I was in early sobriety, and I think this is the best example of putting these principles at work in every area of my life that I could give you. And when I was about five years sober, I took up the game of golf. Any golfers in here? Any golfers in here? If you want to learn patience and tolerance, right, take up the game of golf. It's a terrible game for, for alcoholics, right? Because it requires patience and it requires, you know, things that alcoholics don't usually have. It requires honesty, right? Can't change your score, right? That kind of stuff, right? And I remember all of my life I'd been a baseball player, right? So I had this beautiful baseball swing, right? And anybody who knows anything about a baseball swing knows that if you have a perfect baseball swing like I, as a matter of fact, I was a really good baseball player. Some people said I could have even been a pro baseball player. I was that good, right? But in a baseball swing, you turn your wrists over like that, right, when you swing the bat, right? So I thought that you could transfer the skills from baseball to golf, right? And you kind of can, right? The problem was I'd go out there to play golf, and I'd go to hit the golf ball, and I'd turn my wrists over like that. So I would hit this great shot, right, and I would hook the ball like that. Right? And this happened over and over and over again, right? So I knew what the problem was, right? I knew that I had this hook in my swing because I turned my wrist over, right? So you know what I did? I did what any other alcoholic would do, right? I watched videos on the problem, right? To help me fix the problem, right? I talked to people about the problem, right? I even got a golf coach to help me with the problem. And we would go out to the driving range day after day after day, and we would hit balls in the same problem, right? I couldn't get rid of the problem, right? But I'll never forget, we were out there one day, and I was working on this problem, right? And I hit this perfect shot, right? Perfect golf shot, right? And I, and, but then I went back to my same problem, right? And he explained something to me that I've always applied to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, Rob, if you will continue to practice your golf swing, the glorious day will come where what you know in your mind and your actions will be in harmony, right? And I'm here to tell you that if you will practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous that we've talked about today, in your life, over time, right, the glorious day will come where what you know in your mind is right and your actions will be in harmony, right? Page 129, we're actually going to start at the bottom of page 128. He says, he is not so unbalanced as they might think. Many have experienced dad's elation. We have indulged in spiritual intoxication. Like the gaunt prospector, belt drawn over the last ounce of food, our pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. Father feels he struck something better than gold. For a time he may try to hug the new treasure to himself, he may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, infinite load, that will pay dividends only if he minds it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. You know, there's another book that I read. And people always ask me, they say, Rob, why do you do so much in Alcoholics Anonymous? Right? And I tell them the truth. In this other book that I read, there's a parable. And it's a parable about a guy that's out walking one day in a field. And he's out in the field and he finds a buried treasure. And in this book that I read, it says that he doesn't get sad. He goes and he sells everything that he owns. And he buys that field. But he's not remorseful that he's lost everything that he owns. He rejoices because he's found this new treasure. And if you want to know why I do what I do in Alcoholics Anonymous... 
And if you want what I have, the answer is very simple. Because I'm that guy. I have found the treasure in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have found the thing that makes me whole. I don't have to be two halves anymore. I can be one whole guy. Right? Tell you a quick story and then I'll close it out. You know, there was a guy, much like all of us, who was sitting in the park doing his 11th step one day. Right? And as he sat there doing his 11th step, he was praying to God. He was saying, God, show me how I can serve you. Right? And as he was sitting there meditating, he heard this noise, this tap, tap, tap. And it was a blind person coming down the path. It was edging their way along. Right? And he was moved. And he said, God, help this blind person and have pity on them. Right? And he continued his meditation. And a few minutes later, he heard this rustling. And he opened his eyes and he saw a homeless guy rooting through the trash can, looking for something to eat. And again, he was moved with compassion. And he said, God, please help this homeless person. Have mercy and compassion on him. Right? And not long after that, as he sat there and continued his meditation, he opened his eyes and down the path came staggering this alcoholic with a bottle in a bag, looking for cigarette butts on the ground to smoke, right? And our friend was so moved by what he had seen that he cried out and he said, God, I know that you are a loving and powerful God. How then can you see all this and do nothing? And that intuitive thought in his spirit that God put there spoke to him. And it said, I did do something about it. I made you. I'd like to close by reading something that's from my favorite piece of Alcoholics Anonymous literature. Maybe some of you read it, maybe you haven't. It's called A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's my favorite piece of AA literature other than our book. And in it is an excerpt from one of our very early pioneering members about what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And if you haven't read this, it is worth reading. Because I think it is one of the most powerful things that we have in AA. And I'd like to end this workshop with this because I think it really speaks to what my experience and what all of our experience has been in this great thing we call AA. It says, There must come a day, it seems to me, when every alcoholic, in or out of AA, finally sits down in the presence of his enemies. When he does, he will be amazed to discover that he is attending a meeting of one himself. The day the alcoholic in AA realizes that his enemy is within, that the tigers are largely creatures of his own design and lurk in his own unconscious, is the day when AA for him becomes what I believe its founders meant to be, a flight into reality. Tonight, if I could find one fault with AA, it would be that we have not yet begun to tap the hidden potential behind the last seven words of the 12 steps to practice these principles in all our affairs. It occurred to me not long ago that whenever I'm sitting in a meeting of AA, I am never aware that I'm sitting next to another white man, a Catholic, an American, a Frenchman, a Mexican, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a black man, or a brown man. I am aware only that I am sitting next to another alcoholic. And it seemed deeply significant to me that this feeling of common humanity had been purchased by me at the much cost and considerable pain and suffering. Should this hard one understanding of and feeling for others be confined to the meeting halls or the members of AA? 
Or does it remain for me to take what I have learned and what I have experienced, not only in AA, but in every other area and endeavor of my life, to lift up my head and assume my rightful place in the family of man? Can I there in the household of God know that I am not sitting next to another white man, another Catholic, another American, a Frenchman, a Mexican, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, a brown, a black man or a brown man, not even another alcoholic? And can I finally at long last come home from all the wars and say in the very depths of my soul, I'm sitting next to another human being? Ladies and gentlemen, who would dare attempt to analyze a phenomenon, to diagram a wonder, or parse a miracle? The answer is only a fool. And tonight I trust that I have not been such a fool. All I have tried to do is tell you where I have been these past 16 years and some of the things that I have come to believe become of my, because of my journeyings. This coming Sunday, in the churches of many, there will be read that portion of the Gospel of Matthew which recounts the time when John the Baptist was languishing in the prison of Herod. And hearing the works of his cousin Jesus, he sent two of his disciples to him to say, Art thou he is who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Christ did as he so often did. He didn't answer them directly. He said to the disciples, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Back in my childhood catechism days, I was taught that the poor in this instance did not only mean the poor in the material sense, but it also meant the poor in spirit who burned with an inner hunger and an inner thirst, and that the word gospel quite literally meant the good news. More than 16 years ago, my boss, my physician, my pastor, and the one friend I had left working singly and together, maneuvered me into AA. Tonight, if they were to ask me, tell us, what did you find? I will say to them what I say to you now. I can only tell you what I have seen and heard. It seems that the blind do see, the lame do walk, the lepers are cleansed, and over and over again in the middle of the longest day or the darkest night, the poor in spirit have the good news shared with them. May God grant that it always be so. Thank you.